This is Chris. Welcome to episode 110 of X-Lapsed. And uh, I'm sitting here looking at this weird water that keeps coming out of the sky here. It's not something we see very often uh, out here in Arizona. It's a very rainy afternoon. Now, is there anything better than, you know, cozying up with a great comic book on a rainy day? Well, in theory, yeah, that's a great thing. But uh, in practice, the book we have today... Oh boy, let's just get into it here. This is the X-Men Free Comic Book Day 2020 special. Now, it had a July 2020 cover date. The story is called Free Comic Book Day. I guess maybe it doesn't have a title. I don't know. Written by Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard, with art by Pepe Larez. Colors, Marty Gracia. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa white Sabolski. Cover price is free. And it's actually still free uh, digitally, if you'd like to find it. Uh... You know, after this episode's over, I'll let you guys decide. And this one was released on July 15th of 2020, at least according to all the online sources here. I don't think I got the book until probably a month or two after that. I totally forgot that Free Comic Book Day was a thing last year, so I didn't even know this was there. But let's crack this thing open. And we open up with a single-page spread of creds, thankfully, because, I mean, the story is only, like, six or seven pages long anyway, so it's a good thing we didn't waste two. I don't know why we wasted a whole one, but, hey, what are you going to do? Then, into the comics, I think. Uh, We're in a forgotten place at a forgotten time where four figures step out of a portal of sorts. Now, they're led by what appears to be a woman with a fish mask, or maybe she just has a fish head, uh, this quartet includes a pair of Egyptian-looking, semi-antler-headed beings and a minotaur with a broken horn. Now, the minotaur steps forward and, while speaking in tongues, draws out a sigil. From it emerges a great reptilian scale, sort of like a Lovecraftian horror or something. Then the fish-headed woman, I, I think, transforms the horror into something a lot smaller and more manageable? I don't know. Then the foursome head through another portal, and they're headed to meet with Saturnine. You still with me? Because I I can't tell you which way is up right now. We shift scenes over to the Starlight Citadel, and it looks like the uh, weirdo foursome have arrived, maybe? They're here. They're somewhere. They they emerge from another portal, is what I'm trying to say. I don't know where they are. They're somewhere. Saturnine appears, maybe in the same place, maybe not. And she's handed a box by a green-haired woman with a crescent moon floating over her head. Now, inside the box are tarot cards, which will take us to the end of our very brief story. Now, Saturnine's flipping through the deck here, and she comes upon the card of judgment. And the pages here are like a 
like a 70-30, or a 30-70, I should say. Very small, narrow uh, top panel featuring Saturnine flipping through the cards. And then the whole bottom, port, but the bottom like two-thirds of the page is the card. Okay, so the first card is the card of Judgment. On it, we see Apocalypse and the Creepy Summoner stood before the external gate, which we just saw, right? We saw this uh, in the nearly as impenetrable as this issue, uh, X-Men Volume 5, number 12. The next card Saturnine draws is the Four of Wands, and I think this one features the original Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, or of Apocalypse, I guess, who I want to say we saw during the Krakoa origin story back during Hoxpox, and then again during X-Men number 12. The next card is the Hanged Man, and it symbolizes sacrifice. The card features several characters. Uh, Perhaps one or more of them will not make it out the other end of X of Tens? I don't know. Now, those characters include Apocalypse, Beast, Richter, Glob Herman, either M or Trinary, Trinary, however we're calling her, Havoc, Banshee, Angel, and Polaris. The next card is the Eight of Cups, and it's a split scene depicting Apocalypse's wife Genesis and Amanth's own annihilation. They're kind of split in the middle here. You see one each, each half of their face makes up one head. And we saw them for we saw them go at it for about a half second over in X Men Twelve. Now the final card is the X of Tens or the Ten of Swords. It depicts ten X Men, and uh, believe it or not, they're all carrying swords. They are Apocalypse, Kid Cable, Wolverine, Magic, Betsy Britton, Quanon, maybe or maybe Gorgon. They look like uh, katanas, so I'm assuming it's one of them. Uh, This one's in the shadow, so you really can't see anything besides the the gleaming of the swords. Uh, Storm, Doug Ramsey, Magneto, and on the far right in the back, there's one with a bucket head. And uh, it can't be Major X, could it? I mean, is he bringing the Sword of X to X of Swords? I, I don't know, but that might make this entire thing worthwhile. Anyway, Saturnine comments that there will be an unexpected loss... And a betrayal. Which, I mean, this is a Marvel crossover event, so you don't really need to be able to read the tarot in order to make an assumption like that. Uh, That's it. (laughs) That's the end of this one. There is a second story in this giveaway, part of Marvel's Dark Ages event, which may or may not have actually happened. Search me, I couldn't tell you. We'll leave that for other shows to cover and discuss, because I don't have any interest in Iron Man. That's that. Uh, Next episode, finally... X of Swords creation. So, uh, I suppose we should probably try to talk about this one, huh? Well. (sighs) You know, I purposely kept this one to right before our X of Tens, X of Swords coverage was, uh, you know, about to begin. I haven't even opened the thing since first flipping through it at the comic shop whenever I picked it up. Maybe September, maybe uh, maybe August. Uh, I saw that it was sword-related. And I figured, okay, I'm gonna hold off on this. You know, I'm not gonna not gonna spoil anything. I mean, this was either very very early in X lapsed or right before I finally decided to do it. So I didn't want to ruin anything. And you know, clearly, I would have zero idea what was you know what this was gonna be all about coming in cold, right? I mean, this is not the most inviting book, right? So, coming in fresh, I wouldn't have had the slightest idea what was going on. On the other hand, I, I tell you what, 
I've probably spent over a thousand hours immersed in all things Dawn of X over the past 150-ish days, right? And, well, I still haven't the foggiest friggin' idea what this was all about. Well, maybe not zero idea, but, I, but I'm damn close to not knowing what's going on here. Uh, this feels very much out of nowhere. And, you know, that's not only a failing of this issue, but it's a failing of the entire concept of Free Comic Book Day. Now, let me talk as brief as possible about Free Comic Book Day and my, my thoughts about Free Comic Book Day. Now, I'm a guy who's in the comic shops a lot, and I have been for decades at this point. And I don't need to make sure everyone knows that I do my part for comics retail, right? It's just something I do. Now, there's a reason why several of the shops that I visit regularly refer to that first Saturday in May as Pretend You Care About Comics Day. Which is not to be confused with Pretend You Care About Comics Week, which is held in San Diego every summer. Now, these offerings are being handed out to folks who have very little interest in ever darkening the doorway of a comic shop again. At least not on a day that doesn't begin with the word free. They're here to pick up free stuff, snap a picture of it, get a little bit of social media karma for being, you know, lol comic geek... Then they're going to toss whatever crap they were handed into the backseat of their car until they remember to throw it out. It's not a perfect system, is it? What it is, however, is an opportunity. Just like we've talked about that impenetrable Claremont X-Men story that showed up in the TV Guide issue around the time of the first X-Men movie, and what a missed opportunity that was to grab any new readers, this is yet another. If you were X-curious, or maybe even X-lapsed, just what in the world would you get out of this story? I mean, picture it. Someone maybe in their 30s or 40s, wandering into the comic shop for free stuff, or maybe they've got kids who want to go get some free stuff and they're coming along, and they come across this issue and they say, hey, you know what, I loved the X-Men cartoon back in the 90s. Or maybe... You know, they watch the New Mutants movie, and they see magic prominently featured on the cover, and they're like, ooh, I want to see what this is all about. They pick the thing up, they take it home, they sit down and open it, and they get this. This. We've talked a lot about the outdated concept that dictates that every comic could be somebody's first, right? I mean, we've said this before, and we'll say it again. The ship has surely sailed. And when it did... It was as though the industry had just resigned itself to the idea that it's hit critical mass, right? There will be no more new readers. I certainly can't hold a current year part four of six chapter to the standards of an issue of Uncanny that we'd get during the Jim Shooter era, right? You know, razor, sharp adamantium, unbreakable adamantium claws and all, right? But this isn't a part four of six, is it? This is a free comic book day gimme here. This is a book released for free on a day that really ought to be about expanding the readership. And if this were to be a successful outing, this issue would need to have been, you know, actually readable. And before I move on, yes, there are 10 out of 10 ratings for this story. So I hope your karma farming was successful, folks who gave this a 10 out of 10. Hell, maybe it's just me. Um, I will give Marvel one thing. At least this was new. It was a new story. It was difficult to read and off-putting to someone who's been immersed in the Dawn of X stuff. But 
at least it was something new and it's leading to something else. I swear, it beats the hell out of a twice-out-of-continuity story that DC trots out just because it happens to have Harley Quinn on the cover. Because those help nobody. If you get that Harley Quinn book and you love it, and then you go to the store for the next issue, they're like, oh wait, no, that was in 2010. That was in 2011. And you need to find... You're going to need to navigate your way to a back issue bin, find out which volume of whatever book you're looking for is, pay the extra price for it. Nobody's going to do that. That's usually the DC method, and it has been for several years now. Now, that's not to say that this, the X-Men free comic book day from 2020, necessarily helped anybody. And if I were to hazard a guess, I'd say it likely resulted in very few, if any, new, new readers to the X-Books. But... At least it's heading somewhere and kind of has a reason to exist. That said, let's talk about what we get here. It's not much. It's not much, is it? Um, For Hickman devotees who love seeing generic alien types gobble up panel time in superhero stories, you're going to dig the hell out of this. For other world enthusiasts who dig seeing Saturnine shuffle her deck, well, I guess there's something for you, too. For X-Men fans, well... Better luck next time. Uh, For potential new readers and people who want to try and get into the hobby... uh, Well, uh, you know, uh, that other corner of the comic shop has those True Believers comics there. You know, um, they're really cheap. They're not free, they're really cheap. So consider grabbing one if you can part with a dollar. I think you'll get something that uh, you may actually be interested in coming back for more of in that case. And I really... Don't mean to be so negative on this book. I I don't mean to be negative on any book, really, but this was a tough read. This was a really tough read. And again, I I mean, I hate using the uh, the pandemic as a scapegoat here um, or to, to use it to qualify things here, but we don't know what the original plans were and the original timetable for the books to come out. So had the world not grinded to a halt and these issues came out in the time that they were supposed to come out, maybe this would have made complete and total sense. Maybe this would have just been a refresher. Maybe this would have been more inviting to uh, to seasoned fans and lay folk, right? I mean, who's to say? I'm basically just, just spitballing here uh, to try to maybe lessen the sting a little bit. I don't know. But uh, this was a toughie. Uh, this is, as I mentioned, for free on Comixology. I'll try to remember to include a link in the show notes in case anybody else would like to maybe give it a try and maybe help me out a little bit. Maybe if it's uh, something you really, really dig, tell me why, right? Now, speaking of telling me why, how about we hop over to the mailbag here, because I really don't have much more to say about the free comic book day issue here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Wolverine number 5. Now, he starts, Congratulations on your 100th episode spectacular. And thanks to Jesse, I now have a new theory. The resurrected X-Men are edited to have their teenage personalities. It fits their general lack of inhibitions and finally explains Jean's costume and codename choices. I could even combine it with our previous theory that the real characters are in suspended animation and everyone is a clone. You know, stranger things have happened, and I could totally see... You know, I could see Marvel getting cold feet over... The thing, the direction of any of their comics, right? They're not quite as reactionary as DC is, but uh, they've been known to flip and flop. So if Marvel editorial or marketing gets 
maybe a wild hair that this just isn't going the way they want it to, or they're afraid of how they're going to get themselves out of it, we might get that ending where everything's a clone. Everybody's a clone, and all the real ones are safe and sound, and they haven't been killed and killed and killed and killed. I mean, stranger things have happened. Damien continues, On to the Wolverine story. Can I be the first to ask for a return to the version of Dracula from Paul Cornell's Captain Britain series? Dracula only really works for me with a hearty dose of camp. This grim, dark nonsense just annoys me. I've never read that. I, I do have it. I do have it, but I've never read it. Uh, I've heard a lot of good things. Let's see. Is that the Captain Britain in MI6 or MI13 or MI something? <laughs> I think that's the one, but uh, I, I've been meaning to get around to that. Maybe one of these days it'll be a... Uh, a Brit-lapsed uh, sort of a Sunday special or something here, because I definitely missed it, but I'd be curious to see the uh, depiction of Dracula. They're not that Dracula really does anything for me in any sort of incarnation, but, I mean, this is, this is kind of, like you said, grimdark, and that's a very, very good way of saying it here. Damien continues, I could no-prize the ride-or-die comment by explaining that Wolverine is very, very old and is attempting to use a modern phrase to be quote, down with the kids, and doesn't understand it. He thinks it means go away or I'll kill you. <laughs> oh, boy, ride or die. Um, yeah, I probably overused that joke during that episode here. For folks who might not have heard that one, um, Wolverine's getting dragged around in a brick of ice by a bunch of teenage vampires, little vamp kids, and he winds up busting his way through, and the first thing he says to these kids is ride or die. And, I mean, I, we went to Urban Dictionary, we went to the Plain Old Dictionary. I don't know why he said ride or die. <laughs> it just felt very, uh, like, one of those things like, hey, it's really cool to type this, and it's really cool to say it, but what in the hell does it mean in this context? So, I think we're going to give, uh, we're going to award Damien the no prize there, that, that Wolverine is just very, very old and out of touch. And maybe he saw that in a tweet somewhere and decided that uh, he would use it at the next uh, possible Opportunity. So there's that. Um, <laughs> Damien continues. I've read the bit with the rainbow as being related to Thor. I haven't been reading any non-X Marvel recently, but it felt as Guardian. Maybe one of your other listeners can confirm or deny my theory. Oh boy! If only, if only. Let me, let me, uh, let me, let me vamp for a minute here and pop over to the old. Email box here where I saved A little bit about what Those rainbows are all about Here our friend Andrew Franklin Says He gives us good news and he gives us Bad news all in one sentence here It's it's bad news because it's Pretty awful but it's good news Because it's something we're never ever ever Going to have to talk about Andrew Franklin says the epilogue With the rainbow is a Fortnite tie in It can safely be ignored I don't know what the hell a Fortnite is. I know it's a video game, and I know there are stupid dances and stuff. I've never played it, and I don't know anyone who has played it. But, uh, yeah, uh, that's apparently what these rainbow um, deals are. We have we, have, we saw one at the end of Wolverine number 5, and then we saw one... Oh, boy, which book was it? Where Storm and Quanon and... Uh, it's not Spider-Gwen. Gwenpool. Gwenpool are taken away by a uh, rainbow. And I guess that's going to be a tie-in to a video game. Hopefully it doesn't come with a Dawn of X banner, so then we will never, ever, ever have to read it. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Anyway, until Dracula does veganuary, make mine X lapsed. 
Well, thank you so much, Damien. It's always great to hear from you. I really, really appreciate you being part of this show. Uh, next up, Andrew Franklin is talking about Hellions number four. Now he says, I had to sit with this issue for a while. It again brings up the questions we've been asking since the beginning that might have been quiet for a time while our protagonist dealt with Russia and space nonsense. The mutants come back in clone bodies, but we're asked to believe that they're more than just clones, that they are real, the real X-Men. It starts to have all the unsettling cult behavior make more sense. Repeat after me, they're not clones. They're real. Say it again. Louder. All it takes is the belief that the resurrected are more than clones to make it the truth. And perhaps the Krakoans need that to be true to avoid an existential crisis, to avoid becoming just like Madeline Pryor. I said before that I thought Madeline was just rehashing her plot from Inferno, but I see now that those same story that some story beats, those same questions about Madeline's existence have a whole new context when held up against the new status quo. Huh. Very, very interesting here. I've been on this sort of path of thought, right? But I don't think I ever had it laid out quite like this here. The culty behavior that we that we found unsettling from the start, right? From what was it? Uh, House of X number five, was it? That uh, where the where the, the big shoe drop issue, where Storm is, you know, you know, who are they? Mutant, mutant. You know, they're real. They're real people. They are the same as they ever were. And here, Andrew paints us a picture here that uh, really makes you stop and think here, because. They are just clones, right? They are just husks that were grown in eggs and had brains, de- they had and had memories downloaded into them, right? But we are to accept them as, you know, this is the same Wolverine that that showed up in Incredible Hulk 180, right? This is the same Cyclops who showed up in in X Men number one back in 1963. This is the same Nightcrawler who showed up in Giant Size. These are the same characters. And, I mean, they look like them. They sometimes act like them. But are they? Huh. Interesting, right? Um, And you juxtapose that with Madeline, who is a clone, right? She is a clone. But how does that make her any less of a person than a reborn Wolverine or a reborn Nightcrawler? It's very, very interesting. Now, Andrew continues, Is X-23 still a clone of Wolverine, or did that get retconned? It got retconned. She is now a, uh, what was it, a genetic, not a genetic, maybe a genetic copy? A genetic double? I don't know. But they uh, they revealed, and I think I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, they had revealed in an issue of one of the Death of Wolverine miniseries that came out after the Death of Wolverine that there was enough... DNA from oh what what was her name Sarah is it Sarah Kinney is that their name is it is it Kinney <laughs> I don't know but uh, Sarah and Wolverine have like equal amounts of uh, of genetic what materials in X twenty three so she's basically Wolverine's daughter um, Andrew continues even if so isn't Gabby her sister just a clone of her yes honey badger or scout or whatever it is is a clone of uh, Laura 
Also, aren't these Stepford Cuckoos clones of Emma Frost? Yes. Don't they also have a bunch of spare Xavier clones in storage for Proteus to use? I ask then, where's the line? You've talked a lot about how devalued life has become to the mutants, and now they're deciding who counts as having a, quote, real life. In the end, Madeline's worst fear came true. Very true. Very, very true. Uh, Madeline just wanted to be remembered. Well, she wanted to be remembered for being real, for existing and being her own person. Being a real girl is what she said, and... Hey, the tribe has spoken, right? The Quiet Council said, no, no, no. So, yeah, it's pretty wild, isn't it? And I'm wondering where the line is. Is it just, is it all out of convenience? Is it, is it going to be explained somewhere down the line? We have that Way of X series coming out uh, not too long from now. So I wonder if a lot of these phys- uh, you know, philosophical and existential questions will be addressed there. I, I hope they are. I hope they are. I think that's going to be a very interesting read. Uh, Andrew continues. This was a great end to a story that I wasn't fully on board with until this issue. I wonder if Sinister fought hard not to have Madeline resurrected. I still don't know what Cyclops really felt about this. I hope this stuff lingers in the book for a while and isn't just dropped because we have magic swords incoming. Yes. (laughs) I hope so, too. I really hope that we do uh, keep these... You know, keep these stories bubbling and keep these ideas, not even stories, just the ideas, the, the discussions, the, uh, the concepts. I hope that once we're out the other end of X of Swords, that maybe we will uh, start addressing these things. Uh, I don't know, like, I really don't know what the whole line's going to look like coming out of X of Swords. Uh, we saw today in our... Our flimsy free comic book day special here that there you know that there is a betrayal maybe incoming and death speak incoming so we might have a whole different kind of landscape coming out the other end of this thing in like a month so uh, we'll find out then <laughs> we will see if uh, if any of these uh, these wonderful ideas are uh, are brought back into uh, into the the discussion. Now, Andrew wraps up with, So, until we see Nanny give Sinister a much-deserved spanking, make my next last. <laughs> yeah, the Nanny and Sinister scenes, I, I'm i sorry, I think they're hilarious. I, I feel bad about myself for thinking that they're so funny, but they catch me off guard, even though I know they're coming. But, uh, yes... I think we, I think we actually might see that scene as a thing. So you never know. But thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts and, and giving us that food for thought, there, Andrew. Next up, we're going to go to Evan Bevins, who's talking about the resurrection protocols. Now, Evan says a question I keep meaning to ask you and any of the other listeners who might know. Now, this is a good one. Does the larger Marvel universe know about the resurrection protocols? You questioned why the Scarlet Witch would try to bring back the Genosian mutants in light of that, and you're right. At the very least, it would have made sense for her to say she was hurrying the process along. I don't think that's something Xavier has made public. But then again, it could have just been part of his psychic address from Hoxpox, and I just missed it looking for Maggot in the crowd shots. And you know, that's an excellent question, which I might have taken for granted. Um, Now, you know, I do feel... Like, there have been throwaway lines every now and again about how the mutants can be resurrected, like people know it. But, you know, I might actually just have a little bit of confirmation bias there at this point. I I could swear I saw it. Like, 
I don't know, maybe we've been seeing missed messages in as far as who knows and who doesn't know, which makes me a little bit more confused than ever. Like, I'm trying to think of exact specific examples I can cite here. Um, Like, I think when those fanatics at the Red Tavern, like the anti-mutant support group at the Red Tavern in Wolverine number uh, four... When they were trying to think out a, think of a way to take out Wolverine, I think they mentioned something about mutants not being able to die anymore. And that's why they just decided to like drop him in the lake and freeze him in ice. I think. Maybe I'd have to pull the book out. But then again, I mean, when Xavier died and came back, they kept that a secret, didn't they? Or they at least put a little PR spin on it. Maybe it's just like one of those secrets, like the worst-kept secret sort of thing, where it's not confirmed, but everybody kind of knows it. I really don't know. I'm really going to have to pay better attention to that. To tell you something, to, to tell you all something that's kind of embarrassing about my earliest X fandom here and is a true sign of my inattention to detail. I remember early in the Grant Morrison run, he had uh, Professor X come out as a mutant on television, right? And uh, people online were like freaking out about that. And I was just like, What's the big deal? And, uh, you know, I learned that, well, people didn't know Xavier was a mutant. And I was like, what? (laughs) I always thought people knew. So uh, maybe I'm not the most perceptive all the time, or much of the time, I guess. But, uh, yes, I will definitely have to pay better attention to that. If anybody listening uh, does have any help with uh, with Evan's question there, please, please feel free to uh, let us know, to keep us in the loop here and, and share with the rest of the class. Now, Evan continues, Maybe this has been addressed further along while I'm still hovering around the Wave 1 number 1s. Resurrections being a state secret could also explain why more guest stars didn't show up for Call Me Kate's funeral in Marauders number 11. And, you know, that's as good an explanation as any, right? And again, I'm not sure who does and doesn't know. Because, like, I'm trying to think here. We, We haven't really crossed the streams much. With the greater Marvel Universe at this point here Maybe I do know that there are several X-Men Prominently placed on one of the King in Black issues I think it's issue number four So I wonder if during that book You know, of course this is Assuming that the cover has anything to do with what's going on inside the book Which is a crapshoot But if we do see the X-Men talking to Say, Captain America Say... I don't know anybody And uh, they talk about the resurrection protocols Or it's alluded to that people do know Then I guess we might have an answer then The only thing I could think of now Is, you know, we do have the psychic address Right? I don't remember exactly what it said I really probably should have dug it out But like I've said a few times so far uh, We're in the middle of a move So everything is kind of just boxed up And pushed into a corner So I do not have access Or as easy as as access as I'd like To confirm or deny all that But We did have X-Men plus Fantastic Four Franklin did spend some time He spent the, you know a few minutes on Krakoa So we might assume That he would know a thing or two I mean if he's on Krakoa He'd have to know about the hatchery Right? Especially with as powerful as he is He'd probably have some sort of He'd probably know a thing or two And so you'd assume that maybe Sue and Reed would know And I mean if that's the case I, I mean the Avengers would probably know And if if they know Then Wanda would surely know as well. I, I really don't know 
I really don't know. We need help, folks. <laughs> if anybody knows, please, please help us out. Evan continues. As for Jesse's observations about religion and Marauders number 11, I think the Kirkcullens are generally dismissive of religion because they view it as a human construct. And while the desire for a uniquely mutant culture makes sense in the story, it sounds more like something from the beliefs of Apocalypse and Magneto than Professor X and the X-Men. Which doesn't rule it out, but it seems like some of the characters we've discussed before, like Nightcrawler and Wolfsbane, and hey, haven't we seen dust around? They'd question this a little bit more. But I hope it's more of an in-story reason than a disdain for religion among the writers. I hope so, too. I hope so, too. I hope that there are reasons for this. And like I mentioned, we do have that Way of X book coming out, which is supposed to be focused on, on the mutant religion. And... It's going to feature Nightcrawler, and I'd have to assume that we're going to see some, you know, I I don't want to say editorializing, but uh, I'm going to assume we're probably going to see some religious editorializing. Um, but we might get some answers there in, in as far as the uh, dismissive uh, take on religion that so many of the characters have shown throughout the run to this point. So we'll put a pin in that for now and uh, revisit it, I think, in... March? April? Sometime this spring. I think Way of X is coming out with, uh, I believe it's Simon Spurrier is the writer. I don't know who's, who the artist is. I don't remember. But uh, I think Simon Spurrier is the writer. But that will do it for our mailbag this time. I don't want to thank everyone for, uh, for sharing their thoughts and uh, for reaching out to say hello. It really, really means a lot. Now, uh, if anybody would like to reach out and say hello or say anything, Please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com, also xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can talk with us about all the stuffs at 90s X-Men on Facebook. It's Facebook.com slash groups slash 90s X-Men. I think. <laughs> I think that's what it is. I think you just search 90s X-Men, you'll find it. Uh, you can listen to a whole bunch of audio over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And that, my friends, will do it. I want to... Uh, I feel like I always apologize for having um, negative thoughts about a book that we're covering here. But, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that this was the most brilliant thing I've ever read. Simply because I didn't understand it. You know, I think uh, a lot of us may think that things we don't understand are just beyond us and not... Maybe just not well told And I don't think this was A successful gimme A successful free comic book day gimme here I think if anything it would have scared people off Then enticed them To uh, to come into the X-Books cold And try Reading X of Swords Because Oof, I mean this This book, this free comic book day gimme Had, had like prerequisite courses You needed to read All of Excalibur all of X-Men Volume 5. And I mean, that's a mighty big ask for a gimme. You know? Uh, in dollars, in time, in just effort. So yeah, I do not feel like this was a successful outing for Free Comic Book Day. I feel like if you wanted to give potential newcomers a tour of the Dawn of X uh, landscape, there were better ways to do it. There were certainly better ways to do it, to give people a little bit of comfort, a little bit of grounding, and uh, maybe a feeling like, hey, I could start these books and understand them and enjoy them, rather than just giving us an X-Men story that features 
no X-Men outside of appearing on tarot cards. Eh, maybe it's just me. But uh, hopefully your mileage may vary, <laughs> and you guys might have dug this a lot more than me, and maybe it got you suitably hyped for uh, X of Swords. And uh, if that's the case, I, uh, I envy you, because we're about to go into it, and I'm not entirely sure how I feel. So we'll hope for the best, as always. We'll be optimistic cautiously and hope for, uh, hope for you know, good things. But that's where I'll put a pin in it. I'll finally... Shut up at this point uh, After I thank everyone for sharing their time with me today It really, really means a lot to me And as always, till next time I will talk to you all again Real soon See ya Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 111 of X-Lapsed. And, uh, well, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the this is the book we've been traveling through these other books just to get to. Uh, when we started this little project, I had the... Uh, well, uh, I, I, I'm not known for my ability to read a calendar. I, I mess that up more often than I don't. And I assumed that we'd be all caught up with these Dawn of X books before the big mass crossover event uh, wrapped up. And no, (laughs) no, we indeed did not. But uh, we do have a lot to talk about today. So let's just get right into it here. We are talking X of Swords, Ten of Swords, X of Tens, whatever we're going to be calling it. I'm sure we'll call it all three. This is X of Swords creation, number one, or Ten of Swords creation, or... I'm saying exoswords, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know it's supposed to be tenoswords, I'm saying exoswords. The same way I annoyed a lot of people by saying powers of X instead of powers of ten back in the long ago, but let's just do it, let's just do it. Enough vamping here. Exoswords, creation number one, had a November 2020 cover date. Written by Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard, with art by Pepe Larraz. Colors, Marty Gracia. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa white Cover price... Six dollars and ninety-nine cents. 
Youch. On sale September 23rd, 2020. Now we open with a mostly blank page featuring a short quote from Saturnine. I guess the more things change, the more they remain the same. Now we open at the Del Dolor in the kingdom of Dryador in Otherworld. Uh, this entire place is about to be run overrun by the children of Apocalypse, which is to say the original Four Horsemen. Inside the tower, which I'm guessing is the Del Dolor, uh, a squire is approached by the cursed king of Dryador. The squire is instructed to send word to Saturnine to warn of what is likely headed her way. The squire hops on a like a flying dinosaur sort of critter and uh, is run through by an arrow from the horseman before he can leave. Jump to a double-page spread of creds with some refreshing blue highlights. Then our roll call, and it's a biggie. We got Rockslide, Rachel Summers, Summoner, Apocalypse, Magneto, Cypher, Polaris, Havoc, Richter, Siren, Beast, Angel, Monet, Kid Cable, Cyclops, and Jean Grey. Back to comics and back to the Squire, who somehow still makes it to the Starlight Citadel, but he's fading very fast. As he lay dying, he warned Saturnine that Arako has fallen. And so Opal Luna, what's your face, asks for her cards. Then, stop me if you've heard this one before. We're in a forgotten place at a forgotten time where four figures step out of a portal of sorts. They're led by what appears to be a woman in a fish mask or with a fish head. The quartet includes a pair of Egyptian-looking semi-antler-headed beings and a minotaur with a broken horn. Anybody else having deja vu? Hmm. The minotaur steps forward and while speaking in tongues draws out a sigil. From it emerges a great reptilian tail like a Lovecraftian horror or something. Then the fish-headed woman, I think, transforms the horror into something a lot smaller. Maybe a deck of cards, I don't know. Then the foursome head through another portal, and they're headed to meet back up with Saturnine. We had an info page about the Starlight Citadel. Eh. Then, back to comics, and uh, hey, stop me if you've heard this before. We shift scenes over to the Starlight Citadel. And it looks like uh, our foursome has arrived, maybe. Saturnine appears and is handed a box by a green-haired woman with a crescent moon floating over her head, and inside that box are those tarot cards, which uh, is going to bridge us to new content, I promise. But in the interest of completionism, let's go through these cards again, shall we? First is the card of Judgment. On it we see Apocalypse and the Summoner stood before the external gate, which we saw you know, in X-Men Volume 5, Number 12, and also in the free comic book day deal. Then the Four of Wands. This card features the original Four Horsemen of Apocalypse, the Children of Apocalypse. The next card is the Hanged Man, and this card features several characters, um, and uh, they are different on this page than they were in the free comic book day special here. They are Apocalypse, Beast, Richter. Instead of Glob Herman, we have Rockslide. Instead of M or Trinary, Trinary, we have the Creepy Summoner. We've got Havoc. Instead of Banshee flying above, we got Siren. We also got Angel and Polaris. Those are the same. Next up, the Eight of Cups, and it's a split scene, of course, depicting Apocalypse Wife Genesis and Annihilation. We saw this already. The final card is, of course, the X of Tens, or the Ten of Swords. And it depicts ten X-Men all carrying swords. They are Apocalypse, Kid Cable, Wolverine, Magic, Betsy Britton, either Quanon or Gorgon, Storm, Doug Ramsey, Magneto, and maybe Major X. I don't know. Probably not. 
Now, these characters did not change between the free comic book day gimme and this issue, so same deal here. This time, however, Saturnine does not comment that there'll be an unexpected loss and a betrayal. The captions have changed, her dialogue has changed. I don't know why. It really gives us a last-minute sort of feel, but we'll talk about that later. Next up, an info page. Go figure. Now we've got a tarot reading from Tarot, probably the Hellion, right? Now, she has tried doing several readings, but each time she can only draw the same five cards that we just looked at. Maybe the repetition here is a, is a theme, right? We, we saw these already in the free comic book day thing, and we're seeing them again. Maybe uh, poor young Tarot uh, just feels our pain and frustration. Now, let's get into some new information here. We go back to Krakoa, and we join Rachel, Rockslide, and Magma at the Caldera at Arako Point, where the external gateway is. From it springs a Lovecraftian horror being ridden by the creepy summoner, who is carrying a nearly dead Banshee. From here, we hop to the Healing Gardens, where Banshee is attended to by the old Morlock healer. Apocalypse arrives for a sit-rep from his grandson and is told of an ambush. Now, if you remember, in uh, X-Men number 12, the uh, summoner was going to be escorted into Otherworld by Eunice the Untouchable and Banshee. And according to the summoner... There was an ambush. We'll find out more about that as we go. Next stop, the Quiet Council, where Apocalypse lays out his case for an invasion into Otherworld to save the rest of Araco. Magneto's pretty dismissive of this idea, and he reminds old A that he's done all this work thus far in secret. And it's only now, when he needs help, that he decides to fill in the council on what's going down. Apocalypse claims that he was only working in Krakoa's best interests. To which Krakoa itself, via Doug Ramsey, chimes in, and uh, more or less backs up Apocalypse's claim. Krakoa recognizes and accepts his gift of the external gate. Apocalypse then fills in the rest of the council on the Krakoan origin story, which we've already seen once or twice before. It was cleaved by the Twilight Sword, if you recall. Uh, then back in X-Men Volume 5, Number 2, when the remnant of Okara showed up and merged with Krakoa, Apocalypse started working on a way to reunify the island and make it whole. Now, he turns the floor over to the High Summoner to speak for a bit, and we hear of the ambush on the other side of that external gate. Eunice the Untouchable... Well, I mean, he isn't called Eunice the Uncapturable, I guess, so yeah, he was captured. Banshee fought, but was wounded very, very badly in the battle. Now, the Summoner reports that Arako has fallen, and will ultimately this will ultimately result in the end of the world, because of course it will. Xavier asks for a plan. Apocalypse responds that thousands of years ago, he'd forfeited half the island to stop these hordes. If you remember, they were sent into that chasm, which was then sealed, I think. Sebastian Shaw suggests that they just shut down the damn external gate. Storm won't allow them to do so, because to do so would be leaving Eunice behind. And really, Eunice? Okay. Jean pipes in and says she'll have Scott lead an otherworldly recon team to rescue Eunice. And Apocalypse says, no, 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 don't do that, because he himself will go. Sinister suggests that they wait for Apocalypse to step through the portal and then destroy it, because Sinister is sassy. Nightcrawler worries that this might be the world's response to the, big, to the mutants' big stepping out during Hoxpox, because now they have all new enemies, and, uh, you know, they're all very dull and or Russian. Xavier asks why Apocalypse needed the external gate. 
After all, they already had a gate to Otherworld. I'm guessing they're talking about that one at the bottom of the scrying pool or whatever the hell it was at Morgan, Morgan Le Fay's place. Apocalypse suggests that this external gate is different. Krakoa does not have full control over it, and access to it might not be limited to mutants. Upon hearing this, Emma Frost will F that noise and suggest that they just destroy it. Magneto concurs. Shaw says, hey, let's pretend we're a democracy and vote. And so they do. The council is overwhelmingly in favor of just trashing the gate that we spent the year fiddle-friggin' with over in Excalibur. So thanks a lot, guys. But the only vote that matters is Krakoa's. And the island says the gate stays. Xavier accepts Krakoa's words because, I mean, they are guests on him or it. Uh, Magneto feels like Apocalypse might have skipped a link in the chain of command here, and he flatly calls him out for it. Apocalypse does not deny it, and only says that he and Krakoa both want the same thing. Magneto's like, okay, that's cool, but you're on your own. The Quiet Council will not sign off on anything you're about to do. He understands and says, okay, I'll just ask for volunteers, and somehow he gets a bunch. Let's jump back to the external gate. Havoc approaches Polaris, and they have a brief scene together. Polaris claims that she's here at the behest of her father, who wants the House of M to look strong in this endeavor. Now, Havoc, he's here as a volunteer, basically because Cyclops isn't. As, uh, you know, this isn't a quiet council joint, Scott can't take the gig. Remember, he is Captain Commander, or Commander Captain, or however we say that. We peer over to Apocalypse, who is surrounded by some more of his volunteers. We've got Richter, with whom he's had a weird relationship over in Excalibur. Angel, with whom he's had a weird relationship for like 35 years now. Rockslide, who has had a weird relationship with the Summoner for a couple of minutes now. Beast, who's naturally skeptical of everything. Siren, who wants revenge for her father's grave injuries. And then our final volunteer shows up, and it's Monet. She suggests that maybe one of these days she'll take Saturnine's gig as uh, whatever the hell she does in Otherworld. Okay, then. We get some info pages. A map of Otherworld, which looks more like Baby's first Grant Morrison's multiversity map. Then we get a list of Otherworld kingdoms, and we'll go through them right now. They all stem from the Starlight Citadel, of course. That is kind of the, I don't know, it's the capital of Otherworld. I don't friggin' know. But we got some uh, courts here. We got fair courts, we got foul courts. Let's go through the fair courts. The first one is the Floating Kingdom of Roma Regina, led by Roma Regina. Then we have Infury the Everforge, led by Forge Master Federal Fury 005. And I don't know if this is the Fury, like Jim Jasper's horrifying monster from the old Captain Britain stories. I kind of hope it is. We've got Avalon, led by that weirdo Jamie Braddock. We've got Sevalith, led by Countex Dublia and Countex Oscura. Okay. And Mercator, ruled by, your guess is as good as mine, it's unknown. We jump across the aisle to the Foul Courts. The Holy Republic of Fae, led by Merlin. The Hot Hive, led by Vesperidae, the Colony Queen. Dryador, which was once led by the Cursed King, who I suppose is now dead because the seat of power lay vacant. Blightspoke, ruler unknown. And, finally, the Crooked Market, led by the aforementioned Mad Jim Jaspers. We jump back to comics and we're back to the Healing Gardens. There, Rachel and Kid Cable are watching over Banshee, and they both feel as though Banshee is screaming inside his head, and so they decide to have a goo. But first, we shift scenes over to Apocalypse and his extracts. I guess we can call them that. 
And we get a bit between Angel and Apocalypse, uh, wherein the latter suggests that Warren is acting more like his true self, i.e. the Angel of Death. It's worth noting that Angel is wearing his Archangel costume, though he still has his normal feathery wings. I'm not sure what's going on with him. Uh, Last time we saw him was during the Empire cash-in, and Lord only knows whether or not we're supposed to even remember any of that, so your guess is as good as mine. In the distance, they spot Eunice the Untouchable, and he's strapped to a stake, and he's being held prisoner by the horseman. Now Apocalypse is taken aback at seeing his children after all this time, and he decides to approach them. We jump back to the Summer's kids, and they pop into Banshee's dome, and they're led through his memories. They arrive in Otherworld alongside he, Eunice, and the Summoner. On the horizon, they see a great army. Now, Scott's tots get the uncanny feeling that something isn't quite right here. We jump back to the apocalyptic family reunion. Apocalypse approaches his children and takes a knee. They ask him to stand so that they can see him as they remember him, both as a titan and as a god. He suggests that it's a miracle that his children have been returned to him. They don't agree. They've lived through hell for many, 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 many years. We get confirmation, or considering the next shoe that's just about to drop, maybe confirmation in quotes, that Apocalypse's wife, Genesis, was killed by annihilation. He apologizes. The horsemen say that uh, regret is for the weak. Then they run him through with a spear. Oh, and the summoner joins in on the fun as well, stabbing Apocalypse in the back repeatedly. Rutrow. Siren screams, which shatters the landscape. Let's hop back to Scott's tots. Now they see the summoner betraying Banshee and Eunice. Then Saturnine pops into the astral plane, telling the kids that there's something they're going to need to find. But we don't get to see what that is just yet. Rachel sends Kid Cable to enlist Mom and Dad to help find the thing. And don't worry, we will have an answer by the end of the issue. And depending on your mileage, it it might elicit a cheer, it might elicit a groan. I don't know. We'll we'll figure it out when we get there. We jump back to over uh, back to other world here, where Saturnine is in meditation mode. The fish-headed woman interrupts her time to ponder how Opaluna has been able to ignore the raging battle going on down below. And Saturnine kind of shrugs it off, and refers to those below as nothing more than pawns in a game. She's not sure if she'll intervene just yet. Down below, the battle does indeed rage. We get to see a face-off between Rockslide and the creepy summoner, with the former asking the latter why he'd betray them. To which, the summoner draws a blade and cleaves poor Rockslide in two. Welp. Richter and Beast try carrying Apocalypse toward the external gate to get him back to Kokoa, at which time poor Julio takes an arrow to the gut. Beast calls to Alex, suggesting that, hey, maybe we ought to split. Alex, Lorna, and Monet tell Hank to get back to Krakoa, and they will attempt to hold the position. Shift scenes back to Summer House. Kid Cable lets his folks know about the thing. And we finally get to take a look at it, and it's a big sphere, big orb. Thankfully, Scott knows exactly what and where it is. Hop back to Otherworld. Havoc, Polaris, and Penance keep fighting the Horde. Monet Astral projects herself to Saturnine to demand some assistance. I didn't know that was within her power set, but okay, it is Otherworld. I mean, we can go with Otherworld logic here, I guess. Now, Saturnine pulls a uh, Spectre during a Crisis Level event deal, wherein she says she'll get involved when she damn well feels like it, before jettisoning Monet from her Penance form. 
To which Lorna decides, F it, the Starlight Citadel is mostly made out of metal, and so she'll just pull the whole damn palace down. We jump back to Earth, and the Summerses arrive somewhere. Somewhere very Hickman-y, because we get a whole lot of words way too smart for me in the dialogue. We also get to see that great big sphere orb thing. Hop back to Otherworld. Lorna keeps dragging the Citadel down, and Saturnine finally decides to do something. And that something is freeze everyone in place. Back to Earth. The orb is depowered and needs a whole lot of Hickman-y energies to come alive. Singularities, even. Oy. Lucky for everyone, the Kid Cable now wields the Light of Galador, which I suppose is akin to a set of jumper cables, I guess. Back to Otherworld. Saturnine questions the Anubis-looking horseman who refuses to engage. And so Saturnine... I think turns him into a chibi-looking version of himself? I mean, he looks really small and cute. I, I, I think that's what's going on. It's really unclear. We learn that the horsemen want Krakoa. Duh. Now, Saturnine declares that there will be a contest of champions. A duel between the champions of Otherworld and the champions of Arako. Really? Is that really what we're doing here? Okay, well, the remaining X-Men see the writing on the wall and realize that they're about to be part of this tournament or whatever, uh, whether they want to be or not. And so, we get 20 swords listed. Now, one of the horsemen names 10 of them. We've got the Twilight Blade, which is the Sword of Annihilation. Mercy, the Sword of Iska, that mutant that we met with the ability to win. We saw her in uh, X-Men number 12. Vermilion, the Red Sword of War, which as the name might imply, is wielded by war. Colony, which is the creepy summoner's sword. The black bone of Amduat, which is wielded by the horseman Death. Seducer, which is wielded by the horseman Pestilence. Pog Ur Pog, which is wielded by Pog Ur Pog. Purity, the sword of that white sword guy who we saw in X-Men number 12. Alluvium, the sword of Red Root the Forest, whoever that is, whatever that is, and Muramasa, which is a Japanese blade. Polaris winds up naming another ten. Muramasa, again. The Sword of Light, which maybe that's a different take on the Sword of Might. Also the Starlight Sword, Captain Britain's eventual blade. Grasscutter, a sword from the Marvel UK title Black Axe, if the Marvel wiki is to be believed anyway. Godkiller, a sword that had been given to Zeus. Warlock, is in the techno-organic dude attached to Doug Ramsey's arm. The Soul Sword, Magic Sword. The Scarab, which is the sword that will eventually be wielded by Apocalypse. The Light of Galador, which is Kid Cable's Space Knight Sword. And Skybreaker, a vibranium sword forged in Wakanda. Saturnine refers to these as the Ten of Swords. Okie dokie. Jump back to Earth. Cable jams the light of Galador into the orb. Back to Otherworld. Saturnine states that this contest will occur in three days. Monet wonders what sort of game Saturnine is playing, which facilitates a clunky bit of dialogue, which ends with Opal Luna What's-Her-Face saying, Raise your sword. As she says this, the newly powered orb thing activates a satellite. The satellite of S.W.O.R.D. That is S-W-O-R-D. That boring group that couldn't maintain their own ongoing for, like, more than four issues. We wrap up with an info page telling us that S-W-O-R-D is offline, but 
there are bioforms on board, I think. That is X of Swords creation. Next episode, we will be looking at X of Tens, part two of 22. X Factor, number four. Well, you, you guys don't know this, but I just had to go get a drink of water there. That was a lot of talking and a lot of synopsizing and a lot of, uh, a lot of story. That was a pretty meaty issue there, wasn't it? I mean, where do we even start, right? Um, I suppose we could maybe begin with the betrayal of the summoner, which was about as much of a surprise as like a guy named Sinestro being revealed as not being one of the good guys in the Green Lantern movie. I, I, I mean, just look at this guy. He's a creep. Of course he's going to be evil. That being said, now we have to question, or we get the opportunity to question, how much of his story was legit. I mean, we just had that horribly paced and overly crammed X-Men number 12, which almost turned me off completely from these books. But that was all being told from his point of view. So how much of it was honest? I mean, he says right here during this very issue that he's a liar. You know, that's one of his powers is that he lies. So does that mean that maybe Apocalypse's wife is still alive? Could that mean that the origin of the mutant species rift that we got in that issue isn't completely true? Because I hope it isn't. Because it sucks. Got a lot of questions here, and uh, I'm sure we're going to get the answers soon enough, so that's a good thing. Let's talk about the beginning of this issue, the opening pages here, which uh, were a little familiar, huh? It now makes a bit more sense as to why the free comic book day special was so impenetrable. It's because it was actually the first half dozen pages of this issue. Now that doesn't excuse it for being awful. It just makes a bit more sense. And maybe it's further evidence of what a lazy and wrong-headed exercise it was to make as a gimme. Now there were a couple of changes in the telling here, which might make us ask a few more questions. First, were these actual changes, or were they meta-changes? We never fully know when we're dealing with high-concept stuff like Dawn of X, right? Now, in the free comic book day issue, the dialogue was a bit different, and the cards were also slightly different. Rockslide, the Summoner, and Siren replaced Glob Herman, Monet, or Trinary Trinary, and Banshee on the Hanged Man card. Now, was that an actual edit, or are we supposed to have noticed that the characters changed? Like, are these hints that we're slipping through realities here? Or was this so poorly thought out that the story was changing even this late in the game? I guess time will have to tell. How's about this contest contest of champions thing? I'm not sure how I'm feeling about this. I just don't find the arena concept to be... All that interesting Uh, I mean, especially like it's compounded When we're pitting our heroes against (sighs) Generic Hickman critters, right? Am I supposed to like be salivating To see Kid Cable face off with The Anubis-looking horseman Who we've known for five minutes? Uh, Am I going to be chomping at the bit To see Magic versus the Firestorm-looking horseman That we just met? I mean, it's still early yet But at this point I've got zero investment in any of this Probably safest to just put a pin in that for now And we'll just, we'll just hope for the best here We do have 21 future installments of this So maybe we'll learn to love the Anubis-looking horseman, right? Maybe we'll learn to love the Firestorm-looking one You never know 
Uh, you know, there are people whose opinions I hold in very high regard who really enjoyed this event, so I'm hopeful that I'll come around to it. I, I'm just not there yet. It is still very, very, very early, though. Now, there were a handful of kind of eye-popping moments here. First, Apocalypse being run through by his kids and the Summoner. I mean, I can't lie and say I didn't expect them to be the baddies here. I mean, just look at the cover of the book. But the scene was still very effective and pretty shocking. They, you know, they really came out of the gate hot here. A rock slide being cleaved in two, uh, another pretty big surprise. Um, I'd heard that rock slide is going to be a big part of this event, but I wasn't expecting to be killed off right away. Also, uh, did Richter die? I mean, he was shot in the gut with an arrow. I gotta wonder if he survived it. And I mean, of course, they'll all be back. But still, we're kind of amping up the threats here, and that I like, because there really haven't been that many during the Dawn of X run so far, right? So this might be, you know, the, the business is picking up, and, I, and I'm a fan of that, for sure. Um, conversely, I will say I could not care less about S.W.O.R.D. S-W-O-R-D. Uh, that is a concept that is horrendously dull to me. I still bought the original run when it came out. Um, I want to say this was one of the all-Marvel ongoings that was retroactively named a miniseries. And then we were all told to forget everything that we saw that proclaimed it to be an ongoing series because it was always, always supposed to be a miniseries. Uh, See also any Brian Bendis series that ran for less than ten issues. We we got a lot of those. uh, A lot of those forget everything you read. Everything you thought you knew about S.W.O.R.D. was wrong. It was never an ongoing, damn it. And neither was Bendis' Spider-Woman. I'm still a bit trepidatious about the inclusion of this boring bunch. Um, And I'm also a little bit wary that the allegedly ongoing S.W.O.R.D. series that follows X of Tens is uh, being written by Al Ewing. Who, uh, after his flagrant and cowardly use of block bots on social media, I kind of have a problem with. Uh, I'm not looking forward to having to cover that book, and you know I'm going to put it all out there. Hopefully, I can be even-handed with the coverage. Let's talk art. Now, uh, the art here—it's our House of X bunch, and so it's awesome. Uh, you know, I neglected to mention it last episode, but I found the free comic book day art to be—and I mean, I don't know art, <laughs> but it felt—it looked a little bit. Under the standards of what we'd expect from this crew Maybe a little bit rushed Maybe a little bit crammed I mean, it's a, it was a weird choice For a free comic book day offering um, This, though, was a return to form It was very, very strong There were bits of the story that were difficult to parse But I don't blame that on the art team at all uh, Like, what was up with that Sort of chibi version of the Anubis Horseman Right? Maybe I'm just being dense But it kind of confused me And again, I'm not blaming the artists here Overall, this was a biggie. This was a big issue, and I'm walking away from it kind of neutral. There's a lot to like, but also there's a lot to kind of raise an eyebrow at. Um, All things being equal, I gotta say I'm a bit more optimistic now than I was after reading X-Men number 12 and the free comic book day special. So that's a net positive, and uh, we will... As always, keep on keeping on, and we'll see where this goes. But uh, so far, so good. Now, with all that said, let's uh, let's make an already kind of long episode into an even longer episode by dipping into the mailbag, and we've got we've got a lot to talk about. So let's get into it. Here we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X Lapsed episode one hundred and one, where we talked about Deadpool number six. 
Now, Damien says, My story with Deadpool is very different to yours, as this is the first issue of Deadpool that I've ever read. I've read a lot of Deadpool stories, starting with his first appearance, but this was a first. Kelly Thompson is a weird writer for me, as everything I've read with her name on it has been good, but she's always, she always seems to be given books that I have no interest in. I enjoyed this book, but I'm not going to read her entire Deadpool run, because I have so many books I want to read on my reading pile. Not to mention all the backlog of reading I have to get to into your weekend podcasts. I'm keeping them all in wait for when I finally get ahead of things. This means you'll probably get random messages from me about major hex laps in 2030. Well, I tell you what, I'm definitely looking forward to 2030 then, because I really want to hear your thoughts on the... Uh, I can't even think of a hyperbolic word to use to describe major X, uh, other than to say it's something. <laughs> And I'm very interested in hearing your take on it. Uh, I have since uh, run through uh, several comic shops in the area to pick up as many of these Deadpool books as I can get. Uh, the Kelly Thompson run here, I've I've picked up most of them. Uh, of course, I haven't had a chance to read them because that's just kind of my lot in life. But uh, I did grab a bunch of them. I can't find the first issue, which is weird because, I mean... I'm pretty sure the thing probably had 45,000 variant covers, so you'd figure you'd be able to find one of them in the wild, but no, can't find it, can't find it. But I am looking forward to sitting down with them. They are breezy reads, so it's not like uh, it's not like it's going to take forever, and I'm not going to have to worry about writing you know, my notes and my script for it afterwards, so I am looking forward to getting to them here. And uh, Kelly Thompson, I, you know, she started showing up in credits when I was... Like, just about done with Marvel. I, I was, you know, I was on my way out, so I really didn't get to experience a whole lot of uh, what she put out. But I, from the strength of this Deadpool run, I, I am interested in checking out some of her stuff here. Uh, I did a little bit of research on our friend Jeff the Landshark, and his first appearance was in West Coast Avengers, the uh, newest volume. So it's like, well, damn it, I'm going to pick up an issue of <laughs> West Coast Avengers to, to have the first appearance of Jeff the damn Landshark. So we'll, we'll see how that goes, too. Uh, maybe that'll be something that I enjoy, and maybe West Coast Avengers will be a series that I, uh, that I check out eventually, you know. Uh, Damien continues, Jeff the Landshark was the best character in the issue, but I was also impressed that all the characters were behaving logically. It makes sense for the X-Men to not want Deadpool on Krakoa, and it makes sense that he would be hurt by that. It was also a good choice for Thompson to choose Emma to talk to Wade on behalf of the Quiet Council. Having the entire council there would have meant a lot of extra drama that she didn't need. Totally true. Totally true. This was a really good representation of all the characters here. And, I mean, Deadpool, as madcap and zany and just off the wall as he can be, came across as wonderfully human here. I mean, he was hurt by being excluded, and... I think that's something that's very relatable, and you don't have to be crazy or eccentric to relate to that sort of a, a sensation there. Being left out sucks. Uh, you know, Take it from someone who gets left out of things all the time, me. <laughs> it sucks. It's not fun. It makes you question your worth. It makes you wonder what's wrong with you. It's definitely something that uh, gets under your skin. So seeing Deadpool have this very um, sad sort of realization like why don't you guys want me it's uh it was it was very touching it was very touching it brought it was very grounding and i very much appreciate it i think that's probably the strongest outside of jeff the Landshark, of course that was probably the strongest part of this issue and it's what made me decide to go back and and pick up the rest of the thompson run so really good stuff 
Now, Damien wraps up with, So until Wade Wilson becomes President of the United States, make my next lapsed. Sadly, I think that could happen. That might just happen. I mean, stranger things have happened. So Deadpool very well might become president of these United States. But uh, thank you so much for your thoughts there, Damien. And I'm, I'm happy that you read the issue of Deadpool. You're very first for the show. So that's really, really cool. I really appreciate you doing that for the show. Uh, next, our friend Mark, Green Lantern HG, talking about X-Lapsed episode 109, Juggernaut number one. He says, just got caught up to the last episodes, Chris. Great job, man. I do hope you continue, Juggernaut. If anything, just to catch up on him. If not, I understand, but keep up the great work. Well, I enjoyed the Juggernaut issue, so we might just uh, dip back into that post uh, X of Tens here. So, as I don't want to interrupt X of Tens for another uh, for a side story, so maybe when we're all through here and we maybe take a take a couple days to deflate, you know, to just release the X of Swords tension, and maybe we can do that with uh, with the Juggernaut. There, we'll spend a, a few days with Old Kane Marco there. But thank you so much for uh, your kind words. Uh, next. Ed Moore also talking about Juggernaut number one. He says, I can't necessarily explain why, but I enjoyed Juggernaut more than most of the other current X-Men books. And yeah, um, I, I, like I said on, on social media, Juggernaut was, wasn't trying to be anything it wasn't. You know, it was everything it needed to be and wasn't trying to be something it wasn't. So it was easy to enjoy, right? I mean, it was just... I don't want to say it was mindless, because it wasn't. I mean, there was a story there. There was a real emotion there. There was drama there. But uh, it was just an easy-to-follow story. And sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need that. And I very much enjoyed the uh, the ability to just enjoy a story for what it was and not try to link things to other things. And even though I did, you know, of course I tried to link things, but uh, it wasn't a requirement, which... You know, I appreciate it. But thank you so much uh, for sharing your thoughts there, Ed. Next up, Andrew Franklin chiming in on X-Lapsed episode 108, where we talked about X-Men, volume 5, number 12. And uh, I opened up the email box today, and I (laughs) I saw the subject title here. And the title was, I Just Can't with This Hickman B.S., And Andrew starts with, I'm sorry to everyone for this extremely negative letter. This is my second attempt to write this. The first time was right after I quit reading X-Men number 12 mid-issue and was mostly filled with my pain shrieking and howling. A few hours to calm down, finish the issue, and listen to the episode, and here's my more civilized attempt. To put it bluntly and harshly, I hate this. I hate all this Arako, ancient mutant race mythology nonsense. The word mutant lost all meaning to me this issue. They might as well be Eternals or Inhumans. It makes me question why Hickman even wanted to take over the X-Men. He so clearly would rather be writing D&D source books for his homebrew fantasy campaign. Not to disparage D&D, I've played the game for around 23 years. This in no way feels like an organic addition to the X-Men lore to me. It feels like story ideas Hickman wanted to use in something and might as well force them into the X-Books. I think it's awful. You know, it's funny you say that. <laughs> I mean, it, I, you, you're cracking me up with this email. When I first read it, I was I was giggling the whole way through because I, I could totally relate to these feelings. 
Um, I remember when we started this, and we went to uh, X-Cubed, right? The X-Men of the Year 1000, or whatever the hell it was. And I said it felt very much like something out of the Legion. And I remember the big rumor a couple of years back, like post-Rebirth, post-DC Rebirth, that Hickman was going to come on and like revitalize the Legion. And he had all these great ideas, these high-concept ideas for the Legion. And it makes me wonder how many of those concepts are being shoehorned into the... Or repurposed, I should say, into the X-Men here. Because you're right. You're right. It, this doesn't feel like an X-Men book. Just like I said during the free comic book day issue. It's like, hey, if you like generic aliens, this is a good book for you. But if you like the X-Men, I'll try, enough, try another book. Because this isn't, this isn't the one. Andrew continues. The fact that this issue was a giant info dump did this no favors. If all this Arako story stuff had been more spread out through the series, like you said yourself, it certainly would have been a better better approach, but I still don't think I'd feel differently about it. The apocalypse nonsense in Excalibur has been spread throughout the entire series, and to me, it's the worst part of a not-so-great book. I dread reading those pages for how aggressively I dislike Apocalypse and his prominence in Hickman's plan. But I agree with you. If this series wasn't wasted on bad one-off stories and actually threaded this Arako crap throughout the issues, I'd still hate it. But it would not have hit me like a ton of crap and probably wouldn't have caused such an extreme reaction from me. Very well said. Very well said. You know, I personally have kind of dug Apocalypse lurking in the background of some of these books. But I totally understand that it, it is weird having Apocalypse as a focal point. And being depicted as a sympathetic character a lot of the times, it's it's very, very bizarre. And I mean, this is coming from a guy who came into the X-Books right around the time of Executioner's Song, where Apocalypse was very much a sympathetic character in, in, in a lot of ways. But I, I totally understand that. And yes, totally, if this, if this Arako lore or whatever the hell it was had been peppered throughout, I, I mean... Me and Reggie would talk a lot about, and, and this is not a fair comparison because we did have the COVID hiatus and we don't know how much that might have upheaved things. But uh, Reggie and I would always talk about earning moments in comics. You know, uh, people don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to pour the foundation, right? Because you have to sit there and you have to make sure it, you have to make sure the foundation is even, you have to make sure it's dry, and then you can start building something that looks like a house or whatever you're going to build. Pouring the foundation is boring, it's unglamorous, and nobody thinks about it unless there's a problem. In comics, nobody wants to pour the foundation. They just want the big story moments. They want the payoffs. They want to do the things that are going to make people go, wow, that's cool. Whether they make sense or not is immaterial. They're going to get their 10 out of 10 ratings anyway. But I feel like the info dump was not earned. I think you can get away with that if you're if you're on point for the entire duration. Then you could do something like this. Again, it's not a one-to-one comparison here. We did have the hiatus this year with COVID. So who's to say that this was just a lesser of several evils, right? Really don't know. I don't know Hickman. I doubt he would take my calls. So <laughs> we will probably never have an answer for that. Andrew continues. This issue really broke me. I don't like it. It also makes clear to me something I can't deny anymore. I don't like Hickman. I've never read any of his work other than Hoxpox and his X-Men series. 
I am not on board for this grand mythology that seems to be his big plan. And except for the Mystique issue, every issue of X-Men just gets worse. So I'm not sure I'll be reading this series going forward. Thankfully, there are books like Cable and Hellions that I think are very good, and I have a lot of fun reading. I'm really dreading X of Tens, though, if it's all about this Araco stuff. A little peek behind the curtain here. Um, X-Men number 12, you said it almost broke you. Uh, you should have seen how long I was, you know, I was sitting in front of a blank Google document trying to figure out how to write my notes for that issue. It wasn't like with X-Factor number 2, which I did not like, but it was very easy to write about because I, I was able to point to the things that I didn't like and I was able to, I guess, mindlessly rant about them. And with X-Men number 12, I didn't even know which direction we were facing most of the time, so it's like, how do you even write about that? And I feel like the internet has this um, weird knee-jerk reaction that if you don't understand something, then it's automatically really, really good. It's genius level. It's not that it's poorly written or poorly paced. It's that you're an idiot and you don't get it. And that's how I feel a lot of the time when I follow books like this. You know, looking at, at X-Men number 12 and trying to figure out how am I going to say anything about this? I don't understand any of this. I very nearly just didn't do it. <laughs> I don't know what I would have done instead. But I was very close to actually putting it aside for a day, maybe releasing another From Claremont to Claremont segment, and uh, giving it another go the following day. But it wouldn't have made it go away, right? So I did force my way through it, and probably read that issue more times than I've read any issue for this entire endeavor to this point. And still probably understand it about half as well as I, as I do any of the other books. So... Yeah, it was a toughie, and I tell you what, after reading that, and after reading the free comic book day special, I was not looking, I was dreading a month of X of Tens, because if this is what it's going to be, it's not for me. But this issue we talked about today, creation, like I said, I came away from it neutral, which is better than coming away from it negative. Uh, I am intrigued, I'm interested in some of the directions here, some of the things are kind of like, eh, but... We're very, very, very early. Now, Andrew wraps up with, So, until we learn about the ancient vampire race that once ruled the world and the thousand-year magical blood war they fought with the ancient mutant race, make my next lapse. You never know. <laughs> we do have... We do got Dracula lurking on the, on, the, uh, on the corners of Wolverine's panel, so you never know. We might find out about that, and... Uh, Boy, I hope we don't. <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing your thoughts here. Even negative thoughts. I mean, they gives us something to talk about. I feel like one of the strengths of this program is the fact that uh, we're all very honest about our feelings about these books here. If we love them, we say it. If we hate them, we say it. We're not guided by, by anything. You know, I, I really think that's a strength of this program, and I, I really, it means a lot to me that people take part and uh, are honest with their feelings about these things instead of just writing to me and saying, hey, it's Hickman's style. Uh, you either get it or you don't. You know, it's you need more than that. But And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to share your thoughts on a very terrible issue. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrew. Next up, Jason Colby with a pre-event check-in. He says, 
As I write, I've finished my reread of all the pre-X of Ten's X books, and have just a few X-lapsed episodes to catch up on. I thought this would be a good time to pause and take stock of where we are. Frankly, the Wave 1 titles have stumbled a bit into the start of this event, and the Wave 2 titles, save one, hashtag foreshadowing, have been what's maintained my interest. Call Me Kate's Big Return in Marauders, after all that build-up, felt perfunctory and lackluster. The new muse, long-awaited assault on the docks office felt more like the first draft of a sermon or a very special episode of Blossom than an issue of a comic periodical. X-Men has been its usual hit-or-miss self. X-Force? Well, I've kind of gotten into X-Force. I read it as a story of Beast. He's a narcissist who almost deserves to think as highly of himself as he does. He deserves a noble cause, but does so ignobly. And uh, Jason says, no, I don't know how to say ignobly either. Sorry about making you say it on a podcast, and I'm sure I butchered it both times. <laughs> it seems clear that all the beasts, all of Beast's plans within plans are due to, due to collapse soon, and likely spectacularly, and almost certainly to his humiliation. Or will he wiggle his way free? Does Krakoan need him more than they need to punish his misdeeds? And then, separately, there's the continuing mystery of Domino's memories. Fascinating stuff. You make a lot of good points there, and I, I agree with most of them here. Um, X-Force, you, you might be a little bit more positive than I am on it, but uh, there are certainly high points to that book. Uh, I do hate the way Beast is being portrayed, but we've said it over and over again. If it does lead to something of a redemption arc, that's fine, right? I mean, he's been portrayed as the, as the evil scientist for a very long time now, like a decade plus now. So to see him get his comeuppance or just... Have his uh, have maybe a, a come to Krakoa moment, <laughs> and uh, and see the error of his ways. I I would be looking forward to that as well. Domino's memory is another another very interesting thing there, and we've had a lot of theories about that as well. I feel like when Percy is able to focus on characters and maybe rein in a little bit of the preciousness, he puts out a real good book. And uh, I mean, X Force has been toward the top of my list a few times uh, of late, which is. Pretty surprising. Jason continues, Anyway, here are my totally unscientific rankings of all the Dawn of X ongoing series, based entirely on how I feel about them as of this particular moment. And Jason has them separated into tiers here, starting with tier number one, the good stuff. One, X-Force. Two, Marauders. Three, Hellions. Four, Cable. These are the books that I rush to read as soon as they come out, because I'll know I want to talk about them immediately. It's not really fair to put Wave 2 titles out of just a few issues in here with Wave 1 titles that have had more time to establish themselves, but hey, this is my list. Well, I really can't argue those choices. I might argue the order of them, but I can't argue that, the, that those are probably the strongest books we've got going so far. Jason continues, Tier 2, the, the you-can-never-tell tier, X-Men. <laughs> this is some of the greatest stories in Dawn of X, including Mystique's barely suppressed rage and the existential maw of the Crucible, and also some of the weakened, weakest. The boring Summers brothers on the moon with a bunch of lushes and some nonsense about a king egg. It's hard to categorize this one. I agree. I agree. Uh, that, that Mystique issue and that Crucible issue, I would probably put those at the maybe the strongest issues that we've gotten so far. Out of all, I mean, what is this, episode 111 So we've looked at 111 books And I would put The Crucible and The Mystique Issue In the top five of those 111 to this point Very strong stuff, but then again 
We've got Petra Sway and Vulcan getting drunk, and we got Brew eating the damn egg, which would be at the very close to the bottom of the 111. So, yeah, you take the good, you take the bad, and like you said, you can never tell with this one. Jason continues, Tier 3, the Just Fine books. They're Wolverine and the New Mutants. He says, yeah, these are okay, about as good as standard current year Marvel. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. I'm with you there. Tier number four, the ones I read just to keep up with my buddy Chris's podcast. Those are Excalibur and X-Factor. And Jason continues, uh, I never need to hear a single thing about Otherworld ever again. Good thing the upcoming uh, crossover event has nothing to do with that realm whatsoever, right? And I have to chew gum when I read X-Factor, because it... (laughs) Okay, let me try that again. And I have to... (laughs) Okay, sorry about that. And I have to chew gum when I read X-Factor. Because it sucks so hard that the resulting drop in air pressure makes my ears pop. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, God. Thank you for that, Jason. (laughs) Jesus. Uh, he continues, oh boy, a few, a few short comments on recent issues before I go. Is the Morlock Healer named Morlock Healer, or is he just Healer and everyone just calls him the Morlock Healer? Doesn't that seem a bit disrespectful? And no, no, everybody does call him Healer, I just call him Morlock Healer, because, uh, I don't know, that's how I qualify him, <laughs> I guess. Jason continues, regarding Theory A, that these aren't really our mutants... I think we have to separate this into two sub-questions. One, does Hickman currently intend that these are not our mutants? And two, will the eventual retcon that leads us out of the Hickman era into whatever comes next involve the Krakoan era as having been some kind of switcheroo? My guesses are no and yes, respectively. I agree. I do agree. I think that, and I think I mentioned this either last episode or the episode before, uh, that... There will probably be some big retcon that is probably not what Hickman had in mind when he pitched this, but it'll just be the only way that Marvel can, like... I don't want to say salvage this, because that implies that this is a bad thing that we're that we're looking at now, and, and it's not. It's just different. But where do you go from here, right? I mean, it's it's a toughie. Uh, either, either the entire Marvel Universe goes to a reboot, or we kind of work this one out. And, uh, yeah, I I definitely agree. I don't think Hickman intends that this is the retcon that's going to happen, but editorial and marketing may, you know, they may dictate, and uh, unfortunately they have the, uh, they've got the last word. So uh, we'll see, we'll see. Uh, Jason continues. I feel bad for the Space Knights. They just keep getting screwed. First, their brains are yanked out of their bodies and shoved into robots. Then, they hibernate for a few thousand years and wind up stuck in a museum. Then, a teenage horn dog lies to them about a time machine and blows their asses to smithereens. It's just not fair. And I agree again. <laughs> it isn't fair to them. Uh, in fairness to treating them unfairly, they are kind of boring. Eh. Now, they're, 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 actually, they're actually more interesting than I found any of the Space Knights lore in any of the times that I ever tried reading it. And it's actually something that's making me wish I had more hours in the day to devote to uh, to reading those ROM comics that are just sitting in a box somewhere in the next room over. But uh, maybe one of these days. We'll see. We'll see. 
Jason continues, At some point you ask for recommendations for a current quality street-level Marvel book. I suggest you take a look at the current run of Daredevil, which I hold to be the strongest, most consistent ongoing at either of the big two. And don't skip the annual, even though the title on its cover will trigger flashbacks of horrible Spider-Man retcons past. And that's funny. I mean, I've, I did I did pose this question not too long ago because I want something that isn't totally obsessed with space and generic aliens. And uh, I've received... A handful of recommendations, and they've all been for Chip Zarsky's Daredevil. So uh, I figure next time I'm at the shop, I am going to grab whatever jumping on point I can get uh, for this recent or this current run of Daredevil. So uh, I'll let everybody know my, my thoughts here, but I am definitely looking forward to it. I, I adored Zarsky's take on a lot of these characters during X Men Fantastic Four. I thought he had a real good grip on these characters, so I look forward to seeing what he does with uh, with what he's doing. I should say with Daredevil, who was a character that was once in my you know can't quit you territory. I, I've got, boy, I probably have like twenty odd years worth of Daredevil comics um, uninterrupted, and it wasn't until the Charles Soule run that came out after uh, well Hickman Secret Wars that. Uh, I finally threw in the towel on uh, on old Hornhead, but uh, before that, I I'd been reading it for years and years and years and years, and never thought I'd stop. And yeah, well, maybe it's time for me to go back. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But I really appreciate the recommendation for sure. Uh, Jason continues. I know you're beyond tired of Quentin Quire dying over and over. However, I've continued to laugh at it each and every time. He's such a smug SOB that seeing him shown to be not so Omega, after all, is always satisfying. And I find his most recent demise at the end of X-Force number 11 to be surprisingly touching. He He has just had his moment of bliss with his lady friend Phoebe and appears to be truly at peace with himself for the first time since I've come to know him. Then a Russian nesting doll pops up, stabs him through the chest, and shoves him through a portal. Yes, Quentin knows he'll be resurrected, but he also knows that the memory of this beautiful moment will not be part of his most recent backup, and thus will be lost forever to his future self. This death matters. Poignant stuff. Excellent point. Excellent point that I didn't even think about. I think uh, with the repetitive deaths here, I think I maybe, maybe I missed the forest for the trees sometimes, and it was just like, oh god, we're doing this again. I didn't stop to think that, yeah, he just had this really cool moment, and uh, he's not, I don't think he's a guy who gets around with the ladies very often, at least as long as we've known him, and here he is with this wonderful, wonderful experience that he'll be forever robbed of now, so it's, uh, that is, that is a loss, so very, very good point, thank you for that. Jason continues, onward to X of Tens. As always, no spoilers for me, but I will tell you that I have one clear favorite issue of this event, and it's an issue that taught me all about one particular character and why I should love him. I look forward to going through this event again with you as my tour guide, and maybe seeing more in it than I did the first time through on my own. So until Amazing Baby takes best in breed at the Westminster Warwolf Show, make mine X-Lapsed. Well, thank you so much for uh, writing in and sharing your thoughts, Jason. It's always a treat. To hear your thoughts and uh, be able to exchange ideas and points of view and stuff, and I always feel like I can see something from a different angle after uh, after reading one of your letters. So thank you so much, and uh, I hope we I hope we do enjoy this uh, X of Tens event. So we will we will see as it goes along here. 
Next up, we got a letter from Nick regarding X Lapsed episode 100. Now, Nick says, Congratulations on the 100 episodes of X Lapsed content. I still haven't read an issue, but the show is still enjoyable. Your Christmas and side series diversions have even been fun at times, but you gotta stop subjecting yourself to the event crossover miniseries. They're bad for your health and sanity. In your intro to episode 100, you said you weren't sure if people looked forward to the episodes or just enjoy them, so I have to confess. I can't say I, quote, look forward to each episode. Your content has been so dependable and of such reliable quality, and the community has been so supportive of your show that I really just expect that there will be an episode in my queue each morning. But reality is, I know it's a lot of work and dedication that you put into each and every episode and piece of show mail. Keep up the great work, keep reading, keep laughing, and keep enjoying your X journey, and I'll keep enjoying the episodes. So until Chris Sheehan catches up with the current Marvel Publishing, or until Hickman is replaced as Head of X, make mine X lapsed. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to write, Nick. I really appreciate it, and I apologize it took me so long to get to this one, because this one went this one went to the other email, because the emails were messed up, and uh, I think you sent this in like three or four days ago. So I apologize that I didn't include it till now, but definitely means a lot to me that you're that you're sticking around and you're not even reading the books. So uh, that's really, really cool. And it means more to me than uh, I can adequately put into words. So thanks again. Thanks again. Uh, We're going to wrap up the mailbag with breaking news from our friend Evan Bevins regarding the great X-Men vote. Now, they're asking fans, that's us, to vote on the final member of the new X-Men team, which means... A, we're getting a new X-Men team, like an actual team, and B, we have a little bit of say in it. Now, Evan, he doesn't spoil things, so he didn't tell me who the already established members are. I don't even know if we know. I'm trying not to do any research on this because I don't want to spoil any of us on it. But Evan did give us the 10 candidates here that we can vote on to inform, in a way, the direction of these books after uh, after X-10s, or I guess a little bit after X-10s. Now, those candidates are Banshee, Polaris, Forge, Boom Boom, Tempo, Cannonball, Sunspot, Strong Guy, Marrow, or Armor. Now, you can vote at Marvel.com starting today, January 27th, and the vote runs until February 2nd, so hey, don't delay, you know? I don't know if you can vote more than once, but hey, it's just cool that we're getting this opportunity to uh, have a little bit of say. I'm not sure how much say, but it's still pretty cool. And uh, I will definitely be voting. And uh, I encourage everyone listening to vote as well. And also, hey, let's uh, write in and talk about who you picked and maybe why. And we can talk about it uh, as we work our way through. And when the results are tallied, we can we can talk about that as well. So I think that's a little bit of fun. And uh, I'm really happy that uh, that Evan let me know about this right as it's happening so we can... Punch our ticket and uh, and vote for our favorites. So thanks again for that, Evan. And those candidates again: Banshee, Polaris, Forge, Boom Boom, Tempo, Cannonball, Sunspot, Strong Guy, Marrow, or Armor. Marvel.com, January 27th through February 2nd. So get them votes in and uh, let me know who you voted for. But I think that'll do it for our mailbag and for this extra-sized X of Swords episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue, on this event, on the X-Men, on anything. <laughs> you can reach out to me. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. 
You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us about X of Swords, Ten of Swords, X of Tens, all that stuff, anything you want, over on Facebook. Our little group is called 90s X-Men. And you can listen to anything you want from the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it. I need another drink of water because I am uh, very much parched. So uh, I will get to doing that. But first, I'd like to thank everyone for sharing their time with me on this fine day. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 112 of x Last, where we are still in the very, very early stages of our X of Tens journey here. We're, uh, oh, we're at chapter two. So yeah, that is pretty early. Two of 22. Uh, today we're talking about X-Factor, volume four, number four, which had a November 2020 cover date. Story is called X of Swords, chapter two, written by Leo Williams with art by Carlos Gomez. Colors, Israel Silva. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Biso White Sabolsky. Cover price, $5. It's a little bit oversized. And this one went on sale September 30th of 2020. Now, I don't usually begin shows by saying, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, you probably should. But today, if you didn't listen to yesterday's episode, you probably should, because we are picking up right from X of Swords creation here. Now, Siren, she emerges back to Krakoa from the external gate, and she lets out a sonic cry for help. She's carrying a wounded Richter, who was uh, shot by an arrow at the end of last issue, and behind her, Angel is carrying a wounded Apocalypse. For what it's worth, Beast is also bouncing around, too. From here, double page spread of creds, then our roll call, and it is another biggie. Siren, Richter, Apocalypse, Rachel, Summers, Rockslide, Polaris, Monet, Saturnine, Charles Xavier, Hope, Tempest, Egg, Proteus, Elixir, Magneto, Emma Frost. Now, the wounded are immediately taken to the healing gardens. Now, Richter seems to have already given up. 
That arrow that he was hit with has been pumping poison into him for a while now. Apocalypse demands that he fight the poison, but, I mean, how would one even begin to do that? I don't know. Polaris, Havoc, Monet, and Eunice emerge from the external gateway next, and Polaris is carrying the remains of Rockslide, who, if you recall, met with a horrible fate at the Blade of the Creepy Summoner. Now, Polaris, she kind of blames herself for this, uh, for not stepping in to save Rockslide before the Summoner cleaved him in two, Uh, She believes that she could have used her powers to stop this from happening. Now, whether or not that's true, your guess is as good as mine. Point remains, Polaris feels guilty. Now, Cecilia Reyes is there to accept the patient. Back in other worlds, Saturnine decides that since, uh, well, she's already said her piece and also set the parameters for the upcoming contest of champions, that there's really no need for the external gate to be open. And so she closes it which really ticks off the island of Krakoa, who begins a rumbling. Cypher tries to settle the island's tea kettle, and I suppose he eventually does, because the the earthquake stops. Next up, an info page all about the floating kingdom of Roma Regina, which is led by Roma. You remember her, right? You know, Siege Perilous, all that stuff. If not, read this page. Back to comics, and Rachel is forcibly plucked out of Polaris' mind by a gigantic Saturnine. You see, she was trying to get a little bit of insight as to what the hell's going on here. If you remember the end of X of Swords creation, Polaris has the skinny on all the stuff, right? The X of Swords, the upcoming contest. She's got all the prophecies locked away in her brain. Saturnine is not, is not willing to let anyone else get involved, especially, you know, a mind reader like Rachel. So it's up to Lorna to solve the who's, what's, where's, when's, and why's of the prophecy. And you know, not for nothing, I'm happy that we're actually focusing on a member of X-Factor in this issue of X-Factor. That's not something we can always count on in crossovers, so this is a good thing. From here, we jump to the healing gardens where Richter is dying. Apocalypse tell the healer to, you know, heal Richter, but the healer refuses, knowing that Julio, once he perishes, will be speedily resurrected. And I'm not sure I care for that attitude. And you know what? Apocalypse doesn't seem to either, because he begins to Darth Vader force choke the healer. Until Rachel pops in to intervene. She, uh, she enters into Apocalypse's mind, and inside Apocalypse's mind, it's as though he's being attacked by his original horseman all over again. He releases the choke on the poor old healer. Next up, info page about the Holy Republic of Fae, ruled by Merlin. Now spelled with an I instead of a Y. He's the father of Roma, and if you'd like to know more about him... Hey, read this page. Next stop, the hatchery. Now, Professor X, he, he's always just sort of like trolling here where the five do their work, isn't he? He's just kind of there. Uh, and, and here he is again. He's approached by Polaris, who asks if there's any resurrection cue protocols as it pertains to, you know, casualties of war. And uh, are these casualties immediately bumped up to the head of the line or what? We don't know. Xavier also doesn't know. I mean... In fairness, this isn't something they've ever had to think about just yet. Which, to me, seems a little bit like an oversight, doesn't it? Uh, you know, starting a nation and not thinking about what might happen should there be an actual international conflict. Or, I suppose, an otherworldly conflict. 
you know, as, as much of as an, as an oversight that that is, I like it because it's a good reminder that these are superheroes and not world leaders. You know, they are very much out of their element in this nation building. Really nice to see that they don't have all the answers. So, the professor gets a gander into Polaris's mind and sees the setup and betrayal of the creepy summoner and the horseman. He informs the five that Richter, who just succumbed in the healing gardens, and Rockslide will be resurrected immediately. As in, within the hour. And I... I didn't know they had that sort of technology. Neither did the five, it seems. They're pretty surprised, too. But they do as they're told. They do the thing. Bada-bing, Richter emerges from his gold ball, and everything seems okay. But then, Rockslide emerges, and everything goes all shades of crazy. Rockslide mumbles a bit. Then the professor is zapped by some cerebronic feedback, which knocks him out. And the five also go down. We get a glimpse at the other four Cerebro cradles. One at the House of M, one at Summer House, one at the Point, and even the one at Mora's No Place, which actually features a cameo from the lady herself, who we haven't seen in ages. Now, all of the Cerebro helmets are going nuts, and the resurrection protocols are thrown offline. Back to the hatchery, something strange is going on with this newly born rock slide. It would appear as though he can't hold his pieces together. He is, you know, built of rock. Uh, Polaris apologizes over and over again. Remember, she blames herself for his passing in the first place. Rockslide manages to pull himself together, sort of. He looks very, very different than he had before. He's much thinner, with just his pieces of rubble just everywhere, and he's got this kind of a spindly rock body at this point. Polaris gives him the once-over and asserts that this isn't Rockslide, or at least the Rockslide that they know. Now, the five, they begin to stir, and they wonder what went wrong. And they immediately assume that it was them that messed up. They goofed up, and maybe they had a tainted bunch, or tainted batch, I should say, of eggs. And so, Elixir is asked to destroy them, and he does. So all the gold balls that are, you know, waiting for bodies or husks or whatever the hell it is, they're gone. Xavier wakes up, and, he's, and suddenly Cerebro comes back online. He sees the remains of the destroyed gold balls, and he just loses it. He demands answers from the Five. Why would they do such a thing? Hope tells him that uh, they done did something weird here, because the rock slide they just brought back both is and isn't the rock slide that we knew. Xavier then turns to Richter, because since rock slide isn't Santo, how can we be sure that Richter is Julio? And it doesn't take Xavier long to realize that Richter is Richter, and, and I mean... How many times have I said the word Richter in the past 15 seconds? Now, the Five tries to think of how this might have happened, and Hope comes up with a theory. But first, an info page. This is a confidential memo regarding this, quote, non-standard resurrection. And it's more or less just a retelling of what we just saw. With an added notice that all resurrection protocols are now suspended until further notice. And it's signed off on by both Hope and Polaris. We jump over to the Quiet Council, where Hope shares her theory with the bigwigs. You see, Richter died, right, in the Healing Gardens, on Krakoa, on Earth. Rockslide, however, died in Otherworld. You dig? You're starting to get there? Now, as Otherworld is a place that can be described as a, quote, convergence of possibilities, it's kind of a roll of the dice to attempt to resurrect someone who died there. Dying there apparently forfeits one's identity, 
And so, while they can be brought back in body, like Rockslide sorta kinda was, it's not a true resurrection in the Dawn of X sense. So Rockslide, the Rockslide that we knew, Santo What's-His-Face, for all intents and purposes, has suffered a permanent death. Now let's stop for a second there. Now our upcoming contest of champions, as far as I know, will be occurring in Otherworld, right? So it would seem that we've finally got ourselves some stakes here. Any X-Men, any of the X-Men who'd perish in the battle, in the contest, will be dying permanent deaths. There are stakes here, and I'm totally on board with that. Someone who can't get on board with that is Emma Frost, who is absolutely beside herself that the X-Men have lost one of their youngest in such a way. She suggests that they call off Saturnine's tournament. Xavier says that really isn't an option at this time. Magneto turns to Polaris to find out how she's doing solving the prophecies that Saturnine dropped into her dome. And Lorna... well, Lorna ain't sure. And so, Magneto berates and humiliates her in front of the entire Quiet Council. He yells at her to do the work. Lorna drops the clump of rock slide that she'd been holding and begins to seize. She then goes into sort of a trance and starts speaking in riddles. The prophecy is coming to her. She comes to and realizes that she dropped the clump of Santo, picks it up, and, humiliated, she runs away. Next up, an info page, and it's another confidential memo. Which is basically a quick and dirty of what we just heard. If one dies in Otherworld, it corrupts their cerebronic... Cerebronic? However I said that, back up. Upon resurrection, you never know what you're gonna get. It's an amalgamation of infinite possibilities. Back to comics, and we're over at the Healing Gardens. Magneto and Xavier are visiting with a recovering apocalypse, and uh, they're kind of giving him the I-told-you-so treatment. Xavier tells that he doomed them all by going outside the council. Magneto is somehow even more blunt with Ensabanoa. He's told that if he succumbs to his injuries, it'll be a while before he's resurrected. Because if you remember, all the gold balls are done busted. We shift scenes over to Polaris, who has just finished building something. But first, an info page, and it's a warning memo not to travel to Otherworld. But it's worded kind of softly. It's worded in such a way where Xavier, or whoever wrote this, is telling the mutants that... He's not telling the mutants that they can't travel there, just that they shouldn't. Which is weird. It's like, hey, if you wind up in Otherworld, try to get home as quick as you can. You figure it would just be like, hey... Don't enter those gates, please. Just don't. But what are you going to do? I guess free will is a thing. Back to comics and back to Polaris's crafting project. It's a stone ring with ten smaller sigil-filled circles around it. It's basically the X of Ten's action figure display playset. Polaris claims that she figured out the prophecy, and this will be where the ten champions of Krakoa will stand. Also, this monument was built out of Rockslide's remains... As so the as you know the prophecy required a sacrifice, and so it will also serve as a permanent memorial to him. We jump to a little bit later, and our first champion steps up. It's the wielder of the soul sword, magic. She stands upon her sigil, and it begins to glow. One out of ten, and we're in like Flynn. We wrap up the issue with an info page and some pretty blatant hints as to who several of the remaining champions are going to be. And I mean, if you've seen any of the promotional information or read the first issue of this event crossover, 
this isn't a surprise. This really isn't a surprise. I mean, we have Ilyana, Cable, Cypher, Storm, Wolverine, a Braddock, maybe two, Gorgon, and Apocalypse. Those are the ones that are hinted to here or alluded to. And that's that. We are now officially one eleventh of the way through this event. Uh, next episode, Exitens, part three of 22. It's going to be Wolverine number six. So, ooh, X-Factor number four. I love this. I really, really enjoyed this. I'm surprised as anybody, but this was a hell of an issue. Ton of great information. The stakes were raised. The art was fantastic. This is this is more like it. This is probably the best issue of X Factor to this point, probably because it had nothing to do with Mojo World. But uh, I really, really dug this. I wasn't, you know, it's been such a long time since I've read a crossover event. And I wasn't, maybe maybe I just forgot how they work, you know? I, maybe I wasn't expecting quite as much uh, cohesiveness as we get here, where, I mean, this is very much the next part of the story. And I, didn't, I don't know what I was expecting. I think, like, the last X-Men crossover I read was, like, a Battle of the Atom, and I think that was a little bit different in its uh, setup. I think the different books... No, 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 I take that back. I take that back. It was the, uh, like, the Blood of Apocalypse is what it was. And uh, I think it was Blood of Apocalypse. It, it was Apocalypse featuring, and it was during the time where, like, Extraordinary X-Men was a thing, all new X-Men, and uh, that weird uncanny volume with the villains in it. And it was basically... It was kind of a, uh, what is it? A Fall of the Mutants sort of uh, crossover where... They were all kind of branded the same thing, but they were doing their own thing. And I didn't know quite what to expect from this. I didn't know if this was going to be a MacGuffin hunt, uh, especially since we're hunting down swords. And it might eventually become a MacGuffin hunt, but I I really wasn't taking what I should be expecting here. Quite pleasantly surprised here. Not only do we get a wonderful, uh, you know, second part to this story, but we also get a whole bunch of great information here. Um... I figure our main takeaway here is obviously the rules to the Resurrection Protocols as it pertains to deaths in Otherworld. It kind of, I mean, it kind of feels like it's a victim of the device, right? In a way where it's like we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner and how do we make these stakes real? So we have to, it's the old Dagwood sandwich theory, right? It's like we already have the, uh, we already have the turkey and the, and the, uh, and the lettuce and the whatever, and now we're throwing like the sliced eggs on there, and we're gonna we're gonna throw the uh, the entire turkey leg on top of it. We're we're layering upon layering upon layering, but it's building on what's been established. So it kind of subverts the usual Dagwood sandwich complaint in that this works, this makes sense, this raises the stakes, and it gives us a reason to to worry. It gives us a reason to invest because. To be completely honest here, we hear about a contest of champions, and it's like, okay, so we'll have magic fight the Anubis-looking one, and if the Anubis-looking one wins, we bring magic back. And then they fight the Anubis one again, and if magic dies again, we bring magic back. It's the uh, it, it's the reason why I could never get into things like the Transformers, because it's just like, okay, the robot dies, build another robot. It doesn't really hold the same sort of stakes as a human or a humanoid character. So here... We know that if magic does die, if she's pitted against the Anubis horseman and is killed, 
well, that's the end, right? That is the end. And, I mean, of course, this is still comic books, so we have to... I think I have to say that by law. I have to... <laughs> I have to make sure that we mention that, yes, this is comics and nothing is forever. But in the context of this era, it's a big deal if someone dies here. Uh, we have Rockslide here who isn't uh, isn't necessarily a legacy character. He's been around for a good 15 years now, but now he's dead. And it's not the same sort of death as we're, that we've been trained to kind of just accept in these Dawn of X books. Which is great. It really subverts our expectations here. As we're wa- as we're watching that scene where the five is doing their thing, I didn't expect there to be any sort of uh, issue. I didn't think that we'd get the story we got, and that's great. That's great because I just figured, okay, they're going to bring them back, and <laughs> we'll just do this again. So getting this information was just really, really cool. Polaris being the point-of-view character made sense in a lot of different ways here. Not only is she one of the featured characters in X-Factor, which is it's really cool to see that they made the effort to have an X-Factor character featured in an X-Factor issue. We've all seen past crossovers where they, they don't really do that sort of thing. I mean, it would be cool if we got... Maybe it wouldn't be so cool if we got the rest of the team here, because I really don't care to see them as often as uh, we did. But... It's cool that they remembered that Polaris is a featured character in X-Factor, and here we are featuring Polaris. I like her feeling guilty um, over Rockslide's death, especially considering that this is the first real death of this era. Uh, Real in quotes, of course, because there is a Rockslide, it's just not our Rockslide, or maybe it is and isn't. We're going to find out more. I'm I'm almost positive we're going to find out more as we go on here, but I liked the... uh, I like the focus on Polaris, her guilt over his death, her thoughts that she could have done something to stop it. We don't know what the summoner's inky black sword is made out of. Is it made out of a metal? Is it made out of a metal that can be manipulated by someone like a Polaris or a Magneto? We don't know. So for all we know, there might have been nothing she could do about it. Or there might have been a lot she could have done about it. It's really... It really it really gives you something to uh, to chew on. And having Polaris kind of uh, guilt-ridden and feeling like she needs to, I don't know, pay penance to, uh, to Rockslide here. I thought that was a really neat little character beat. Her building the, the little you know action figure display was pretty cool, too. And understanding the prophecies... I like the way they went about this because Polaris even draws attention to it herself. She's like, you know, this was all locked into my head until my daddy yelled at me in front of people. And that's what brought it all out. And it really uh, says a lot about the Polaris-Magneto relationship and how awkward it is and how potentially standoffish it is. Because we've spent so many years not knowing whether or not Polaris and Magneto were related and we've, we've had the near misses where it's like, yes, they are. No, they're not. Yes, they are. No, they're not. So they've had a very complicated relationship. And here they are trying to accept the fact that they are, you know, blood relatives here. But Magneto is still Magneto. And he's, you know, he's kind of a dick. So he's yelling at his daughter here. He expects so much. If you remember, the reason she was even on this little excursion to begin with is because Magneto wanted someone from the House of M there to make the House of M look strong. 
And here, in front of all of his peers in the Quiet Council, Polaris can't figure out the prophecy, so he just loses it. And he yells at her, and he humiliates her, and he embarrasses her, and that's what triggers the prophecies to all sort of fall into place. She seizes up and just starts talking. And uh, I thought that was a wonderful scene. A really, really good scene. This... Really, I can't say enough good things about this issue, and it shocks me. Um, I wasn't expecting to be quite this invested quite this soon. And here we are. I mean, maybe it's because we didn't have a whole lot of time in Otherworld, and this really was character-focused. We got to we got to deal with our X-Men characters, who we don't really get the character spotlights that much anymore. There's so much story and so much world-building that... Something like this, which is very much not a Lobdell quiet issue, in comparison kind of is, because we do get to focus on the characters and their interactions and their... just we get to get inside of them. And uh, I thought this was very, very well done, and a sign that uh, any misgivings I might have had about Leia Williams and her writing in the past few issues of X-Factor were, I guess, context-sensitive, right? Because this didn't feel... Like someone was writing, you know, Twitter posts. This felt like an actual comic script, and it was wonderful. It's really, really good. Uh, the art, really, really enjoyed it. It felt more traditional than what we usually get from David Baldion. And while I am coming around to Baldion's style, this felt much more familiar to me. Like this could have been, this could have been a late '90s book from some of the art here, and I really dug that. Just as a as a guy who you know, that's my wheelhouse. So that was cool. It was really neat to see that. I, when I first saw that it was a different artist, I kind of I kind of winced because it's like, oh, man, is this is this going to be like an afterthought issue? You know, I mean, why isn't our regular artist on this? Uh, but this was really, really good, really good stuff. So I'm, you know, I came out of the first issue neutral. You know, I came out of Exoswords creation neutral. Here we are, part two, and I am definitely on an upward trend here. I'm looking forward to more. I uh, just can't wait to can't wait to dig in deeper. Uh, we'll see if my opinion changes once we actually get to Otherworld, which uh, <laughs> you know how I am with Otherworld. But we're gonna enjoy the ride as long as we can, and I am definitely still enjoying it. So, X Factor number four gets the big X lapsed thumbs up for uh, I think that, and five dollars will get you a cup of coffee. At a gas station So that's all I got to say about X-Factor number 4 Let's jump right into the mailbag here We are going to start with Damien Who's talking about Hellions number 4 And that's a an issue I've talked Probably way too much about Over the past few weeks here But let's hear what Damien says about it He says, wow, you really got my little brain Whizzing with your thoughts about life, death And legacy in this episode Madeline Pryor is a fascinating character, and her existential concerns are completely justified within continuity. She's the perfect character to explore themes of free will and determinism. Did she freely love Scott Summers, or was she solely compelled to by Sinister's reprogramming? Did Scott love her, or did she influence him with, her tele- with the telepathy she didn't even know she possessed? The Inferno retcons put a question mark over every element of her life. Absolutely. Absolutely, we don't know She doesn't know, nobody knows Exactly what What her life was Which, I mean, just really Amps up the tragedy of it Damien continues Wells is very cleverly picking up on these questions And I think there's even a metatextual element 
Maddie was a real character with real impact on the story of the X-Men who had to be changed in order to make Cyclops back into a viable character after the launch of X-Factor. If she had remained the woman she had been, then Cyclops was a bad guy and Cyclops had to be a hero. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know... You know, I, I, it's almost got to be out there somewhere what Claremont's original plans for Madeline Pryor were. I wonder if they were always the way they wound up being. Because, uh, I, I mean, of course, she's basically a carbon copy of Jean in, in looks, right? So there had to have been another shoe waiting to drop there. But I wonder if it was going to be something like this. Because at the time of her introduction, I don't think anybody saw Jean coming back anytime soon. I mean, that was before the, uh, the, you know, the Kurt Busiek, uh, you know, Jamaica Bay retcon, right? The Cocoon retcon. Nobody really knew about that yet, and there was no other way to bring her back where she wouldn't be seen as a villain because she had fried the, uh, the asparagus people. So I got to wonder what the original plans might have been, and somebody, somebody's must, somebody must have asked this. I'm going to have to do a little bit of digging to see if I could find some stuff out. If anybody knows, please, please let us know. Uh, Damien continues, What I find most interesting is what is not mentioned. People often talk about your legacy being your children. Those of us who are not parents are often thought of as lesser contributors to society as we are not creating the future. It's notable that Cable is not seen as proof of Madeline's existence. I suppose she might, not, she might see him as more of a product of Sinister's manipulations than of her. Now that is the, like, the main wrinkle in her crisis, right? Because... She did birth baby Nathan. You know, Nathan is a product of her and is a sure sign that she did, in fact, exist. So that is a weird one. Then again, we have Cable calling Jean Grey mom. So, I mean, it's... Has he just uh, disowned his actual birth mother? It's it's very, very weird. Uh, Damien continues... It really is phenomenal that Wells is able to put so much psychological depth into what is ultimately a campy, violent action-adventure story. He really makes me feel for Maddie. I suppose it's logical that the damaged team would fight damaged villains. And I agree 100%. I never, ever expected this to be so deep and so psychological and just so something we could actually chew on. I really thought, and I mean, I've been trying not to, and every time I say... That I'm trying not to, I always just say it anyway I I was trying not to see this as, you know, the X-Men's answer to the Suicide Squad I thought it was going to be just like that And, uh, no, it's not Well, kind of is, but uh, not not completely Uh, Damien continues The ultimate decision by the Quiet Council not to resurrect Maddie is like a knife in my guts The fact that they don't see her as real when all she wanted was to be acknowledged is heartbreaking I have no doubt that Scott argued for her resurrection, but I do wonder how the various council members would have voted. As you say, it's probably best that we don't see their deliberations and have to construct them for ourselves. Masterful storytelling in not showing us that scene. You know, one of the, this is this is one of those times where not seeing a scene makes it more effective than actually, you know, seeing it. Um, I was recently watching. I mean, totally, totally in the weeds here, but I was just watching a discussion, an analysis of uh, Last House on the Left. And uh, for folks who don't know, that's a, you know, an early Wes Craven movie. Um, really twisted stuff from, uh, the, I think, 1971, 1972-ish. 
I did a little bit of research on this when Reggie and I were talking about the video nasties for uh, an episode of the Cosmic Treadmill After Dark, and there's a scene in there where one of the bad guys has a dream, and uh, the dream is that he's laid out on a table, and the uh, the parents of the of the girl who they did stuff to have him strapped down to this table. And the father, I believe he was a dentist, he puts a chisel up to his front teeth and has a mallet. And, you know, the implication is going to knock his teeth out, right? Of course. But they don't show it. They just, they just, they just, you just hear it. You know, you don't see it, which makes it just so much more visceral (laughs) because you don't see it and you can't put, I don't know, you just can't manifest it visually. I think the scene here with the Quiet Council is completely different than that, but in the same sort of vein, where it's like, it's so much more powerful where we have to try to figure out, like, like what did Jean say? You know, this is her clone. What did she say? Does she value it? And, and Jean's died a couple of times since Dawn of X started, and she's in cloned bodies, so is she... What's the difference between a cloned Jean Grey and the clone of Jean Grey? A lot of interesting stuff there, and I'm just so happy we didn't see it, because I think that would have ruined it. So really, really good stuff. Damien continues, The fact that Grey Crow has to wait for the original Marauders to be resurrected does make me wonder how Kid Omega keeps jumping the queue. Do they really think he's vital to to Krakoa? I... (laughs) Well, he's there for the joke, right? We need him every issue to die. Um, I, I, I wonder if the fact that... Kid Omega is an Omega-level mutant. Maybe puts, maybe punches his ticket, makes it a little bit quicker here. I mean, that's my head cannon, uh, and it kind of makes sense. I mean, they need as many Omega-level mutants, you know, trotting around the island as possible. So, stands to reason. And also, you know, I, I heard that Kid Omega is part of the mutant CIA, which probably makes him a little important. Uh, Damien continues. The close of this issue with Nanny threatening Sinister is a great scene. I love seeing things seeded for future stories. It's so Claremontian. I feel like I'm going to be reading this book for years. Post X of Tens, the only books I'm still buying are Marauders and Hellions. Can you believe the man that hated Fallen Angels with so much passion is loving a book featuring Quanon? I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah, me either. Um, I immediately, upon seeing the, the first solicits for Hellions... Or maybe it wasn't the solicits. Maybe it was when they first showed up in my DCBS bin. I I don't remember when I first noticed that Quanon was part of it. But I remember after reading the first issue of Fallen Angels and then seeing that Quanon was on Hellions, I I assumed that Hellions was like the follow-up to Fallen Angels. And I suppose in in a couple of ways it it sort of is. But I was expecting a more direct sort of follow-up where it would be a lot more of the same. So... It's really, really good that it's not. <laughs> now, Damien wraps up with, Anyway, until Quinan has to house train Wildchild, make my next lapsed. And that's a, scene, that, that's a scene I could actually see. So let's keep our fingers crossed that that doesn't happen. But uh, thank you so much for your thoughts on Hellions number four and for, and for adding to the, to the discussion for this one because I think, I think this is, this is an issue that's this is a special issue. This is a special issue that talks about a lot of things that we don't really think about. Um, I, think, I think Hellions, this first arc of Hellions is going to be one of those sleepers that we keep coming back to and keep referring to because 
it subverted so many of our expectations and it made us think and it made us ask a lot of questions, a lot of inconvenient and uncomfortable questions about the setup of the Quiet Council, the setup of the Resurrection Protocols, just the laws of uh, the early laws of Krakoa. I think uh, this is a goodie. This is a goodie. So I really appreciate you adding your thoughts to it, Damien. Uh, next, Andrew Franklin talking about X Factor number three. He says, seems like I like this issue more than most of us. I felt like this one had more meat than last issue, which was really just all set up. This issue's streaming content seemed less offensive, or at least in con- the context in which it was used. Spiral Showcase and Shatterstar's WWF Jamboree seemed less gratuitous. I'm not super excited to spend another issue in the Mojoverse, but I'm not put off the book entirely. I agree. I agree. There was definitely This was definitely... Uh, Less offensive to me <laughs> as, a, uh, as a man in my very early 40s uh, Who doesn't want to see you know, text speak or, or Twitter speak in my, uh, in my comic panels um, The issue number two was, that was a toughie That was a toughie Issue three, I don't know if I was expecting like I, I had really low expectations Or if I was just pleasantly surprised But it was, uh, it was okay, it was okay uh, Andrew continues I really liked the, da- the Dakin Dakin scene this issue. After the last two issues, I was ready to ditch this guy as nothing but William's bisexual joke character. But I was pleasantly surprised to see some actual character work in this issue. You said it yourself, it was really great to see that he was actually trying to further the investigation from the first issue. And I gotta admit, dude is charming. It was also fun that we got a real answer as to why he never wears a shirt. I, I don't think I made mention of... Dakin Dakin's sh- lack of shirtage during that discussion, but uh, it's because he's uh, he's like climactically clim- climat- climatologically perfect. He he's never hot and he's never cold. <laughs> he doesn't need clothes. He always adapts. Uh, but the Dakin Dakin scene was uh, probably the strongest part of that issue. Um, I and you're 100 percent dead on here. He is charming. He is charming here, and he's trying to. Not so much woo Aurora, but I guess in a way woo her because he wants answers. He wants to get something from her. Not what we expect for him to want to get from her, which is, you know, something physical and or uh, superficially romantic, I guess. But uh, actually tied into the X Factor investigation, which we see set her off and she bolted. So uh, made her uncomfortable, but... Uh, any kind of characterization we can give to old Dakin Dakin is, is good by me And uh, very, very strong scene Very strong scene Andrew continues Hearing your indignation over three info pages in a row Made me start to think about them in terms of commercial breaks If three info pages are spaced out throughout the issue Do they seem less intrusive? Would you rather deal with commercial breaks throughout an episode Or watch all the ads in a big chunk before or after the program? I'm clearly overthinking things, but I wonder if they decided to do three pages in the sequence at the end to mirror the way some of the ads are played on YouTube. Thematic, if true. I think we might be giving them a little bit too much credit. I'd like to think that that's why they did it, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes we've seen just big old chunks of info pages here um, throughout these books, and they're just not uh, they're, For me, they are a hurdle uh, Not that they're not interesting Not that they're not well, Some of them aren't But uh, not that they're not vital Though some of them aren't It just feels like a way to Sometimes it just feels like padding 
And in this case, it was just like, here's a lot of information, and we had nowhere else to put it, so here it is, all at once. And for me, that it really turned me off. I started reading it a few times, and I was just like, I can't do it. Can't do it. Noped out. Andrew continues. On the pages themselves, I thought they were more interesting than these pages often are. The first shed some light on Shatterstar's efforts to communicate outside the Mojoverse. It's pretty sad stuff and does make me more curious about his story. The second one is Aurora logging her work, viewing the Mojoverse cable channels. The most interesting bit in here is that Adam X has the fifth most popular stream, where he reacts to watching vids of people being killed. I don't know if that's a joke or a story seed, but I thought it was an interesting thing to include. I think that was probably a joke. Um, to me, Adam X has become that character that X-Men writers like to include as the funny haha and as the, hey, look at this, look at this guy that I know about. Look, look at this character that I know about. He's silly, isn't he? Point and laugh. It's kind of like when uh, when Tom King shoved uh, the protector from the New Teen Titans drug awareness specials into Heroes in Crisis. It was just kind of like a funny haha. It's like, hey, look at the research I did. I, I know that this character exists, and I'm clearly clearly projecting. But to me, when I see something like that and they're treated in a kind of throwaway sort of way, it makes me just, it turns me off and it just makes me question why. And it usually comes down to funny, haha, LOL, random. In my head, anyway. I could be completely off base. Andrew continues. Since this is the last of the Wave 2 number 3s, it's time to put them in the deathmatch ring and smash that like button. Cable definitely gets to win this round, and surprisingly, X-Factor takes the number 2 spot while Hellions places a very respectable 3rd, but has a very high projection for the next round. And as always, I did not read Wolverine. <laughs> well, this is number 3. Wolverine number 3. Did we like that one? No, no, we did not. That was, uh, that was with the, the end of the Pale Girl uh, storyline, which was not fantastic. Wolverine number 4 was decent. Wolverine number three, not so great. Andrew wraps up with, that's all from me, so until the network demands that Cousin X show up to help raise the ratings, make mine X lapsed. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on on an issue that uh, I was kind of wibbly-wobbly on. It's, it's always cool to, to get some other uh, points of view and to, uh, to learn something about something that uh, maybe I didn't pay much attention to, like these info pages here. While I didn't read them, it's cool that uh, it's cool that we get the information as to what happened because I I did not do my job in in sharing that during the episode. So thank you so much, Andrew. Next up, our friend Jesse D. Young here talking about the resurrection protocols and answering some questions that we posed not too long ago. He says, "Good evening, Chris. I hope your move is going well." Oh boy, um, <laughs> not to get too deep into the weeds here. Uh, moving is just. Something I do far too often, and uh, it I hate using the word trigger because it's just one of those things that's so overused to the point of abuse these days where it's meaningless, but uh, moving, for me, uh, triggers a lot of uh, odd emotions and odd sensations, so uh, it hasn't been the easiest thing in the world for me. I, I tend to make things more difficult than they need to be uh, in, in podcasting and real life, apparently, so... Uh, it's been it's been a rough few weeks here. It's been a rough few weeks, and uh, honestly, putting together this program has been a source of escape for me uh, over the past, probably since Christmas. 
Uh, that's when it really started to hit me that uh, that this move was happening and that I'd have to actually do it. So uh, it's been rough, but uh, it's it's all moving along here, and hopefully, hopefully within the next week or so, it'll be it'll be a done deal because we're not moving far. So it's kind of like we're keeping two residences now. So we'll see, we'll see. Hopefully, soon enough, it'll be behind us. Jesse continues. I have just a few things this wintry Utah night before I head to bed. First, I think Explodey Boy reforms himself after he blows up, kinda like Nitro, that villain who pretty much started Civil War. It starts like it sounds like most people think it's a suicide run when he blows up, but it's really just a waiting period until he reforms. This is probably why Beast sends him, because he can jetpack his way into the plant thing, blow it up, and everything will be great. I'm still not a fan of his name, though. I'm sure he could have been known as Boom Boom or Boomer or Meltdown, but I think someone already took those names. Someone who apparently has a co- is a code name hog. Now that's that's a great point here, and I wonder if we'll ever see anything that like corroborates it, right? Like seeing him come back, or is he is he gone? I mean, we I don't know if we see him again. Is a thing. I don't know if he was just the you know the funny haha character for. For the Empire cash-in, or if we're going to see him in the background uh, somewhere down the line. Never know. We never know. Jesse continues. Second, to answer yours and I think Evan's question, no, it's not common knowledge in the Marvel Universe that Marvels can be brought back from the dead. The Avengers don't know because She-Hulk had no idea when Wolverine offed a mutant in the immortal She-Hulk one-shot, and she is an active Avenger. I wouldn't be surprised if the Fantastic Four know because of the reasons you stated about Franklin being on the island, but I don't know for sure if they've said anything since I'm a little behind on Fantastic Four right now. It doesn't sound like the Russians or those cartel guys know anything about it or even Docs. I haven't read anything in the other titles I get, so if they do know, it's not being said. But that would be a big deal to ignore if they did know. Well, that's that's great information here. I wasn't sure because it's just... Like I said uh, during the, uh, I don't remember which episode I discussed the, or I posed this question in. I didn't know that Professor X wasn't a uh, outed mutant when Morrison outed him as a mutant. I, I it seemed like one of those things that I just figured everybody knew. So I don't know. I guess that's just the dissonance between what the reader knows and what the world inside the books know. You know, but if that's the case, that makes perfect sense as to why Wanda would. You know, try to raise the dead Because she doesn't know that the the X-Men could do that So that's one complaint About X-Men Empire colon X-Men that I can actually Scrape off the list here Uh, Jesse continues Third, yes, please continue on Juggernaut The story is not written for a college professor to crack, and the art is pretty good. I've always liked Garney, and this new direction and style that he did in his Daredevil run has grown on me. It's a nice cleansing from the heavy matter in the actual X titles. So yeah, please continue with the series after multiplication of swords. And yes, I think we will. I think we will, because I did enjoy it. Uh, And like you said here, it's just a nice palate cleanser. You know, Uh, it's not heavy. It's not trying to be anything it's not. It's just... It's a nice redemption story At least that's what I'm getting from it now Is that it's a redemption story for the Juggernaut He's clearly changed his um, his point of view Since being you know lost in limbo And uh, I you know I have a lot of questions Like how did he get his uh, How did he get his new armor Because we know he's in new armor Does he still have the Gemma Sidorak? How did he get it back I think we're going to get those answers during that miniseries And you know, it's it's tangentially related enough to our Dawn of X books or whatever was it 
what is it, Reign of X? Whatever the hell it's going to be after uh, X of Tens here. So I think we can do that. I think we could do that as a nice palate cleanse. We'll pepper them in after uh, Multiplication of Swords wraps up. And Jesse wraps up with, Congrats on five years with Chris's on Infinite Earths. And until you start putting milk on your cereal, make mine X last. <laughs> you remembered. You remembered. I, I, don't, I don't have cereal with milk. I, I think that that's probably one of the more vile things in the world. And that probably stems from my childhood. And uh, I want to say seeing uh, fruity pebbles like cemented to a bowl made me want to retch. And so I, I, I always eat my cereal dry. And I probably mentioned that on an episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths ages ago. So it's <laughs> pretty wild to see a reference to it. But thank you so, so much, Jesse. That made me uh, laugh more than I was expecting to when I, when I first saw the message. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a, a letter from our friend Evan Bevins talking about more Empire. This is going to be X-Men number 11. He says, I'm glad you liked X-Men number 11. I thought it was a very good issue, and it delivered exactly what I want from a company-wide crossover issue. A solid story that advances the ongoing themes in the book without requiring you to read or know anything about the event. I can think of a few times I've dropped a series I'd been collecting because to follow the story would have required me to buy several additional titles. I know marketing more than storytelling drives a lot of these strategies, but it usually makes me buy less, not more. You don't have to read X-Men 11 to understand Empire, but it does add something. With the Cliff Notes details on Empire in the issue, you don't have to read any other Empire material for the issue to work, but you certainly can if you want to know more. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was a shock when we read X-Men Volume 5, Number 11, and saw that it was both an X, X of Swords and Empire tie-in. It was like, whoa, that's, that's a, uh, a, weird, a weird combination there. But it was really good. And as I mentioned during that discussion, I think that should have been the only uh, you know, a Empire tie-in the X-Men suffered or put us through. Because the limited series was not great. X-Men number 10 with Vulcan uh, and his friends getting drunk on the moon was not great. But X-Men number 11 was really, really good. It was really good, and it was everything it needed to be. It was everything the entire Empire X-Men connection ever needed to be. It was really good. Really, really good. Evan continues, As for Exodus, I wonder if Nightcrawler realizes how far behind he is on creating a mutant religion. At this rate, Kurt's followers may have to be ex-Protestants. <laughs> Exodus does seem sinister in his work with the youth. But as much as I've been surprised by Professor X and company seeming to compromise by accepting all these villains into the fold, I suppose the opposite could be true. Perhaps being given a clean slate and working alongside heroes is giving Magneto, Exodus, and even Apocalypse a chance to be better, to advance the nobler aspects of their causes. They can be pulled up, even as we think the X-Men are being pulled down. Totally true. Totally true here. Um, I really enjoyed the Exodus scenes here. Um, I think Exodus is really coming coming into his own as a character here, where I don't know that I ever looked at him as being 100% evil. Even back in the day, I think he... Did he show up during... I think he showed up early in Fatal Attractions. Um, I think he... I want to say it was the X-Factor issue of Fatal Attractions where he was looking for Quicksilver, who was at that point still Magneto's son. But I never saw him as 100% evil. And then we saw him in the Age of Apocalypse where he was an X-Man, 
right? So I, I've always had a, a, a weird fondness for Exodus. So seeing him here in this role, I talked about the slippery slope in that issue, I believe, because everything he's saying here, it's being presented to the reader as though he's indoctrinating the youth, right? He, he does, like you said here, he does seem sinister in the work here, but he's not saying anything false. He's not lying. He's not even exaggerating. He's basically giving a dry recap of what the mutants have had to deal with. And it's, uh, it's really interesting here. The juxtaposition of the, of the sinister and agenda-driven sort of presentation, while all he's doing is saying the truth. He basically, you know, he could be pulling out volumes of the essential X-Men from, you know, anywhere from the 60s to today, reading from it and being like, yeah, this is actually what happened. But the, it's all in the presentation, and it's very, very interesting. I, I'm really, really digging the, uh, the Exodus take here. Now, Evan continues with, Also, kudos to the summoner for being so creepy that Magneto's naked meditation session barely registered on the weirdness scale. And Rockslide probably owes the Kotati a thank you from sa- for saving him from a game of Araku Jumanji. And yeah, you know... I didn't even consider. I know I mentioned Magneto being naked, but I didn't. Men, I didn't even think of it as being weird, because everything else was so weird. So yeah, <laughs> good job, Summoner, for being such a damn creep. And uh, by now we we know poor Rockslide's fate here. Uh, maybe being sucked into a Jumanji game would have been preferable to being cut in half by the the same fellow he was playing against. But uh, I guess time will tell on that uh, on that account there. But. Thank you so, so much for sharing your thoughts on uh, that surprisingly good issue of X-Men. Which sucks to say that an issue of X-Men is surprisingly good, but this is the world we're in now. But uh, that will do it for the mailbag this time out. If anybody would like to get involved with the conversation, please, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can check out blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us about whatever you want over on uh, Facebook. That's the word, Facebook. 90s X-Men is our little group. And you can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And also, hey, we can vote for the last member of the new X-Men team over at Marvel.com from now until February 2nd. And we talked about that a little bit last episode, but just go to Marvel.com. There should be a link right there on top of the page where we can vote and see who the final member of the first X-Men team of the Dawn of X world (laughs) is going to be. We get a say in it, and uh, I definitely encourage you all to vote. And... Even, you know, let me know who you voted for or who you didn't vote for, and we can talk about it here on the show. So marvel.com, wherever it is there. I'll try to remember to link to it in the show notes, but uh, uh, that usually only works about 20% of the time because I usually forget. But marvel.com, go there. Uh, That'll do it for this episode here. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me and for sticking around long enough for us to get into X of Tens here. It really, really means the world to me. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 113 of X Lapsed, where we are still doing the X of Tens thing. And, uh, you know, after last episode, I am full of optimism, right? I, I loved that issue of X Factor. I thought it was a fantastic chapter, a fantastic installment in the, uh, in the X of Swords story. I wonder if there's anything that could bring me back down to Earth. Well, um, we're going to be talking about Wolverine today, so there's a, uh, there's a pretty good possibility that's going to happen here. Uh, let's get right into it here, because this is uh, another one of those by the skin of my teeth episodes here. We are almost through with the move, but uh, we still got a few days left, so it's, it's you know, the, the, the time is a premium even more so than usual. So I'll, I'll stop talking, and, and I'll start talking about the book. Wolverine Volume 7, Number 6, had a December 2020 cover date. The story is called X of Swords, Chapter 03. Written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Victor Bogdanovic. Colors Matthew Wilson, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, we got a bunch. Amaro, Robinson, Basso, White, and Sobolski. Cover price $3.99. This one went on sale October 7th of 2020. And we open... In hell, hmm. where I suppose if the trio of unbreakable razor-sharp adamantium claws emerging from the lava are any indication, is where Wolverine currently is. Hmm. Well, to uh, paraphrase our opening theme song, well, how did we get here? Well, we flash back to Wolverine chatting up Krakoa, who is being depicted as a face on a tree. Wolverine suggests that maybe he ought not trust the mutant island, and, uh, well, you see, he's got a pretty good argument to that end. If you recall, Krakoa very much wanted that external gate to remain open, and he threw kind of a fit when it was closed, right? Which, uh, one might suggest means Krakoa wanted this war with the Amanthi or the whoever they are. And, you know, that's definitely a possibility, isn't it? And I tell you what, that revelation right there is the high point of the entire issue. Um, Wolverine declares that he will track down the Muramasa and do the thing in Otherworld. 
Double page spread of creds followed by our roll call, and it's a very, very short roll call in comparison to the other two chapters of Exoswords. We got Wolverine, we got Pestilence, the bulb-headed horseman, and War, the firestorm-looking horseman. Now, Wolverine flashes back to his first meeting with Muramasa, the swordsman, not his namesake, Blade. Well, well both, I guess, because Muramasa, the man, forged Muramasa the sword for Wolverine to wield back in the long ago. But where's the sword now? Well, I don't know. Neither does Wolverine. We next join our hero at the quarry, where he seeks to question the Silver Samurai about the whereabouts of the blade. Now, if you remember, we did see Silver Samurai. He runs like a fighting contest at the quarry. We saw him back in Cable Number 1, where uh, the kid actually bested Logan in arena combat. Now, the samurai ain't too keen on chatting up the man here. Uh, in fact, he's a bit perturbed that per Polaris's ranting and you know, prophesying that he, the Silver Samurai himself, wasn't the prophesied champion of the Muramasa. And so, Wolverine and the Silver Samurai fight. Wolverine handily beats the samurai and gets him to share some rumors about the location of the blade. We shift scenes over to Arako, where War and Pestilence are drafting their hopeful Muramasa champion. Now, if you recall from Exosword's creation, both sides in this conflict named the Muramasa as one of their ten blades. Now, who they choose is a charming weirdo who had been locked up for a century and a season. He refers to his time in captivity as a vacation, and, uh, which kind of proves that he is a weirdo. And he kind of looks like someone that you'd see in one of the Dark Knight's metal series over at DC. He's got a very, very DC look. Now, he agrees to seek out the Muramasa and fight for the horseman. Info page, and it's all about that charming weirdo. His name is Solemn, and it just talks of his charm and weirdness and uh, his trial. What got him, you know, in captivity in the first place. We shift back to Wolverine a little while ago, and he's in Tokyo, hot on the trail of the Muramasa. Or so he thinks, he hopes. He chats up some old friends as well as some old enemies, and he finally gets a bead on the blade. And we follow him to a castle in the mountains. He seems to know that there's another, darker force at play here who with designs on the Muramasa. And I feel like I've said Muramasa like 700 times, and I'm not done yet. Info page, rumors of the sword, including one from a literal crow. Caw, 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 beast. Cack, 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 beast. I hope you're taking notes. Now we shift scenes to now, and we're back in hell. Wolverine's skeleton emerges from the lava, drags itself to the solid hellish ground, and finds himself at the foot of Muramasa the Swordsman. Okay, then. Uh, we wrap up the issue with an info page about the Crooked Market market and Mad Jim Jaspers, and, well, that's a wrap. Next episode, Exit Tens Part 4, will occur in X-Force number 13, but, well, I guess we should talk about this, shouldn't we? Well, this was uh, pretty much what I expected going in, for better or worse. Mostly worse. <laughs> um... This is a solo book, right? It's sometimes hard for a solo book to play with team books uh, as, it, as it pertains to, you know, flowing through a... Uh, just a straightforward narrative because we are going to be breaking things off here. I mean, that's just part of... Uh, part of the poison of this miniseries is that 
We got MacGuffins to hunt. We've got a lot of books that are involved in this, and we got, uh, well, yeah, we got a lot of MacGuffins to hunt. So we're going to be seeing some hunts, I'm guessing. This one, well, it, it did something. Um, what it did, I'm not sure. I don't know how Wolverine got to hell. Uh, I don't know that uh, I'm all that interested in finding out how Wolverine got to hell. I don't know if we'll hear about this again, or if we're going to have to wait for the next issue of Wolverine, which really, I don't know, I, I remember last episode, remember how happy I was <laughs> when, I, when we read Exosode's creation right into X-Factor, and it was just one straightforward story. It leaked right into it, right? Exosword's creation ended, and boom! X-Factor number four picked up right where they left off. Here, it doesn't do that. And I'm imagining that uh, the next issue of Wolverine that's involved in this will just follow this one and not whatever book preceded it in the chapter listing. I understand that. I do get that. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe my expectations were a little bit higher after that. Wonderful issue of X-Factor where, uh, where everything just felt like it was flowing And here we are hitting a speed bump And Wolverine is on these two different planes One he's in hell, one he's in Tokyo It's... I don't know Now that's not to say that this is a bad issue Because it wasn't There were a few very, very strong parts of this issue um, I really appreciated the battle Between the Silver Samurai and Wolverine here I like how Silver Samurai is jealous that Wolverine was named in Polaris's uh, prophecy as the wielder of the Muramasa, where Samurai thought it should have been him. I thought that was pretty cool, because I don't know that we'll see that anywhere else in this series, where someone who wasn't chosen would really have preferred to be, or have been chosen, right? This seems like a... This seems like one of those uh, monkey paw lotteries, right? Where it's just like, hey, I got picked, I'm special And it's like, well, yeah, but you might die <laughs> You know, or you're, you're very likely going to come out of this completely different So it's kind of an interesting take here That the Silver Samurai would, uh, feels like he was, uh, you know, passed over for Logan And I mean, hey, everybody's passed over for Logan That's just kind of how it goes If you're in a book with Wolverine in it, people ain't looking at you More often than not um, the other thing that was pretty strong about this issue was the assertion that Krakoa, the island, uh, knew that this conflict was brewing and is very much in favor of it. I never thought of that. Uh, we saw that Krakoa wanted, he accepted and wanted the external gate. That's been established over the past couple of issues. Uh, in X-Factor, when Saturnine closed the portal... Krakoa was quite annoyed and, you know, caused a little earthquake Didn't really think much about it back then I didn't consider that the island itself had a motive And we have seen that way back in X-Men number 2 We saw that Krakoa is drawn to the other parts of, you know, the formerly Was it Okara, the single singular island before it was split? When we saw the the creepy summoner's little peak, you know, they they did the weird little island mambo thing, and two became one, right? Well, maybe this is another case of that, where Krakoa knows what uh, what lies beyond the external gate, but wants to be whole again. I don't think Krakoa really cares who occupies him. 
If it's the X-Men, that's fine. If it's the Horsemen, whatever. Just as long as Krakoa could be whole again. I think that's pretty interesting food for thought, and uh, something that I hadn't thought about until Wolverine actually spelled it out for us. So that is probably my main takeaway from this issue, and uh, honestly, it's probably what saved it for me. Because the search for the sword, I, I don't care. I'm sorry. Uh, meeting the uh, meeting Solemn over in Araco, eh, you know, he's charming, he's weird, but he's also in Araco. So, I mean, that's not... That's been the weakest part of all of these lead-up issues to me, is the basically the environment that we're going to be spending most of our time in, I think. Um, you know me, I'm not a fan of Otherworld. I really don't care about this uh, this mystical, weird uh, Krakoan lore. But, I mean, we, we take the good with the bad, I guess. And hopefully, you know, hopefully it'll lead somewhere uh, at least somewhat satisfying. But this one, I hate to say, was not nearly as strong as X-Factor number four. Um, it wasn't as strong as Exosote's creation. This was... To this point, the weakest chapter, but I'll hand it. Uh, I'll hand it something. It, it's it's doing the thing that I usually complain that books don't do, and it's it's laying some foundation. But really, there just uh, isn't a whole heck of a lot more to say about it. Don't know how Wolverine got to hell. We know that there's some sort of a portal, so uh, maybe we'll find out more as we go. But uh, that was Wolverine Volume Whatever Number Six, and. Uh, before we head out of here, let's hop into the mailbag here because we got some great letters. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Marauders number 12. He says, It's really interesting when we disagree on an issue. It makes me wonder if you read Excalibur 24 way back in 1990. Since that issue, I've been waiting for Kitty to be presented as bisexual, so this issue feels like a culmination of 30 years of waiting. This means Marauders number 12 takes on an almost talismanic significance. Talismanic? Yeah, I think that's the word. Significance for me. I was 15 and closeted when I read that issue, which featured Kitty being seduced by a woman on her 15th birthday. Looking back with adult eyes, it's pretty creepy, but at the time, it was thrilling. The scenes that Duggan wrote with Ilyana and Rachel, and then the kiss, have made the, the subtext into text. The day I read this, I went online and sent thank you messages to Jerry Duggan and Jordan White. This is so much. This has so much personal significance that I can't really judge it objectively as a comic. And I mean, those are great points. Those are really good points here. I, I know I must have read Excalibur number twenty-four. I couldn't tell you when, but certainly that did not have the same level of significance for me. And perhaps it's a sign of how just how dense I am. I didn't pick up on any of that subtext here either. Um, I didn't see this as any sort of. Uh, Statement on on Kitty's sexuality. I mean, it must just be me because I've heard other people say it too about this issue, and I, I'm sorry, I missed that. I totally missed that. I can't say what I thought it was because I don't know what I thought it was, but I didn't, I didn't see it as like an overt statement. Um, I don't know. Damien continues. What I loved most is the fact that the resurrected Kitty has frizzy hair and a star of David. She's reclaiming her true self, and while she is repeating the behaviors of Marauders number two, it's with more control and focus. I'd still prefer that she didn't get a tattoo, but I feel like the same behavior has a different meaning. In issue two, it was about a loss of control and putting on a persona, whereas in issue 12, it reflects acceptance of who she is and determination. More good points. More good points indeed. Again, I didn't see any of that. I 
and I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, I saw a lot of Kitty's behavior, and not just in this issue, but throughout the Marauders run here, as just being like an edgy kid. Just feels like she's being like provocative, and uh, I don't know if it's attention seeking, but that's that's my projection of it. And uh, you know, I'm probably completely wrong, but uh, that's kind of the gist of what I see when you know Kitty's going out and getting tattoos and stuff. You know, it's eh, you know, I I, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, Damien continues. I think I've proved that half of what we get out of our comics is what we bring to the book. On to other elements of the story. I like the way that the anecdote about Kitty rejecting Storm because of a haircut is repeated continuously. It gives an authentic feeling of a found family teasing each other. I know my friends and family tease me about stupid things I said and did as a teenager. It makes it more real. Another good point. Another good point here. I know that, you know, when I'm with my family a handful times of the year, we, uh, we're always saying, telling the same stories. And it's always, it's like that weird... It's like that weird thing where you like pretend you haven't heard the story a million times and you don't call anybody out on being repetitive and you just take it, <laughs> you know? Uh, with me, and, and this is this is a Chris problem here, I, I see anecdotes like that as a writer putting their thumb on the paper saying, look, I'm a real fan, look, I'm a real fan, look, I'm a real fan, look at the trivia I know. Because we've seen it so often. We've seen it so often with creators who... Who will tweet out pictures of a stack of books about the new character they're writing Saying that they're doing their homework Because they'll only read those books when they're being paid to Bendis Oh, uh, that's how I look at that kind of thing I I look at that as more of a See, I'm a real fan too And not a This is a family Who just tells the same stories over and over again Again, Chris Problems Uh, Damien continues I love the way Duggan frames Storm's call and response with Kitty as personal rather than religious. It has a very different feeling to how it was presented in Hoxpox. Storm is Storm, not an automaton. In conclusion, this was my favorite comic of 2021, and it will be one of those that resonates with me for years. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts, Damien, and I'm so happy that you did enjoy that issue so much. It's funny, as I was putting my notes together for it, uh, you were forefront, foremost in my mind, because uh, because of you. You prepared me for this issue. You said it was your favorite, one of your favorites, and I felt so bad uh, disagreeing. <laughs> I felt really, really bad, and I just uh, didn't know. I-, I wasn't sure how to go about doing it because <laughs> I knew how much this issue meant to you. And while it wasn't a bad issue in my opinion, it certainly didn't have the same meaning. And that goes to your other point there. You know, we do bring certain things with us uh, when we when we when we find a book that does speak to us. A lot of that, I think, is what we bring to it ourselves. Um, I've got several that are like that as well. I've got I've got stories that'll that are pretty benign that'll just bring me to tears, and uh, you know, comic book stories. And so, I know a lot of my reaction is. Predicated on what I'm bringing to the book with me So I, I totally understand uh, where you're coming from there And uh, I, I definitely appreciate that we can disagree and still and still be pals, you know So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts here Your very personal thoughts about this issue Next up, Evan Bevan's talk in Deadpool number 6 He says, after reading Deadpool number 6 I have to agree that Jeff 
the land shark and not Explody Boy may be the sensational character find of 2020. Well, yes, yes, indeed. I, I would go as far as to say that Jeff the land shark is probably the sensational character find of the entire 2020 decade, even though we're only a year into it, because I don't think we're going to beat him anytime soon. Uh, Evan continues. Remember when you mentioned that the name Explody Boy seemed to indicate a bit of dated humor? What if Explody Boy was named because that humor would have been timely and cutting edge during the Morrison era, which is when Explody Boy would have died? I admit I didn't I did not research the chrono- chronology of adding extra e humor because frankly I think we can all agree I've already spent way too much time thinking about this. That's a good po- that's a good possibility, but I, I I almost feel like we're giving the creators a little too much meta credit <laughs> to do that. I don't think uh I think this was just a funny haha, but I definitely I, I I would give you a no prize if I had him, because uh, that is as good a uh, a theory as any as to why he has such a silly name. But uh, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Evan. Uh, next up, Pat Sampson talking about Exoswords Creation Number One. Now Pat says, with this issue, I've started to read along with the podcast. I've listened to all the episodes up to this one, and have been learning about the current X Men through you and the podcast. You got me hooked to read along with you. I hope to write more with my thoughts to be a part of the great group of listener feedback on this podcast. I look forward to hearing you read everyone's letters and thoughts each episode. And it's funny. Um, that was something I didn't plan on ever doing. I mean, it's like my favorite part of the show. My favorite part of this entire project is is the feedback, is the mailbag, and talking mostly, you know, just out my backside about my ex-fandom and just... Exchanging ideas and theories and just swapping stories, you know, this is a book club, a a bunch of friends working our way through these books. So I I do love the mailbag so much, and it really wasn't something I was going to do when I first started this up. I'm notoriously awful about, uh, it's funny, I complain about not getting engagement, but when I get engagement, I'm really bad about responding to it. I'm really, really awful about that. But when I started X-Lapsed and just immediately started getting feedback, I was like, and, and it was such great feedback in that it added so much to the show because, I mean, as the name of the show might suggest, I was a lapsed X-Men fan. And so I was counting on other people to help me out. And so when people actually were, it kind of blew me away. And I knew I had to include some of this, you know, amazing content that was being handed to me. Just people giving me their thoughts and sharing their ideas and filling me in on some blanks here. And we're actually going to fill in another blank in the next letter here, too. I had to include them. I had to include them because I think that it makes this show, this experience, just so much richer. And it's more than just me. It's, you know, I consider everyone, everyone who takes part in this to be... You know, an equal partner in this in this little endeavor, and I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it, and I look forward to it every single day. When I wake up in the morning and check the Weird Comics History email box, and if there's like three or four letters in there, I'm over the moon. I'm absolutely over the moon, and I just chomping at the bit to uh, to get into them. So thank you, thank you all for that. Pat continues. I'm with you on the neutral feel for this issue, and this is, of course, Exosword's creation, which I think is a good place to start off this event at. 
Will there be ups and downs in the next 21 issues? Probably, but I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out. Keep up the great work on this podcast. It's a must-listen for me each day. And until we find out what else A's kids got them for Father's Day, make mine X lapsed. Well, thank you, Pat. And it's so cool that you're you're you know reading along now. I, I really I can't wait to hear your thoughts. And uh, you're right, neutral is a good place to start, right? It's it's maybe not as good as being really jazzed, but it's a lot better than being you know dreading it, which is kind of where I was going into it. But uh, thank you again, Pat. I, I look forward to many more missives. So thank you so so much. Uh, finally, our last message today is from our friend Andrew Franklin regarding a question I asked about Madeline Pryor and Chris Claremont's original plans for her. Like, was she always meant to be a clone, or is this just a uncanny coincidence that she looks so much like the woman that Scott just lost? And Andrew says, Claremont's plan with Maddie and Scott was just to have them live a normal married life. It's well known that Jean wasn't supposed to die at the end of Dark Phoenix Saga, so Claremont created Madeline Pryor as a way to have Scott end up with a knockoff of Jean. It seems like a strange move, but I really feel that Claremont felt bad for Scott and thought he was doing something nice for him. Scott would leave the X-Men and be semi-retired as Claremont's vision for the team, whose roster would change over time. He was very much against the X-Factor idea and had to be talked down from quitting slash blowing up at Jim Shooter and being fired. The subsequent Madeline story of being a clone was all made after that. And that's what I thought. That's what I thought. I've, I know I've read the, uh, oh, what was it? The Phoenix, the Untold Story. That one shot that came out probably in the mid-80s, I'd assume. Probably the early 80s, now that I think about it. But I remember they had the unpublished pages there of uh, what was originally going to start, what would it have been, X-Men 138? Where we have, like, a Gene... A depowered Jean, like, looking into a pond with Scott standing behind her or something like that. And I do believe that the original plan was that they were just going to leave. You know, they were going to leave the X-Men and let the uh, let the all-new, all-difference take care of things from that up that point on. Because Scott, you know, as you mentioned, did leave in that Elegy issue, or which was the actual Uncanny X-Men, or X-Men, I guess, still 138. So that does make a whole lot of sense, uh, that uh, Claremont thought he was doing his pal Scott a solid and giving him giving him the happy ending that he'd, uh, he'd earned throughout his years of service. So thank you for filling us in there, Andrew, and thank you for saving me the time of digging through piles of comics journals and amazing heroes looking for... You know, one sentence <laughs> that could tell us anything. Uh, especially since, you know, like I mentioned, I'm in the middle of a move and all my stuff is in boxes. And I don't know how much longer they'll be in boxes, but it'll probably be a little while before I start getting them out of boxes. So thank you for helping me out there and answering that question for us. But that's where we'll leave the mailbag for today. If anybody would like to take part in the conversation, please feel free to reach out to me. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join in the conversation on Facebook. Our little group is 90SXMen, 90SXMen. And you can listen to a whole bunch of comics audio at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can also vote for the uh, last member of the new X-Men team at marvel.com slash something or another. I'm sure there's a link to it on the front page there. So, uh, yeah, vote. And maybe let your buddy Chris know who you voted for so we can talk about it in future episodes. But uh, 
That'll do it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me. And till next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 114 of x And, uh, I'm tired. I'm very, very tired today. But, uh, we got books to talk about, or a book to talk about, so we, uh, we probably ought to do the thing, huh? Let's do the thing. We are talking about X-Force, volume 6, number 13. That's had a December 2020 cover date. The story is called X of Swords, chapter 04. Written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Victor Bogdanovic. Colors Matthew Wilson, letters VCs Joe Caramagna, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Basso White Sobolski, not Bisa, Basso, and cover price $3.99. This one went on sale October 7th of 2020. So we're, uh, we're sticking with the uh, Percy corner of the X universe for this, so I guess it'll be a straight continuation from last chapter's Wolverine issue, which, hey, you know, that's not a bad thing because, uh, I think this would look very, very PC had it not gone this way, but is it a good thing overall? Well, we're about to find out. Now, we open with a quote page, courtesy of the Silver Samurai, because, uh, I mean, let's be honest, who wouldn't want to hear a few words out of this guy, right? Certainly, there are, there are worse people to waste an entire page on, aren't there? Maybe not. The comic content begins in Tokyo, a little while ago. If you remember, we are jumping between two points in time here. Here, Wolverine is looking for the Muramasa, and after checking in with all of the friends and enemies he's known in Japan, he's guided toward that castle. We saw that all last chapter, which really makes this feel like a worst-of-both-world situation, right? This issue is both decompressed and full of recaps, you know? I, I figure when we became too cool for recaps and went straight to de- decompression, I didn't think we'd get both. But here we are, we're getting both. This must read so strange in the collected edition. I couldn't imagine, because just a couple pages ago, you were seeing this. It's weird. 
Anyway, suddenly Logan is attacked by the hand. Get a double-page spread of creds followed by our roll call. We're going to be focusing on Wolverine, Solemn, and Muramasa. Now, Wolverine fights the hand, and he's shocked to see that they're not quite what they seem. He slices one of their masks off, which reveals nothing more than a skull with glowing eye holes. Now, Wolverine wonders what Muramasa must have gotten himself into. Then, we get a bit of narration from Muramasa, easy for me to say, the man himself. Now, he agreed to build an arsenal for the hand under threat. You see, the hand claimed they would destroy his village if he declined, and so, what's a guy to do? Wolverine is then run through by a blade, falls through a portal to hell, and plops into that pool of lava we found him in last issue. Really, such a weird use of this, like, now-and-then device. It really doesn't work for me here. Um, It almost seems like they realize that this really isn't all that interesting a beat in this story, and decided to employ the time-jump gimmick as a way to make it, like, feel more interesting than it actually was? It didn't work. It didn't work at all. Anyway, Wolverine drops into the lava, and we've already seen this. He drags himself out, and we already saw this. And again, we already saw this, too. He's at the foot of Muramasa, the swordsman working at the forge. Now, Muramasa claims that the intense heat of hell makes for the greatest forge in the universe, capable of crafting the keenest blades imaginable. And so he clings and clangs on the blade with haste, because he has a pressing engagement to attend, and it is a ceremony. Now, we're just going to assume that Wolverine, or his skeleton at least, just passes out here. Because we jump ahead in time to later, where he's laid out in a hellhole cell. He's being looked over by that charming weirdo we met last issue, Solemn. Now, he wants to watch Wolverine's healing process. And also bathe us in exposition. Now, he's been tasked with finding the Muramasa, yes? Well, then, to paraphrase our intro... How did he get here? Well, he was given the nudge to hell by an oracle of Arako. He exchanged the severed head of the oracle's traitorous sister for the deets. Now, he was told that the blade is in hell, and also that the sword he currently wields, the appropriately named Hellblade, can serve as a key to hell. Well, it doesn't get a whole lot more convenient than that, does it? Uh, he, he's got a couple of options here. He can either kill himself with the blade and wind up in hell, or he can just use it as a key and like actually kind of just open his way to hell. So, bada-bing, dude's in hell. And he's going to use Logan as his guide to the blade. By now, Wolverine is fully regenerated, and he's all, you know, F this. And he tries to cut himself out of the cell, only to learn that not even adamantium can slice through bars that are forged in hellfire. He then swipes at Solemn, and, well, it's not terribly effective either. You see, Solemn is somehow coated with adamantium himself. Maybe this stuff grows on trees in Arako. I don't know. Solemn offers Wolverine the keys to the cell, and we're off to the races here. They're going to go together. First, an info page all about the Everforge. Now, it's ruled by the Furies, who I'm going to assume are those horribly scary beasts from the old Alan and Alan Captain Britain stories. We rejoin our fellas at the Hellforge, and they talk a lot of spoo that really doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Then, bells can be heard ringing far away. Solemn suggests that the ceremony Muramasa rushed off to might just be a wedding. And indeed it is. 
two figures stand before a very portly demon. Now, the demonic sack of flesh calls for the presentation of swords, which draws our focus to Muramasa, who presents not one, but two blades. Well, that's mighty convenient, isn't it? Uh, the rest of the story pretty much writes itself from here, doesn't it? Now, he hands over the blades to the couple, and then presents himself to be run through by both of them. Well, I guess it would seem the street value of those swords just went up exponentially. Solemn hurls his hellblade, and it sinks itself right into the groom's face. This naturally leads to a fight, which wraps up with Solemn in possession of both Muramasa's swords. Wolverine asks for one of them, but Solemn ain't just about to hand it over. And Wolverine asks what Solemn might want for the blade. We go to an info page, and it's everything you really never cared to know about the Muramasa. So, take it or leave it. Back to comics, and we are in our wrap-up. Wolverine emerges back on Krakoa right at the X of Swords action figure display playset with the Muramasa blade. Now, we don't know what sort of deal he struck with Solemn, but I assume we will before long. The issue concludes with our second champion stood upon the sigils. So now we've got Magic and Wolverine. Next episode, it looks like we're headed to Wakanda in Marauders number 13, and if uh, the cover is to be believed, Wolverine will be there too. So I guess he doesn't actually just have to like stand on the sigil forever. You know, who knows? Maybe these are being told out of order. I, I wouldn't even hazard a guess, but... That, my friends, is X-Force, volume, whatever it is, number 13, where I gotta say, at least we did feature a member of X-Force, right? Yeah, there you go. Um, let's talk about this, let's talk about this, because there's not a whole heck of a lot to say here, because, you know, chapters 3 and 4 certainly didn't need quite as many pages as they wound up getting. This could have easily, very easily, been done in a single issue of Wolverine, right? I mean, X-Factor number 4 was chapter 2 of this event, and it was a $5 oversized issue. We, we couldn't have done the same thing for Wolverine number 6, right? We, we, we probably could have. Of course, then we'd only have a 21-part crossover event, and how could anybody take that seriously? Uh, the back-and-forth jumps we've had here between Tokyo and Hell, uh, like I said during the synopsis, they weren't necessary. And there's really no reason I can think of why this couldn't have been told in a more linear fashion. Though, if they were to do that, it might have shed too bright a light on what a vanilla, boring story this beat was. Really not a whole heck of a lot to talk about here. You know, Wolverine gets his sword, so does Solemn. Wolverine owes Solemn a favor, and we can probably assume that they're going to be facing off at some point during the second half of this event. I mean, not for nothing, I guess we are putting pieces into place, but I don't know that these bits require quite this amount of pages, right? But at least the pages were pretty. I'll give it that. Now, Victor Bogdanovic, uh, we know him as the, the not-Cubert guy on Wolverine. Really, really good artist. I, I really enjoy his work here. It does remind me a lot of, uh, of like, the New 52. <laughs> it really, really does, but, uh, but I won't hold that against him here. So good art, kind of an eh story, a necessary story, but not a terribly interesting one, unfortunately. I guess uh, we had to get here, and uh, we did. So that was X-Force number 13. Let's hop into the mailbag before we cut out of here, and uh, we're going to start with Damien. 
who's talking about X-Factor number three. He says, yet another comic that I enjoyed more than you. My tolerance for Mojo World, Mojoverse stuff is obviously higher than you. I did get exposed to a lot of it in my youth. I'm really enjoying the way that Leia Williams is focusing on characters. She's managed to convince me to hate Dakin, and just when I think he's the worst character, she makes him charming. I know I'm being played by her, but I'm enjoying being played. Very good point. Very good point here. Dakin Dakin uh, was... Really, I don't want to say he was a low point of the first couple of issues because, uh, well, to me, there were a lot to choose from <laughs> as far as low points are concerned for those first couple of Well, the second issue. The first issue I enjoyed. I'm not going to lie. But uh, Dakin Dakin was uh, kind of a... He felt like a baby character, kind of like a stereotype through a funhouse mirror, like... Like, they know that there are going to be certain readers out there who will only see him in a certain way, and they're really, really playing that up here. I don't know why they're doing it, but it's the, the feeling I'm getting here. And then maybe it is just to 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 put that all out there and then subvert ex- expectations here by actually making him a fun character to follow. I, I, really, I really don't know, but I, I do... Now, semi-enjoy seeing him on, on panel, so that's a, that's a good thing. That's a net positive. Damien continues, I'm glad you're coming around to David Baldion's work. He really excited and he really excelled in this issue. There are so many artists who would struggle to communicate the fact that Shatterstar was lying convincingly. And he also dealt with, so well with the scene of Aurora and Dakin Dakin. There really is a phenomenal group of artists on the X-Books at the moment. And yes, I am definitely coming around to Baldion's work here. It was a little, a little hard at first. But uh, I, 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 can't, I can't say that he doesn't fit the tone of the book. He's definitely a really good fit, and I'm actually enjoying him. So that's, uh, that's definitely another net positive here. So uh, Damien wraps up with, Anyways, until Amazing Va- Baby Eats Mojo, <laughs> make my next laugh. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts on X-Factor number three. I do wonder what, uh, what X-Factor is going to be like once we get out the other side of the event here. I wonder, I mean, we're going to have to go back to Mojo World at some point to get Shatterstar, so I wonder how it's going to be. I wonder how it's going to be. I, I suppose we'll worry about that, or I'll worry about that another day. But thanks again for, uh, for writing in. Uh, next up, Evan Bevan's talking Hellions number four. Now, Evan says, I didn't read the Madeline Pryor stories when they originally came out, and I don't remember how much I picked up through in the essentials. But to me, she's always been one of the most mistreated characters in comics history. She was brought to life as a pawn, married her husband because, let's face it, she looked like his long-lost love, and then cast aside when that love returned to the land of the living. And though I'm, again, no expert on her, it seems like that story has never been fully retconned or explained away. Long before Cyclops lost it in the Bendis era, he was the guy who ditched his wife for literally a better model. Maybe that's an oversimplification. In many ways, Madeline is an inconvenient character, and when she came back in X-Men Blue and I saw her pop up in Hellions number 1, I thought, why? The answer in this case was because Zeb Wells crafted a story that used all that inconvenience in a way that wasn't heavy-handed meta, but served the story well. And maybe Mystique will find a kindred spirit in Havoc when it comes time to burn Krakoa to the ground. And you guys know me, I could talk about that Madeline Pryor uh, beat in Hellions a lot. <laughs> and in fact, I have. 
it's just it never stops being true though um definitely one of the most mistreated characters who came in uh, i mean she came in with a purpose but that purpose was changed when uh when editorial made some changes here it was like you said here it's never been fully explained away and it's hard I mean, they had to make her the worst of all things to make Cyclops not look like the worst of all things. Because, I mean, let's face it, at the end of X-Factor number one, he's ditched his family, his wife and son, to go back to a woman who he'd lost. Who we don't even know what her feelings are towards him at this point, but the fact that he'd rather be with her than his own wife and, and son doesn't really... Shine the best light on Cyclops I do wonder how soon I mean, we talked about the original plans, right? For Madeline And it would just be Scott's happily ever after And he's gonna, you know, go off into the sunset And maybe maybe show up every now and again Or maybe rejoin the team somewhere down the line But he was basically retired, right? Him and Madeline were just gonna be away then X-Factor, the, the, the X-Factor pitch comes through, and we're going to bring Jean back. And I got to wonder, like, what were the initial plans? Like, were there were there any plans to work this out right from the moment they decided Jean's going to come back? Was that something they put a pin in? It's like, okay, well, we need to take care of this inconvenience eventually. And I wonder how we got from point A to point B, where she's just the doting wife to she's the Goblin Queen. You know, I wonder when that was decided on. I wonder if there were any other possible outcomes for her. Because, uh, I mean, it seems like she got the worst of the worst here with her uh, with her outcome. Now, I don't remember her coming back in X-Men Blue. I'd missed out on all that. So uh, maybe you can let me know how that went, uh, what her role was there. I want to say that I saw her at some point as part of a sisterhood of evil mutants. Unless I dreamt that. I'm getting more and more convinced that I dreamt that whole that whole angle, but uh, I suppose someone with a better memory could let me know. But here, this was a, this was a great little story here, and you know it might stand to reason that uh, you know Havoc is uh, he's playing a role now. I'm still not a hundred percent convinced that he is actually just another member of this Hellions team here. Part of me still thinks it's going to be revealed that he's a mole of some sort, just to keep an eye on some other inconvenient characters. But uh, here we have him wanting resurrection for Madeline and uh, being told no. Being told no by the Quiet Council, being told no by his brother. We don't know which way... I mean, Scott says he fought for her, but Who's to say whether or not he did? I mean, we didn't get to see that. It's Like I said before, it's probably for the best that we didn't get to see that. So we have Mystique wanting uh, Destiny to come be resurrected and being told no, and Havoc wanting Madeline to be resurrected and being told no. So strange bedfellows, right? Now, uh, Evan continues... Mystique, Havoc, maybe a resurrected one too many times Quentin Choir. What if the biggest threats to Krakoa and this new era come from within? Now, that's certainly a way that this could go. I mean, we've talked about, uh, I think we've talked about comparing this to, like, the Roman Empire and stuff and how the uh, Krakoans are, they're, like, overly decadent, right? We talk about all the drinking. We talk about all the partying. We talk about, I mean, Wolverines called them out on letting, called them out on letting their guards down and then fell prey to that himself. So there is definitely a chance that this is all going to just be a you know a house of cards sort of situation where 
I mean, where are the threats outside? We've joked about the threats outside, right? We saw, I believe it was, it was either an Exosword's creation or an X Factor where Nightcrawler is naming their new villains, and they're just like the worst. It's like the Flower Cartel and Zeno. <laughs> it's like, and uh, the, the you know Orcus. It's like the most boring villains in the world here. And uh, so, I mean, what is the threat? Because none of those can touch the X Men. Uh, with the resurrection protocols and the united front between heroes and villains here, what the hell could Orcus do? What could the Flower Cartel do? They can, sure, they can be a nuisance. They could be dangerous, but I don't see them getting to a point where they're just going to take everything down. Really, the only way this can all fall down, unless we're headed for a giant retcon, is a a schism in the uh, in the X Men family here. And I think that the ones that feel like they're being played by the Quiet Council, the ones that feel like they're being neglected or uh, uh, disrespected, I think they're going to be the ones leading the charge. And uh, we already know Mystique was told, hey, if they don't bring me back, it's left to you to burn the whole place down. So we know that it's it's in the forefront of her mind here. And uh, while Mystique can work alone... Uh, maybe she doesn't need to, right? Very, very interesting theory. Now, Evan wraps up with, I'm imagining some sort of alliance, repurposing an X name or theme that hasn't been recycled yet. Maybe Nightcrawler realizes those cracks in the foundation can't be repaired and have to be broken wide open instead. Or maybe I'm just too fascinated with my own wild theories. No, I, you know, I don't think you are. I don't think you are, because this is... Uh, um. These theories are founded in reason here. We have patterns of behavior in these Dawn of X books where we are seeing things. You know, we talk about um, writing with purpose and with conviction here and not making too many mistakes here. And while not everything Hickman's doing is to my liking and not everything he's doing is something I want to see go on forever... I can't deny that what he's doing, I think everything is is either serving a purpose or is going to serve a purpose, right? We've talked about bits and pieces, little hints, things that look like they're going nowhere. I mean, we have, you know, X-23 and those guys in the vault right now. Why? Why? I, I'm, I'm 100% sure that it's going to come back around. I know we're going to get an answer to it, but it's... I feel like everything has a purpose here. So these things that we're seeing here, the things that we're allowed to see, Mystique talking to Destiny in her flashback, Havoc reacting the way he did to Madeline not coming back, these are things that are definitely with a purpose, right? Nightcrawler wanting to start his own own religion, talking about being a member of the Quiet Council and seeing that there are already cracks. All the questions about the resurrection protocols... All the theories about Krakoan uh, intervention and uh, mind control. So many things that are here. And I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about them as we go on here. So I don't think you're, I don't think you're being too uh, pleased with your own theories. I think this is very, very valid stuff. A lot of the stuff that we're saying here completely stands to reason is coming to pass. And uh, I mean, that's a good place for us to be in, isn't it? Like I said, despite not really loving everything, we're asking questions. We're asking questions, and we're invested in the answers. And 
You know, for the first time in many, many, many years I mean, I'm chomping at the bit to find out what happens next It's a, it's a good place to be in It's a good place to be in So that is going to do it for our mailbag today I want to thank everybody for taking part If anyone out there would like to join in the conversation Please, please feel free to do so You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics Or you could send me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com you can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com, which just started its sixth year as a blog just today. So there's that. Uh, there's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com if all you want to see is the X-Men stuff. You can talk to us on Facebook. Our little group is called the 90s X-Men. And you can listen to all the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for today. I think we're, what, two-elevenths of the way through this story now? Yeah. Uh, my math ain't the greatest, but I think we're two-elevenths of the way through. So that's a good thing. We're making headway. We're uh, just pushing our way through. <laughs> and I want to thank you all so, so much for being a part of it and for sharing your time with me on this fine day. And till next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 115 of X Lapsed, where we're, uh, eh, we're still exitenting. That's kind of what we do here for, uh, the next little while, anyway. So, uh, we do have, uh, quite a bit to talk about. Let's get right into it. We're talking today about Marauders number 13. It's had a December 2020 cover date. Story is X of Swords, chapter 5. Writer, not Jerry Duggan, but v- Vita, Vita, Vita Ayala? One of those, I apologize, I'm sure I said it wrong Probably both times Art, Matteo Lali, colors Edgar Delgado Letters VCs, Corey Petit Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman Edits, Bisa White Sabolski Cover price Five dollars Five dollars, this is an oversized issue, I guess uh, And it went on sale October 7th Of 2020 
Now, we open with one of them quote pages. You know how I love those quote pages. Uh, this one, this quote, is attributed to someone named S.A. Graham, who is referred to here as a survivor of Onslaught. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have the time nor access to rifle through my Onslaught-era X-Books at the moment, uh, like I otherwise would to see if this was an actual guy who bumped into Storm during the story, but... Whether or not it is, it's still a neat little nod. I, I like any time we mention inconvenient bits of history. I don't know that we ever really talk about Onslaught anymore, so it's pretty neat to see a mention here. Now we start our comics portion with Storm reflecting on Polaris's prophecy. If you recall, Polaris was spouting a whole bunch of words about the swords, right? So Storm clearly was one of those referenced in the prophecy. Now, she is soon joined by Call Me Kate, and they talk a bit about what Storm might have ahead of her. Now, she needs the Vibranium Sword from Wakanda, the Skybreaker, in order to participate in this contest of champions. And, you know, she also has a very complicated relationship with the Wakandan royal family, who she will have to confer with in order to get Skybreaker. Kitty offers to go along with her, but where Storm walks, she must walk alone. It's worth noting, there are some framing panels on this page that walk us through some of Storm's history. Uh, I'm not sure why these are necessary, as they're nowhere near a complete telling of Storm's life. But, you know, at the same time, I suppose they ain't hurting nobody either. From here, we shift to a story about Wakanda, Vibranium, and Blades. It's the origin of the Skybreaker Sword, which is the first sword forged out of Vibranium and wielded by the King of Wakanda. I'm not sure if this is, like, legit lore. As far as I know from my admittedly shallow wiki research, Skybreaker's first mention is in X of Swords creation. So is this something from Black Panther lore? If you know, please pass it on. Share with the class, because I, I don't know. Uh, I probably, while on the subject of Black Panther here, I should probably get it out of the way before we go too deep. Uh, I'm one of those Black Panther fans. You know, the type that only ever enjoyed Black Panther when he was written by Christopher Priest? While there was plenty of Wakanda there, it never felt like it usurped the, you know, the overall story. Uh, I feel like the Priest run was very, very character-driven, at least in my memory. Uh, these days, it feels like people would rather just write about the politics and history of Wakanda than a superhero story, which, I mean, I suppose there's a time and place for that, but uh, I would prefer just a... Give me some real fun characters, give me some superhero-ing, <laughs> just give me, uh, give me stuff like that, and I'm, I'm a happy camper. Anywho, from here, we go to our double-page spread of creds, then our roll call. We are going to be focusing on Storm, Call Me Kate, Queen Ramonda of Wakanda, and Princess Shuri of Wakanda. We go back to comics, and we're already in Wakanda. Now Storm, of course, is here to get an audience with the royal family to ask for access to the Skybreaker. Unfortunately, T'Challa ain't in at the moment, so this request falls to Ramonda and Shuri. Now, the relationship between the three ladies is still quite warm, despite the fact that Storm and T'Challa's marriage didn't really go so well. Now, the Skybreaker is very important to the people of Wakanda, and its removal might somehow cause unrest? I don't know the inner workings of this, but I'll take their word for it. And so, Storm, despite asking very, very nicely, and explaining the otherworldly situation honestly, is denied her request. At least for the moment. 
She's going to have to wait for T'Challa to return home to have the final word on the subject. Unfortunately, we're kind of on a time crunch here, aren't we? I mean, Saturnine ain't about to wait for the King of Wakanda to come home. Storm respectively accepts their response and does not argue with them. She's like, okay, you said your piece. I tried my best. Bada bing, bada boom. It's worth noting that the Queen and Princess were more than willing to give Storm some other royal Wakandan arms, including the Nation Maker Spear, the Panther's Claw's Daggers, and the King's Mercy Sword. Unfortunately, again, Saturnine probably ain't keen on accepting substitutes. She has her prophecy. It's got to be followed to the letter. From here, an info page about Otherworld's Sevelith. Is a place where the inhabitants seem vampiric, and you all know how I feel about that. We turn a page and we get another info page. This time it's about Otherworld's Mercator, and it's a page full of very Hickman-y words, which uh, caused me to glaze over. Back to comics. Storm is hanging out in her quarters. She's soon joined by Shuri, who has brought with her a big meal for them to share. Now they talk for a bit, right? And it's not long before the conversation shifts from polite to passive-aggressive to just plain contentious. You see, Shuri, she ponders out loud the timing of this request for the Skybreaker. And she wonders aloud if it has anything to do with the fact that Wakanda has chosen not to sign the Krakoan Treaty. And as you might imagine... Storm is quite insulted at this insinuation and accusation. After all, not too long ago, she and Shuri were family. They were sisters-in-law. They basically agree to disagree. Shuri insists that Storm wait for T'Challa to return, and mentions how Storm and her ex-husband's relationship is in a much better place at the moment. Storm's like, okay, you said your piece, now get out. I want to get some sleep. So she gives her the boot. Um, Is she going to really go to sleep? Of course not, of course not. We, she has other things in mind, and we'll follow her along here. But first, we flash back to Storm's time as Queen of Wakanda. She remembers being shown the Royal Wakandan Armory, where it just so happens that the Skybreaker resides. Now, Storm, in present day, changes out of her white outfit and into something a bit darker. And bada-bing, next we know she's at the Armory, ready for a heist. And I gotta tell you, this is quite well represented in panel layout here because we're intermingling here. We're flashing back to Storm getting a tour of this facility with Black Panther. These scenes are juxtaposed with the current day scene of Storm breaking in. So it's really cool the way they did this. It's like, okay, she saw this scene here back in the long ago and here she is now using those memories to break in. Really good stuff. Now she uses her lightning powers to shut down the armory's defenses for 30 minutes. Which, that's kind of a long time, isn't it? You might think that Wakanda would have a backup generator, right? I mean, I can suspend my disbelief, but only for so much. Now, Storm enters, and only has to take out one guard in order to reach the Skybreaker room. Which, again, seems a little too easy, doesn't it? Eh? Storm then ixnays the lasers, protecting the sword with some frigid cold... She then Indiana Jones swaps the Skybreaker with a phony, right? You know, remove the real one, put a fake one in there. She's hopeful that uh, this might fool the Wakandans long enough for her to take the blade, win the fight in Otherworld, then return the blade safely. So no one would be any the wiser. Now, as she reaches for the Skybreaker, 
Well, before she can lay a single finger on it, she's attacked by Shuri. They fight. Storm wins. Now, by the time she actually grabs the Skybreaker, the system has rebooted, so the full 30 minutes have elapsed, at which time great big doors slam down and Storm finds herself attacked by some Black Panther droids. And so we get a couple of full-page spreads of Storm using lightning to shock the bots, which really makes me wonder why this needed to be an oversized $5 book, but what are you going to do? Storm goes to make her escape, but wouldn't you know it, she runs right into T'Challa and his, uh, and his secret service of sorts here, and they have a pretty uncomfortable situation. Black Panther tells her that uh, all she would have had to have done was wait, because he would have given her anything, even the Skybreaker. He loves her, after all. Storm tells him that waiting just wasn't an option here. Uh, T'Challa is quite disappointed in Storm's behavior and accuses the Krakoans of becoming perhaps a little too, for lack of a better term, ethnocentric of late. Their only concern is for mutants discounting and dismissing all others. And, you know, he's, uh, he's kind of got a point there, doesn't he? T'Challa then tells his men to stand down and let Storm leave with the Skybreaker. And she does so through a Krakoan portal, which Black Panther immediately commands be destroyed. If Storm wants to come back to Wakanda with the blade, she's going to have to do so the old-fashioned way. Info page on the Skybreaker. Uh, you all want to know more about this sword? Yeah, me neither. Uh, we wrap up back at the X of Swords action figure display playset, where Storm joins Wolverine in Magic, taking her spot at the Sigil. And, you know, if you've seen the cover of this issue, Wolverine gets prominent, prominent coverage on the cover here. He's front and center on this thing. And this is the only panel he's in. One panel. Okay. I guess he's in it more than Jean Grey was, which is to say she didn't show up at all, and she's pretty prominently displayed on the cover as well. What are you going to do? But that is where we leave. Maraud is number 13. Next episode, Exitens Part 6 in Hellions number 5. So let's talk about this issue here. I probably should start by saying that uh, like the entire... I don't know, framing conceit of this story here is the uh, Black Panther Storm relationship in a way, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure the mention of Wakanda is what made Storm realize that the prophecy was talking about her, unless I'm mistaken, which is possible, I suppose. But the relationship between Storm and T'Challa, despite the fact that I think they teamed up and expressed interest for each other in a single issue of Marvel Team-Up back in the day, their whole marriage felt very, very forced to me. I mean, we've talked about forced marriages before in this program, but the Storm Black Panther one never really worked for me. It felt very, very forced. It felt, you know, me and the wife will watch Days of Our Lives. You know, that's a soap opera for folks who don't know. And it feels like any time there are like two black characters on the show, they automatically become a couple which I feel is pretty reductive. Um, and I feel it was similarly reductive here in the comics. It was just, I don't know, just too forced for me, and I really could never glom onto it. Um, on that note, I really don't care about Wakandan history. That's not a fault of the story. Uh, it's just something that is. I, I, I find whenever we try to dig into the lore of a land, and like it could be Wakanda, it could be Kunlun, it could be... 
New Genesis or Apocalypse over in DC, I really, it just doesn't really do it for me. So, not a big fan of that. Here, it wasn't really, I mean, it got mentioned, of course. It was used as a device to to show us the forging or to explain the forging of the Skybreaker, which is fine. It's fine. I'm sure other people probably got more out of those scenes than I did, though. Again, not a fault of the story. Um, but let's talk about this as the next chapter of X of Swords here. I don't know how many people listening are anime fans. If you're an anime fan, um, these last three chapters would be something that would be referred to as filler. I feel like we're spending way, way too much time gathering these swords here. I don't know that we need quite this many pages to uh, to fill in order to get these swords here. I think we could have done... We could do two swords an issue easily, but instead we're doing we're doing one sword in an oversized issue, one sword in two regular sized issues. It just feels like we are really wasting a lot of time here. We're really we're just running in place here, and uh, I feel like the seams are going to start to show before long here. I don't know. I mean, Storm they've tried doing mini series, they've tried doing ongoing series, and the ongoing just didn't last very long. And that's not a slight on the character or the creators behind the book. It's just some characters can't carry their own series. And when you put them in the spotlight, it kind of becomes more apparent. I'm sure there's folks out there who'd argue that Wolverine can't even carry his own stories because even though he's had hundreds and hundreds of solo adventures and solo issues, it just feels like we're really, really stretching this out and putting a spotlight on characters who work better as part of a team than they do in solo outings. So I think that's kind of where I'm at with this, and I'm not completely looking forward to much more of this, even though I think we've got about a half dozen more of these before we get to stasis, and I'm assuming that's like the line in the sand here. I'm thinking we're going to gather the swords till stasis, and then we're going to fight until destruction. I mean, it only makes sense, but uh, I, I guess... You know, it'll all remain to be seen here. Let's do some uh, takeaways from this issue here. And it was, uh, my main takeaway uh, was just that off-the-cuff line from Black Panther at the end of the issue where he basically accuses Storm of not caring about the African part of her and only being concerned with the mutant part. And it's interesting when we think about uh, a concept like and I don't know if ethnocentrism is the right term for it, but for the lack of a lack of a better term, and with my you know peanut brain <laughs> percolating here, the mutants being more into themselves. I mean, it's 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 an organic thing, right? It uh, the the mutants have been stepped on and stomped on and kicked around for a long, long time now. It only stands to reason that they'd be fed up. And now that they have the means with the, you know, the Krakoan magic meds and uh, the global stroke, I guess, that they're currently wielding, you know, it stands to reason that they would be about themselves here. But I think T'Challa raises a really good point in that, like, what's the cost here, right? I mean, he tells Storm that the Wakandans, for, for a time, were her people, and here she is stealing from them because her other people need her to. It, it, you know, there's a lot of a uh, lot of meat on that bone, I think, and I think that's something we can talk about a lot here as we uh, move forward here. I know that we've heard about dual citizenships. You know, they're citizens of whatever country of origin they're from and Krakoa. You know, but 
I think this could lead to a lot of fun stories if this just this one line is explored a little bit further. I mean that there's that whole pride cometh or goeth before the fall or whatever, and uh, we've talked about the mutants becoming too decadent, and uh, maybe the mutants are also becoming a little too prideful. I mean that's uh, that's a scary combination when you're trying to build and maintain a nation, isn't it? So very very interesting. That is probably like the line of the book for me. Um, and my definitely my main takeaway. Uh, another takeaway, Storm going back to her skills as a thief. I mean, that felt moderately in character. It is a skill set she has. Uh, she, she was doing it for a, a cause she found to be morally sound, morally right, proper. Um, maybe not so much for the folks of Wakanda, but she, you know, she didn't have any qualms about doing it. She didn't want to do it, but... She knew if she had to, she could, and she would, and she did. So I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, the art here. The art here was really good. And speaking of our creators, um, I didn't even realize that Jerry Duggan hadn't written this until I was putting together my notes and, and filling in the credits here. So uh, whoever uh, Vita, Vida, Ayala is, I quite enjoyed their work. It was a good job here. I like the, the, the discourse between Storm and uh, Shuri. I thought that was a really good scene here. Uh, it's hard to really strike a balance between, um, between aggression and, and passivity here to get that perfect blend of passive aggression. Because I think we've all been in conversations like that where someone is just being little needly, right? They're just, they're being passive-aggressive, or maybe it's you being passive-aggressive. It's hard to really put that into writing, I think. And the conversation they have here where, like, Shuri is just kind of thinking out loud. She's like, yeah, I kind of wonder about the timing of all this. And, uh, well, you know, maybe maybe you're trying to do this. Or I, I thought that was really well done. Really well done there. And uh, outside of the fact that I think this took too many pages and just overall the search for the swords is taking a bit too long... I really don't have any complaints about this. So uh, definitely another solid issue of Marauders, and uh, I would recommend it. Now, how about we dip into the mailbag before we get out of here? We got uh, a fairly fairly loaded mailbag today. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X-Force number 12. Now, he starts with, no, 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 no. <laughs> I do not believe this issue of X-Force. It's a classic error of putting plot ahead of character. There's no way that Storm would stand by and let Colossus be led out in chains. The fact that this story tells us that Hank had gathered people together to watch doesn't work. Kitty, Storm, Kurt, and Jean would have all used their position on the Quiet Council to stop this. They treated Sabretooth with more respect. It's literally unbelievable. Benjamin Percy is so wedded to his CIA analogy that he throws character out the window. And the scene that Damien is talking about is perhaps the worst scene of the Dawn of X line so far. Colossus was rounded up by the Beast and Wolverine and uh, Domino because, uh, well, because he was Russian. <laughs> and uh, because Mikhail Rasputin, Colossus's brother, had uh, stolen the Cerebro sword and there were these Russian nesting agents and uh, we've got Omega Red on the island. And uh, Beast, rather than, you know, going to his old friend, Peter, and maybe asking him some questions, he decides to, like Damien said, put him in chains and then frog march him out of a portal uh, right in front of all of his uh, closest friends. Kitty, Storm, Kurt, 
Gene Wolverine is there doing the tr- doing the uh, the other policing as well. It is uh, not a good look, really, really bad look, and um, yeah, not good, not good at all. Uh, Damien continues. Are we really meant to believe that Domino would arrest Peter? What part of her history makes her a following orders type of character? It was only a few issues ago that she went on an unauthorized mission with Peter. Does Percy not remember writing that? I can't believe this is the same character, and all of our theories about changing characters can't excuse this. This is simply bad writing. 100%. 100%. I mean, I mean Ben Percy here, he... <laughs> He's writing X-Force and Wolverine, right? And in both of them, Omega Red is there doing different things. I don't know where... I don't know his process, his writing process. I mean, I think for two issues, Omega Red was on the cover of them, and he didn't even show up in the book. I really don't know. Um, And no, Domino would definitely not be a just-following-orders kind of character. She wouldn't arrest Peter. So bad, so bad And like you say, uh, there's no amount of Krakoan influence that can excuse this This is just poor writing, this is shock writing, you know And it's it's statement writing, and it's not good, not good at all uh, Damien continues As you mentioned, there are other problems There are a number of characters who would who run away from Wolverine who would not do that Again, I come back to Storm, who refused to back down from Wolverine when she had no powers. <laughs> right? I mean, this is a... The second part of that awful scene has Wolverine realizing that Beast was making a show of this. He was putting on theater, right? He had gathered all these characters here to see what he was doing to Peter. And when Wolverine realized that, he flipped the F out. He unleashed his claws, and he ran into the crowd, scattering them all. I mean, these are his best friends. This is, you know, uh, I think Jubilee was there. Uh, Storm, of course, was there. Kurt was there. And they all ran from him, including Storm, who wouldn't have backed down when she was powerless. But here, she runs away. Really bad. Damien continues. Then there's the farm stuff. How old is the girl with the water powers meant to be? She looks adolescent, but in the bad romance novel text page, it's implied that Colossus is interested in her sexually. Whatever is intended, we end up with something intensely creepy. Yes. I don't remember her name. I don't remember her name. What the hell was her name? Kayla. Kayla the water person here. Yeah, there there definitely seems to be a romantic angle to her uh, relationship with Colossus, and it is creepy. It is very, very creepy because she does look like a child. She definitely looks like a child. Uh, Damien continues. And what is Mikhail's motivation? He seems to be working with Zeno because he's evil, and he seems to be evil because he's Russian. (laughs) On that note, are we meant to know that Zeno were Russian? I thought they were specifically described as international. Have I had a brain injury, or is this nonsense? Well, if you had a brain injury, my friend, it is contagious, because I don't remember that either. I thought they were an international cabal as well. I don't know that they were ever ever named as purely Russian baddies. And as for Mikhail's motivation here, if I were a betting man, and it's a good thing I'm not, I thought he was going to get involved with X of Tens here. He has the Cerebro Sword. Is the Cerebro Sword not even going to be part of X of Tens? 
Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, I guess. But uh, no, I, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know what his motivation is here. Uh, Damien continues. The final straw is the last page, which is meant to be happening during X of Tens. Put a pin in this, and when you finish reading the crossover, please tell me when Jean was available to do this. She seems quite busy throughout. And this is, of course, Wolverine bringing Jean Grey in to do some telepathic interrogation on Omega Red and Colossus. Because, you see, they're Russian. <laughs> and we need, to, we need to round up all of the Russians and uh, ask if, uh, you know, are you or have you ever been a member of Xeno, right? I don't know. Damien continues, This issue of X-Force is why I get headaches. All I can do is be grateful that some of the X of Ten's issues of X-Force are co-written by Jerry Duggan, so there are positives in the future. Anyway, I'm off to have a good old scream until I start the Benjamin Percy fan club Make Mine X-Laps. Yeah, this was uh, not a great issue. Not a great issue, which it, it is doubly painful because... We were on a good streak of uh, X-Force issues there, at least in my opinion. I thought the uh, the stuff we did in Terra Verde was good. I like the idea of the post-human kind of intermingled with the green, right? You know, we had these plant things that were sort of post-human-y, but not completely. But it's just different strain of post-human, perhaps. Uh, I liked that a lot. I liked the fact that it was seemed like we were really setting up for Beast's Fall from Grace here and maybe a redemption arc. I I absolutely adored the Domino and Colossus scenes here, the talk of suicide. What does suicide mean to someone who could be reborn again and again? Really, really strong stuff. So when we get this, oh man, just not good. Not good at all. And it's like, why are we even bothering to keep... Why don't we... Colossus has been with us since Dawn of X started, right? He's been here since since Jump Street here in X-Force number one. We'd never see the guy unless he's he's being interrogated or he's in the background of a scene. It just seems like such a waste. Such a waste. But, um, yeah, I'm sure we'll probably talk about that scene a time or two again. But thank you so much for sharing. You're very frustrated. You're equally as frustrated as my thoughts on X-Force number 12. Uh, Next, Evan Bevins is talking about the free comic book day special and X of Swords. He says, read the free comic book day issue and X of Swords creation this morning and listened to the FCBD episode. I believe this issue had already been announced for the regularly scheduled free comic book day the first Saturday in May before the pandemic did its number on, well, everything. I love free comic book day, but the best issues I ever ever got tended to be the Bongo Comics free-for-alls featuring The Simpsons, which never actually got me to buy any Simpsons comics, except when my library was selling some back issues off, and the Tick specials. As you noted, DC tended to be reprints, and Marvel had a habit of producing hit-or-miss stories previewing events way in the future. The all-new, all-different Avengers story a couple years ago was good, but was announced well before we had much clue what the Marvel Universe would look like post-Secret Wars, let alone how Miles Morales could possibly be there. A Spider-Man offering from way back when turned out to be a post-brand-new-day story well before that traumatic event in my fandom and made little sense. This issue seemed to follow in that tradition, with stuff, thrown, with stuff thrown off even more by the pandemic delays. That would probably explain why the dialogue and even art were revised in X of Swords creation. So it was a future reprint promoting an off-in-the-distance crossover, an amalgam, if you will, of what Marvel, DC, Marvel and DC free comic book day approach. 
Despite my severe eye-roll when I saw those pages in creation, I found it interesting to compare the pages and wonder about the changes. Glob Herman swapped in for Rockslide, for example. Once the long, repetitive preamble was out of the way, I found creation to be a pretty exciting setup. Now, about Free Comic Book Day, uh, it's every so often I'll record something and I'll immediately feel bad about it. And I'll second-guess whether or not I should have said something, and... My little rant about Free Comic Book Day is one of those things here, because I know it's a special day for a lot of people. I know people like to bring their kids and uh, their families to the comic shop. It's just a... it's an event. And, uh... As someone who's kind of a sucker for any kind of holiday, I could totally see the merit in just celebrating something, right? Just having a day that's not mundane, you know? And Free Comic Book Day is that day for a lot of people here. Unfortunately, when I think about it, I automatically go to the negative stuff. I go to, well, in the words of some of the retailers around here, uh, I go to the, you know, pretend to care about comics day sort of a school of thought. Because to me, that is a lot of what it is, but... uh, I will admit that that is reductive and uh, close-minded of me to think that way. Um, I know folks really, really dig it, and that's great. That's great. I just wish that the companies would would use it as the opportunity that it really is, you know? Um, Put the best foot forward. I mean, this X of Swords special that we got was... I can't say it was bad, because it's not bad. It's just wrong-headed for this sort of endeavor, I think. We're going to talk a little bit more about the special in a couple of letters, though, so I'll save some more of it for that, but uh, if my comments about Free Comic Book Day ruffled any feathers, it wasn't meant to. They weren't meant to, so I do apologize if that was the case. But uh, our next letter comes from uh, our friend Walt Neeland, and he's talking about, get this, Marauders number one. Boy, I can, I can remember how young I was when I... No, that was only a little while ago. But uh, Walt says, I loved Marauders number one. I just got such a kick out of it. I enjoyed the art. I'm not always keen on characters looking younger than I'm used to, and Kitty did look young, but it worked. And Wolverine's exuberant joy at her arrival with his beer, his dashing past her, diving in and swimming out to her little sailboat and coming back with beer was just hilarious to me. Normally not keen on Wolverine being treated as such a comedy bit, but it worked the same as Whedon's portrayal of him for me. It's so funny thinking back to that issue because, uh, I mean, we were we were sweet summer children back then, weren't we? I mean, everything was so much more, I don't want to say innocent because that doesn't make much sense, but in my head it works. Uh, it feels like, I don't know, everything was such uh, so much more uh, sunshiny back then. Everything was so new. <laughs> Where now, I don't know if I'm just a little jaded or cynical or both. I don't know. But it's so it's so cool getting some thoughts about these very early issues here. And because uh, it's kind of, you know, the, you know, we're testing the waters here. That was the first issue of Marauders. It's, it's pretty funny. Um, Walt continues, and of course, I enjoyed Lockheed. I even actually enjoyed a couple of the info pages. Kitty's captain's log and Wolverine's shopping list for her was were funny. And the Marauders was her, quote, sorry I was on the spot name. I don't know, I really liked it. Probably my favorite of the bunch so far. And yeah, you're not alone. You're not alone. The Marauders, I mean, Marauders, we've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again because I'm very repetitive. 
But uh, it is the most consistent book of the line, a hundred percent. It's always, it's always good to great, and doesn't usually dip below that. While there are things that I don't, you know, love about it, it's still the strongest of the line here. And uh, I do look forward to hearing your thoughts on some of the other <laughs> number ones here. Yeah, I think if you're up to Marauders, that means you've still got to read. Fallen Angels, of course, uh, X-Force, and maybe Excalibur? I don't know if Excalibur came before Marauders in our in our lineup, but uh, you definitely have X-Force and, Marauder, uh, and Fallen Angels to read, and uh, I really am looking forward to your thoughts on Fallen Angels. But uh, I thank you so much for writing in your thoughts on Marauders number one and for uh, being part of the show. Uh, next up, Andrew Franklin talking about Exoswords part one through three. Now, he says, the thing that kept running through my head reading this was, how did we go from Maura McTaggart's past lives to this? The other thing I kept, that kept running through my head was, what is it that's motivating these bad guys again? I thought it would be fun to track what the tarot cards were referencing as we read through the crossover, but they all pretty much referred to things that happened this issue, huh? The three characters that were replaced in the tarot art had some big roles in this issue, too. I wonder if that was done to preserve the secrecy of what would happen, or if plans for the characters changed, or if it was just pandemic-related. Now, if I were a guessing man, and I am a guessing man, I'm not a betting man, but I am a guessing man, I'd say that uh, plans changed. I'd really like to see it come back around and uh, be some sort of a meta thing where it's like, where the characters know what was on the cards originally and, and the change is addressed, but I don't, I don't see that happening. Uh, Andrew continues... Was Glob Herman, pictured in the free comic book day preview, originally planned to be killed and not Rockslide? Maybe one of the creative team had too big a soft spot for Glob. It certainly makes a little more sense that it was Rockslide, since he and the Summoner shared a scene together, at least. Maybe Banshee was replaced by Siren, because one of the writers wanted to use her. I'll be interested to see what happens, if anything does, to make the change clearer. Yeah, I... Don't know that we'll see anything. I don't know if, uh, you know, ignore the man behind the curtain sort of a thing with the uh, free comic book day thing. That's one thing that, uh, well, I mean, the industry's just been doing that a lot. I would say lately, but, I mean, the New 52 was almost, it was 10 years ago. Jesus, oh boy. Yeah, ooh, that, that aged me a whole lot right there. Um, I remember that, uh, I think it was Dan DeDio that said, uh, we might see things that happen in issues that'll be wiped away when the trade comes out, when the trade collection comes out. Because the trade, of course, as we've been trained to think, the trade's forever, right? The issues come and go, but the trades are forever. And I remember in uh, Teen Titans number one from the early, early, early New 52, you know, the first couple weeks of the New 52, uh, Tim Drake had referred to himself as formerly being Robin, now Red Robin. And then when the trade came out, that was all taken out. Uh, the Teen Titans talked about previous teams of Titans that came before them. When the trade came out, boom, those were all gone as well here. So I don't know if this is a situation like that. I'm assuming it is. I'm assuming it's like, oh, well, the free comic book day thing. Who's even going to remember? I mean, they didn't plan on some idiot like me doing two shows in a row about the same, you know, six pages. So I don't think they figured that they'd be someone that foolish and that... Uh, uh, uncharacteristically perceptive to notice those very uh, very strange little changes here. 
Uh, Andrew continues. Pepe Larraz and Marty Gracia make a good-looking book. But why is Rachel Summers in her new X-Factor garb and Polaris isn't? And wasn't Angel not blue-skinned the last time we saw him in Empire? There also seems to be no logic when Apocalypse has his classic look and when he has his Excalibur look other than looking one way in the X-Men book and then looking another in creation. Yeah, yeah, um, this is the, uh, the Carol Danvers haircut problem where, <laughs> I mean, there's no such thing as a, as a character Bible anymore. There's no, uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez to, to draw the, uh, to draw the handbook to how to draw all these characters anymore, um. That's a really good observation that I missed. That Polaris, yeah, she's not. She's not in her new X Factor togs, but Rachel is. So it's like, what gives? What gives there? As I think I mentioned this when we saw Angel um, in creation, or in, uh, I think it was in creation, why does he look so different than he did back with, uh, well, back in X Men Empire, Empire colon X Men. He looks different. He doesn't have the blue skin in that one for, for one. And he looks more, he's dressed in his angel gear, not Archangel gear. So very, very weird. Apocalypse, I mean, your guess is as good as mine here. His, the, these outfits, these looks, they change. And, uh, it's one of those things that if you stop to think about it, it'll drive you crazy. And it usually does drive me crazy. I mean, I've said it before, and again, this is one of those things I will probably say again. We've got a whole fleet of editors on these books, and nobody can nobody can draw the line and say, hey, can we at least get some consistency here? I don't know. Andrew continues, So I guess the X-Factor Mojo World story is over. It didn't seem like there was a definitive resolution last issue. I guess they just collected the body of the mutant girl and left without incident. They had a crossover to get on with. It's funny how that works, isn't it? <laughs> it's, uh-oh, we got a crossover. We got to end this story quick. And I'm thinking we're probably going to wind up back there to get Shatterstar before long. So I don't know that we're completely safe from Mojo World for uh, better or for worse. Uh, Andrew continues, Considering how cavalier everyone has been regarding death and resurrection, I didn't really understand Apocalypse's reaction to the Morlock healer. Now, this is a reference to the healer seeing Richter very, very ill. He was uh, shot with a poison arrow, and Apocalypse is like, hey, go treat him. And he says, nah, let him die, and then he'll be resurrected. Apocalypse doesn't take too kindly to this, which, I mean, is... I don't know if it's in character or out of character, considering that Apocalypse himself uh, allowed himself to die just to be resurrected in an issue of Excalibur not too long ago. They clearly don't... They really don't... There's no sanctity to remaining alive for many of these characters. I think we saw in Giant Size Storm that she didn't want to die and come back, but Apocalypse, up to this point, had not shown any qualms about... About the death and rebirth process Especially considering, you know, the whole external bent of this It did seem kind of weird I don't know, maybe it's I'm not sure if anybody, including the characters Understand the bond between Richter and Apocalypse at the moment Maybe it's something that'll uh, have a little bit more light shed on it And make a little bit more sense But just don't know Don't know yet Andrew continues I, for one, would have liked for the Silver Samurai To be one of the characters in the fighting contest it would have made the roster a little more interesting to include more characters that weren't X-Men. Especially when you have choices like Doug Ramsey and Warlock and Storm in your sword fighting tournament. You know, I agree. I agree because I'm looking at our roster to this point, and I 
can't think well I can think of a couple of them but I think the the outcome I mean Storm's not gonna die Wolverine's not gonna die I, I think the outcomes need to be more in question when you if you would if we were to put a character like Silver Samurai in there it's like oh well Silver Samurai could die you know I don't think we're gonna be killing Wolverine but we could damn sure kill Silver Samurai I really don't know I mean we talked about the stakes going up right in X Factor number four how you know a death in other world is akin to a permanent death in a lot of ways you know they'll come back in some form or fashion but it won't be the same and uh, the stakes are there but seeing these a-listers that we're putting in the uh in the battle arena here i mean are the stakes really that raised i mean we're not going to kill wolverine it's eh, what are you gonna do Andrew continues, what happened to the Cerebro Sword? It seems odd not to include that in a sword story. What was even the point of it? Yes, the Cerebro Sword, which is why I thought the X-Force issues up to this point were leading into this story, and I thought that Mikhail would be a part of it. I honestly thought, since when Polaris and one of the horsemen were reading out their list of swords, right, both of them had Muramasa on it. I thought that Muramasa was going to go to the bad guy's side, which would have opened up a slot on the good guy's side that could be filled with the Cerebro Sword. Uh, Looks like that's not going to be the case because, uh, well, we've got two Muramasas, as we've learned in uh, in Wolverine and X-Force. So I don't know what the point of it was or is or I, I don't know. I don't know if it'll come back. I'm, I'm guessing it will. It'll have to come back. I just don't know if it'll have any kind of role in this uh, very sword-themed event. Andrew continues, I listened to a podcast appearance by some of the ex-authors recently, and they, and the story they tell about the crossover's inception was that since they had to do a crossover, they asked themselves, what's cool? Well, swords are cool. I'll be trying to keep that in mind while we get through this. Oh boy. That's, uh... That's not inspiring, is it? <laughs> But you know what? It suddenly explains why the Empire X-Men story was what it was. It's like, hey, what's cool? Zombies are cool. Video game references are cool. Let's do that. No. No, that's not cool. Um, it's like I it's like I always say, and I probably say too much, if your story, if the genesis of your, genesis of your story begins with, hey, wouldn't it be cool if, or wouldn't it be funny if, dot, 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 then go back to the drawing board because uh, you're you're parking up the wrong tree. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, "Well, three down until until this, these swords are fused together to make a giant cerebro throne. Make mine X lapsed, but that's not all, because Andrew Franklin wrote in again to remind me that I never did my power rankings for the Dawn of X Wave Two Number Fours. I totally spaced it, and I apologize." Andrew says, another X-Factor issue means it's time to rank the Wave 2 number 4s. This round, Hellions was undeniably the best, with a very strong conclusion to the first story arc. The Madeline story was so thoughtful and good that it's easy to forget the rest of the team's story was also really good. It's a little unfair that X-Factor was the only one being hijacked by the crossover, and even though X-Factor number 4 was the best of the first three X of Swords issues, I'm still going to give Cable number 4 the number 2 spot. 
because that book is still incredibly enjoyable and there's no Araco in sight. X-Factor rounds out the rankings at third, and as always, I did not read Wolverine, which is something I'll only be able to say one more time. Well, thank you for reminding me, and uh, without further ado, my power rankings. And, uh, you know, this one's a toughie because I enjoyed them all. I really did enjoy them all. Uh, My number one book of the Dawn of X, Wave 2, number fours, would be, I mean, the Hellions, of course. All that Madeline Pryor stuff. Loved it, loved it, loved it. It really stuck with me. It gave us a ton to talk about and ponder. It gave us insight into the Quiet Council in the Resurrection Protocols. Just such amazing stuff for a book that I had labeled, you know, sight unseen as a throwaway. You know, this is the uh, this is the funny haha Suicide Squad alike. No, it's actually a fantastic book. Fantastic book. It's right up there with Marauders for me. I mean, it's still early yet, but uh, boy, loved it. Absolutely loved it. Number two, X Factor. Um, undoubtedly aided by being out of Mojo World and for holding a key role in X of Swords. Uh, we find out about the Resurrection Protocols and how they, uh, otherworld, the Otherworld effect will uh, maybe put the XNA on them, at least as we know them. I thought that was a fantastic revelation. I loved the issue. I thought it was really well done. The focus on Polaris was great because we don't always get a focus on main characters in these crossover issues. So the fact that we did get to spend most of our time or much of our time with Polaris was appreciated. It was really well done. Three, and I mean, I hate putting Cable at number three, but I mean, the other two, the other two books were, were stronger in my opinion. And this one only really gets knocked down a peg for me due to the to the Bill and Ted wonkiness of the bomb in the arm, which wasn't entirely clear to me on, like, the first or second reading. <laughs> I still loved it. Don't get me wrong. Um, fantastic book. Ton of fun, but just uh, X-Factor and Hellions were just a little bit stronger this time out. Fourth, I mean, it's Wolverine. Um, even though it's at the bottom, I mean... It was a really good story. It was really mysterious issue with uh, Wolverine in the Red Tavern with that mutant support group. Thought it was really, really fun. Didn't have near as much to do with vampires as I feared it would, so that that was another plus. Probably the best issue of the Wolverine volume to this point. But unfortunately, that's only enough to keep it as the fourth best of four book of this bunch, because it was a very, very strong outing for these Wave 2 number fours. So... Hellions, X-Factor, Cable, and Wolverine. Wonderful lineup. Uh, I can only hope that uh, we keep up the quality of these uh, books going forward. But uh, thank you again for reminding me to do that. I apologize for not doing it uh, during our X-Factor number four episode. I I was in X of Ten's um, euphoria, I guess, and I totally forgot my duty. To, uh, to include my power rankings. So thank you for sending me yours, and thank you for reminding me to offer mine. Really, really means a lot. But I think that's where we'll put a bow on it for today. We're going to wrap up the mailbag. If anybody would like to join in on the conversation, and as you see, I mean, we talked about Marauders number uh, 13 today, and we also talked a little bit about Marauders number 1. So it doesn't matter where you are in the reading. If you want to share your thoughts please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or shoot me an email over at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. 
For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. If you just want the X stuff, go to xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. If you want to join in the conversation on Facebook, you can do so. Find us. We are at 90s X-Men. That's our little group. And if you'd like to hear the rest of the Chris and Reggie audio archives, you can do so at chrisandreggie.podbean.com or at any noise aggregation site, device, thing, anywhere. You'll find it. It's not hard to find. So uh, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, the whole shebang. I think that'll finally do it for this episode. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me and sharing your thoughts with me and just uh, letting me in your ear for a little while today. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 116 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I'm sitting in a very, very squeaky chair, and I hope it's not too um, disconcerting or uh, disruptive to the proceedings here. It's a uh, the chair I've been using for a while, but uh, I think it's, uh, no pun intended, I think it's on its last legs here, and it squeaks an awful lot, so hopefully that doesn't come across here, but... Let's talk about the comic we're here to talk about, right? We are still in X of Tens here. We're in Chapter 6. We're going to be taking a look today at Hellions number 5, which had a December 2020 cover date. The story's called X of Swords, Chapter 6. Written by Zeb Wells with art by Carmen Carnero. Colors David Curiel, letters da- uh, VCs Ariana Mar. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Amaro, Bas- Amaro Basso White Sabolsky. Boy, I'm batting a thousand today with these names. Uh, cover price, $3.99, and this one went on sale October 14th of 2020. Now we open with the customary quote from Nightcrawler. He seems to have a whole heck of a lot to say about this Hellions book, despite, you know, not really being a part of it. Uh, we've actually been getting a lot of these quote pages of late, uh, and I'm guessing that they're being used to serve as chapter breaks, the same way that they did during Hoxpox. 
they're still eating up a page, but at least I can kind of wrap my head around their purpose here. You know, separating the the disparate chapters and in the inevitable you know trade paperback collection, hardcover, whatever. Let's get into comics, and we are at the hatchery. Now here, Empath is resurrected, right? He's returned to life, and he's too angry at the fact that he was dead in the first place to even celebrate the fact that he's back. He's, he's kind of a dick, in case you didn't notice. Now, to the point where the Krakoans aren't even going to bother doing their creepy mutant, mutant, mutant chant for him. And that annoys him. Anyway, he doesn't know how he died, as the last Cerebro backup occurred before the Hellions left for Nebraska. And guess what? That annoys him, too. Top of door roll call. Havoc, the Orphan Maker, Nanny, Wildchild, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, and Mr. Sinister. Double page spread of creds, and uh, I gotta ask, uh, are these pages included in the trade collections? I, I don't know. I mean, it's been a while since I've looked at, like, a current year trade, but I remember seeing collections where credits and stuff would be included between chapters, kind of as they're presented in the single issues, and other times where they would just kind of be distilled into a single credit page at the beginning of the book. I, I kind of wonder how these are going to wind up. Not that it's important in the slightest, but let's get into the comics here. Anyway... Let's check in on the Quiet Council. Uh, some of our notables are discussing the pressing contest, Crisis. But Sassy Sinister gets tired of people not paying attention to him, and so he stands up to pontificate. You see, he's got himself an idea, and unconventional though it may be, it's really not a bad one. Now, his plan for winning this contest of champions is basically to force the other side to forfeit. Now, you see, if his Hellions were to go to Araco and swipe some of those prophesied blades, well, the bad guys wouldn't be able to compete. See, it's unconventional, but hey, pretty darn good. Best of all, it'll give the Hellions something interesting to do while the rest of these books fall in line, right? So this is something a little different. Now, Xavier is not on board with this, as it would require sending several mutants into Otherworld, and, as we know from X-Factor number 4, a death in Otherworld is akin to a permanent death. Magneto agrees with the professor, but reminds him that the Quiet Council must vote. Now, it's worth noting, there are only nine members present. Because Apocalypse, he is still wounded and recovering, Storm is currently in Wakanda, and Jean is off with Scott and Kid Cable doing that sword thing. Now, Sinister's suggestion passes with a 5-4 to four vote. Exodus declares the passage of the, uh, of the call here and notes that Sinister will be leading his Hellions into Otherworld. This causes Sinister to do a double-take in kind of a what-you-talking-about-Willis in Exodus's direction. Now, before the sassy mister can argue all that much, his accompaniment is put to a vote. Lucky for him, only four of the nine members of the Quiet Council wanted to see him go. Sinister, not knowing when to leave good enough alone, decides to turn to Magneto, who didn't vote for Sinister to go into Otherworld, and mocks his daughter. He mocks Polaris. Um, wow, now talk about not being able to read the room. Uh, Magneto decides, hey, you know what? I'm going to change my vote. And bada-bing, Sinister's going to Otherworld. Five to four. Info page, Dryador. Now, this is the kingdom where the cursed king was overthrown in the over opening pages of Exosword's creation. We saw this place. If you want to read more about it, you can do so. I don't, so I won't. Back to comics, and Psylocke gives a briefing to the team about their mission. 
remarking that if this tactic is discovered, well, it wouldn't be a good thing. You see, they'd be cheating in a contest put together by Saturnine, which, as you might imagine, is a gigantic no-no. It would cost them everything, you see, the world, the universe, everything. Havoc then talks a bit about Rockslide's weird resurrection and how otherworld deaths are, you know, sort of kind of permanent. Also, the resurrection protocols have been suspended, but lucky for them, Empath was among the last few brought back before the egg stopped flowing. Now here is where the scene, things get a little bit heavy here, in a very unexpected and wonderful, very Zebwellsian way. Orphan Maker, right? Orphan Maker, this naive, you know, weirdo, he can't seem to wrap his head around the concept of resurrection, right? He knows Empath's dead, but he was just told Empath isn't dead anymore. What does that mean? Even though there's a new Empath, does that mean that the Empath who died isn't dead anymore? I mean, these are good questions, and I love that they're coming from someone as naive as the Orphan Maker. I mean, these are questions that I think many of us feel like we're too smart to ask. <laughs> or like, if we were to ask them, it would reveal some you know, deep-buried ignorance or something. I mean, we just accept it because we're told to. We know it's a story, and we can trust that everything will make a semblance of sense, at least in a perfect world. But Orphan Maker's in the story. Now, this really shines a light on just how surreal a concept like Resurrection is, even in the fantastical Marvel Universe. Now, Orphan Maker is egged on quite a bit by Grey Crow, who flat out says that Empath is dead, and that this new one is just a copy that everyone's going to pretend is really Empath because they look alike. I like this. I like this a lot because it does, it really does put out a lot of those questions we've been asking here on the show about, you know, the sanctity of life and what's real and what's not and are there souls, you know, all that kind of stuff kind of, kind of comes to play here and I, I really, really like it. It's very, very Zebwellsian. Uh, you know, we talked about him doing, doing wonders with the Madeline question and here asking those questions that, uh, Maybe people don't want to ask, or people are afraid to ask. From here, we jump to Bar Sinister. Now, the Mister has unfrozen one of his clones, a clone of himself, hoping to send it to Otherworld in his stead. And it's a pretty funny scene, with a little bit of a twisted who's on first mixed in. They decide to go odds or evens for it, and I suppose it really doesn't matter which one wins. Now, it's worth noting, there's a mention of a black market clone farm underneath Bar Sinister. And the unfrozen clone threatens to spill the beans on the real deal. Huh. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Hmm. Let's go to an info page, all about Avalon, led by that weirdo Jamie Braddock, who we'll be seeing again pretty soon. You see, Sinister's plan is to head to Avalon, win the favor of that weirdo Jamie Braddock, pass under Saturnine Starlight Citadel, enter Dryador, and then finally into Araco, where they can start snagging weapons. Next thing we know, hey, we're at the Avalon Gate. <clears throat> the Hellions arrive in King Jamie the Weird's court, which seems a little bit too easy, doesn't it? I thought the Krakoan Gates were at the Excalibur Lighthouse and then at the bottom of, the, of Morgan Le Fay's pool, or whatever. Uh, maybe they just changed that off-panel. I mean, Jamie is in charge now. Maybe he made it a little bit easier to come and go. Anyway, uh, Jamie is being entertained, I think, by a white horse. Uh, Jamie, it's worth noting, is quite enamored by Sinister's cape, and, I mean, who isn't, right? Sinister runs his plan past Jamie, and, well, uh, Jamie knows not to cross Saturnine. 
so this can be an even tougher sell than Sinister already thought. Now, he sweetens the deal by offering Jamie a visit to Bar Sinister, where he will be provided with a black market clone of his choosing. Oh, there's that black market mention again, huh? Hmm. wonder what that's all about. Well, Jamie agrees, but adds that there will also be a trade in play. You see, he'll give the Hellions his new horse, who nobody actually seems to want, in exchange for, well, you might have guessed it, Mr. Sinister's cape. And so we follow our team as they head through Avalon. Sinister is, of course, capeless and quite disturbed at that fact. Then, Saturnine's white priestesses arrive on the scene, ready to make some arrests. You see, uh, Jamie probably isn't the most trustworthy fellow out there. Sinister turns to Empath and asks him to use his powers to convince the priestesses to let them go. And Empath's all, eh, I'm good. Which makes sense, you know? I mean, he hates everybody on the team. Hell, he seems to, you know, hate everybody and everything, period. So what does he want to help people for? Sinister pleads with Empath to help out and has to wheel and deal a little bit to make it happen. He's like, hey, what is it going to take? What is it going to take for me to get you to do this to them? And, well, Empath, he's got something in mind. He wants permission to make Grey Crow his personal pet. After some hemming and hawing, Sinister agrees, and bada-bing, we've suddenly got a Hellion's take on Nice Guy Guy Gardner from the second year of Justice League International, and it's very, very strange. Empath does the thing, and everything is great. The priestesses even hand over all their horses to help hasten the, the Hellion's trip. And we wrap up with our heroes about to head into the horizon. And I tell you what, I'm definitely looking forward to more of this, but unfortunately, we've run out of pages. Next episode, it looks like we're going to be doing that Warlock thing here. I think uh, we got some Doug Ramsey on the cover of uh, New Mutants, and uh, I'm guessing we're going to... We're going to figure out what this Warlock sword's all about. I mean, I'm pretty sure we all know what it's all about, but we'll see it in action next time. But first, let's talk about what we just experienced here with this weird and wonderful book. Main takeaways here. Um, I'll leave the heavier thing for a minute, from for a little while down the line here. We're going to start with Sinister's plan. Sinister's plan to force a forfeit... I mean, it's almost too smart, right? It's just a really good idea. If if we're worried about not being able to beat these champions of Arako here, then why not try to, you know, cut the brakes before they even get in the car, right? It's a really, really good plan here, and I love that it is giving... It's diverging, you know? Uh, when the rest of the books are zigging, we can count on Hellions to kind of zag. And here we have this team... Doing some underhanded stuff to 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 you know to win this uh, this thing before it even happens here. I love the fact that uh, this is taking the story in a different direction than I was expecting it to. I was I'm like I'm looking at the the cast here and I'm like, well, you know, uh, Psylocke has swords. Can she be looking for a sword? And I really didn't want that. I mean, we're going to get enough of that. We've already gotten enough of that, and we're we're bound to be getting more of it because we've only got three of our ten swords to this point. So it was nice to get a story that's not doing that. I'm guessing that the Hellions will not be successful, since I'm almost positive that the second half of this event will be the fights. So uh, stands to reason that they will not be able to uh, find one of the Araka, Araki swords and uh, steal it. But uh, it's, I think it's going to be a lot of fun seeing them try. 
Let's get into the heavier bit here with Orphan Maker making comments about death and resurrection and what's real and what's not and what things mean because these are things that we've talked about before. And uh, it's just very, very interesting to see it coming from the point of view of a character, especially a naive character like Orphan Maker here who you would expect someone who's naive to kind of accept things on on face value, right? It's like... It's like, well, he, he was dead, but he's back. Oh, okay. But he's got that, you know, that it's very, very childlike in that he's like, well, explain. How does that work? What does that mean? What, what happened? I saw Empath die. And then it doesn't help things that you have Grey Crow there being like, yeah, we all know that that's not Empath, but we're going to treat it like Empath because it looks like Empath. And I mean, that's, I love it because that's stuff that we've talked about here on the show. We've talked about... You know, the, the fact that these are these people are experiencing death, whether or not they're still on the page or still in the story, they died. These are different characters in a way. And it's just very, very interesting to see that brought to light from a, ca- a character in the book. And hats off to uh, Zeb Wells for doing what he's doing here. I, I, I mean, I think I mentioned this during our Hellions number one discussion that Wells was a guy that I wanted to hate. I wanted to hate him a lot because I was jealous of him. <laughs> he was, uh... The first time I saw his name was in, like, uh, these wizard contests where I think he sent in, like, home movies and was winning these prizes. And I'm like, ah, screw this guy. Screw this guy. Because I was jealous of him. Here he is just kicking ass on this book. And it is just wonderful here. Um, I never... I mean, I feel like I'm a broken record here. And in a lot of ways, I am. I would have never accept, expected this amount of depth... And thoughtfulness and heart in this book And boy, it's got it It's got it Uh, Let's talk about something that was mentioned in this issue twice The fact that Mr. Sinister has He's got black market clones under uh, Bar Sinister I wonder what that's all about Um, We do know that in one of Mora's um, futures uh, That he was responsible for the Chimeras Could this be you know, um, the alpha or the beta of, uh, of the Chimera program. I think that's going to be an interesting thing here, and I hope that we see more from this. We know that Sinister really doesn't have that much respect for meat, right? For husks, body husks, you know? We saw at the, uh, at the House for Foundlings where Nanny found the, you know, the drums full of bodies. Just bodies that he rejected. You know, failed clones, clones that were just dismissed. And here, he's got a whole... We don't even know what the size or scope of his black market is, but for all we know, he could have one of everybody. And, I mean, that's that's really interesting. That's really interesting. And then if he starts a mating process, I mean, we could be in Chimera Land pretty quick. So that is really cool that we're getting a mention of that because it's one of the few things that's bringing me back to Hoxpox and being like, oh, okay, that, that, that could be something. Let's talk a little bit about Otherworld. Uh, you guys know I am not a fan of Otherworld here, but the way this story went, I actually enjoyed our little trip there. Uh, I think it's all about the presentation, right? Um, the other Otherworld was just a place where our characters were rather than defining where our characters were, like we have been seeing in, in books like Excalibur, where everything is just like, well, it's Otherworld. Here, it was like, well, he, these are our characters, and they just so happen to be going through Otherworld. 
they're on a path somewhere And they, we got to see them react to Otherworld Rather than just standing around having Otherworld happen Right? I don't know if that makes any sense It does to me It just feels like this was a less severe um, Just plunging of Otherworld into our eyeballs here This was far less severe While we were in Otherworld uh, Sinister made an arrangement with Empath Which I don't know that I totally get I don't know that I totally understand this He's pleading with Empath to mess with the minds of the priestesses to let let them to have them let them go, right? To have them leave them alone, let the Hellions go about their business. Doesn't Mister Sinister or, or Psylocke even have powers that might be able to to do that? Like, is Empath maybe a little redundant in this case? And if so, why are we you know why are we begging and pleading him to to do it? I think Sinister probably could have done this just fine on his own. I don't know. At least it gave us a little bit of comedy with a uh, nice guy Grey Crow for a minute, which I mean, it's funny. It, it is it's low hanging fruit to be sure. Uh, just like when they turned Guy Gardner into the nice guy back in the uh, in the late eighties. It's silly. It's basic, but uh, I can't lie and say that I didn't think it was it was a little cute. You know, uh, having having Grey Crow running ahead of the horses saying, you know, Miguel de Roca is a genius, uh, Empath's a genius. I, it's silly. It's funny. Especially considering that he, you know, knocked two or three issues ago, blew his brains out. It's funny. Uh, which brings me to my final point here. This is a funny book. This is a funny book. We talk about it all the time to the point where it's kind of a meme here on the show. It's hard to write comedy. And a lot of our writers... Can't <laughs> And uh, Zeb Wells is one that can uh, Sinister uh, Was a character here The sassy version of Sinister was one I did not care for When we started Hoxpox back in the long ago I had reservations About it, I thought it was a little bit Reductive, I thought it was like I thought it was um, It's hard to really even Put into words what I'm trying to say here we all say we all know that he looks very clownish. He looks very campy, right? But he's this, you know, no pun intended. He's a sinister character, but he looks very campy. He looks very silly. He looks, you know, Frankenfooter from uh, Rocky Horror. And now we have him acting like that. And I usually don't care for that. Uh, one of my favorite DC characters is Vartox, who was I, I usually refer to him as the Superman who failed because he was unable to save his home planet. And his powers were always weird, and he was always haunted by the death of his wife, and he was just a very, very tortured and haunted character. Well, you jump ahead to 2010 or so, and it's like, hey, there's this guy with a hairy chest, he's got a mustache, he's probably a swarthy, you know, 70s porn star. And so they changed the character to being a womanizing, uh, you know, 70s stereotype. I wasn't a fan of that. I liked the stories, the stories were funny, but... At the core of the character, it changed it quite a bit Just to reduce a character to what he looks like And I feel like that's what happened with Sinister here It's like, it's like, how could we ever take this clown seriously? Let's just camp him up And I did not like it at first Here, though, it was funny I can't lie and say it wasn't funny Because him saying, hey, 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 everybody look at me During the uh, Quiet Council session That was funny him doing the, you know, what you talking about, Willis, when uh, when Exodus was like, well, you'll go with your team, right? 
I thought that was very funny. Uh, even the little the little sinister versus the clone, you know, evens and odds match. It was funny. Uh, I think I've about had it with all the cape references, but other than that, uh, really, really funny stuff. Um, cannot say enough good things about this book. This is a solid book. If you're not reading, if you're not reading the X books and you're X curious, try Hellions. You know, try Marauders. Try Hellions. I think you'll be happy in both cases here. These are the, definitely the the dark horse. X books here because I never ever would have thought that a book called Marauders and a book called Hellions were going to be at the top of my pile and and here we are really really good stuff so it's about all I got to say about this issue the X of tensness of it didn't really uh, get in the way of just a really fun and character driven story really really fun stuff here but uh, I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did and I look forward to hearing from all of you. Uh, speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag here, where we've got two letters about Excalibur number 12. First one's from Damien. He says, I mentioned before that I've read the entire X of Ten's crossover, but skipped a lot of the lead-in. This issue reads better if you have already read X of Ten's, but it still doesn't really work. Basically, it exists to create the external gate, which is a key element of the crossover, and that that's its only purpose. I'll be honest, it never occurred to me that the external gate was made out of actual externals, and that was a bit of a surprise, but this issue is a bit pointless. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, yeah, the uh, the two prelude issues we got, um, the X of Ten's preludes, uh, Excalibur and X-Men number 12, oh boy, not good, not good. Um, really just, they felt so rushed. They felt incomplete, they felt uneven, they felt just like, we have to get these out, so here you go. Damien continues, Am I right in thinking that X of Tens was initially meant to happen earlier? I feel like the last few issues of Excalibur are padding to hold off the start of X of Tens. Yes, I think so. I think it almost had to have been, right, with the whole COVID hiatus that we had I'm thinking that we were supposed to get this a lot sooner. I don't know what the numbers would have been. Um, I'd have to dig around my my Marvel previews to see if there were if I do have any kind of solicitations for them, as they were originally supposed to come out. But uh, almost had to have been right because you're right. Um, very very padded. Very very. Uh, I'm not even gonna say decompressed. Just padded. Like nothing was happening, and we're just. I think I complained in Excalibur number 11 where it was just like, scenes happened, but they didn't end. It was like, here's a scene. Okay, now here's another scene. Well, here's another scene. And nothing really nothing really did anything. It was just like, okay, here, here are scenes. Great. Uh, Damien continues. I know we don't always agree, but I genuinely think you will prefer X of Tens to this issue. It does vary in quality, but it's generally good, and I would rate the Excalibur issues as some of the best. And yes, yeah, so far so good, right? Outside of the hiccup we had with uh, the Ben Percy corner of the books, the uh, Wolverine and X-Force issues, it's been solid. It's been solid. Um, the Marauders issue was good. The uh, This issue here was great. The X-Factor issue was great. And uh, Creation was a, was a pretty good start. The free comic book day one, I don't know if we can count that as a main part of the story, was a little bit of a eh. But everything else outside of the uh, Percy corner has been, been pretty good. Good to, good to great. Damien continues, you're right about Saturnine looking like Emma Frost. If you think it's bad now, wait until you read Creation. Thank you. Thank you, yes, because... 
Oh, man. Um, it's so weird that we have Saturnine in such a prominent role at, the, at a time where Emma Frost really isn't, right? I mean, she's a major part of the Marauders book, but as it pertains to the Exitens event, she's really just like at the Quiet Council spouting a few words off. You know, she isn't part of it in a really big way. So it's weird that we get someone who looks just like her, who's front and center, and then we have Emma just off to the side. So every time I see Saturnine, I'm thinking, oh, that what's Emma up to? So uh, it, 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 they look way, way too much alike. Uh, Damien wraps up with, until I become Captain Britain, make my next lapsed. Well, if there were ever a vote, you'd have mine, for sure. I would vote for you to be Captain Britain any day of the week, twice on Sunday. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Excalibur number 12. And uh, over here, we have Evan, who's also talking about that very issue. He says, regarding Excalibur number 12, it wasn't just you struggling to follow it. I felt like for much of these, this series, there's a story being told that I'm just not getting. Twelve issues in, and I still don't know why it's important to have a Krakoan gateway to Otherworld. And didn't they already have one? And didn't Richter just plant and go through another one? So the externals had to die to make the one on to make the one on the other side. I think that makes sense to Teeny Howard and probably some readers, but not to me. And I don't think my lack of reading comprehension, though certainly present at times, is solely to blame. Maybe X of Tens has explained it all by now, and I hope Maggot is involved. <laughs> You will always, you will always promote Maggot, and unfortunately, we we've only seen him that one time. In <laughs> oh boy, um, our friend uh, Eds shared that uh, panel with us. What I think it was Excalibur number one. He was there with uh, Marrow, but uh, maybe one of these days Maggot will be something. But yeah, we do have some a bit of an explanation about the external gate. I guess uh, Apocalypse does mention that uh, not only mutants can use it. I don't know what that means. I don't know if we're going to be seeing people come and go. I really don't know. I'm assuming that it'll be explained, because uh, otherwise they would then they would have really wasted our time if not. And I mean, I've said it before, and uh, I apologize for repeating myself so much, but I am not terribly creative, so I repeat myself a lot. Um, with the past several issues of Excalibur, I really legitimately no hyperbole involved here i thought i skipped an issue and that's not good you know that's not a good way a good place to be uh when you're reading you know serialized fiction not knowing where you are and unfortunately that's where we've been in excalibur i don't know how much we can blame on the creative team because like we said there was the COVID hiatus they're trying to get their stuff in and sometimes you know, I'm thinking back to um, when Reggie and I were covering the second wave of Young Animal books. And these were four books. Three three of them were supposed to be ongoings. We had a Mother Panic book, uh, Shade the Changing Woman, and a Cave Carson book. And they were supposed to be ongoings, but after the second or third issue, they were retroactively named miniseries. And of course, they were always meant to be miniseries, except if you read the solicits. And... We were talking about truncation and letting things go that don't work, right? I mean, when you're presented the opportunity to write a story, you want to get your stuff in, right? You do want to get the your beats in, the things you want to say. You want to make sure you have the opportunity to say it, regardless of whether or not it actually organically fits into the story. And, I mean, sometimes even at the expense of the story, 
And we talked about leaving, letting go of the opus, you know? We talked about taking bits and pieces that maybe you don't need to address, remove them because they're inconvenient and complicated, and then just tell your story because you only have X amount of pages to do so. With Excalibur, I'm feeling a lot of those same sort of truncation pains here. It's like, we did have the hiatus. We do have this this massive 22-part crossover, uh, you know, right there on the horizon. But there's still bits and pieces of story that they wanted to fit in, and they were going to do it, damn it, whether it worked or not. Which is why we had weird, disjointed-feeling stories here. We had that one story where... Where Jamie Braddock makes you know a whole other a whole other Betsy a decent enough issue, but it was pages that yeah maybe could have been spent another way, maybe could have been used to make issue twelve of Excalibur a little less weird. You know I'm I'm probably just talking on my ass at this point, but I feel like there there were some truncation pains, and you know at the end of the day there's really no one to blame because you know, life happened. Life sure happened last year, so things uh, things got wonky, and we do the best we can to uh, make what the uh, you know to to scoop the pieces up and, and put them in some sort of an order that makes sense. So, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that and for making me feel not so alone in in not being able to follow some of these things, Evan. So, thank you so much. And that is where we'll leave the mailbag for today. If anybody would like to reach out and be part of the mailbag, please. Please feel free to do so. I I, uh, I encourage it. I encourage it because I am lonely and I, I like uh, I like to talk to you guys. So, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us on Facebook. Nineties X Men is our little group. And you can listen to a whole lot of noise at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for today. I'm trying to do the math in my head here. I think we're now three elevenths through uh, X of tens here. I mean, that's that's something, isn't it? Is that even a fraction? Maybe. I don't know. I think we're three elevenths of the way through. So uh, we'll leave it there. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And till next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 117 of X Last, where we're just about a third, I think, a third of the way through our big 22 pot crossover event here. Uh, let's get right into it. This is uh, New Mutants, volume 4, number 13. Had a December 2020 cover date. The story's called Exoswords, chapter 7. Written by Ed Brisson with art by Rod Reese. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Zabolski, cover price $3.99, and went on sale October 14th of 2020. And yeah, my, my chair is still a little squeaky. I haven't, uh, I haven't thrown this one out the window yet. So apologies if, I, uh, if my squeaking is uh, distracting. But let's get into it. Uh, we open with magic. Now she's meditating, and it's not entirely clear if she's still sitting on her sigil, but doesn't really seem to be. She's overlooking a cliff. Uh, there's a nice sunset in the horizon there. It does answer one of my questions of whether or not the you know chosen champions are actually able to leave their sigils, because uh, well, Magic's not going to spend a whole lot of time in her sigil today. Anywho, she uh, places a cold Cyclops so that she can get in touch with Kid Cable to let him know that he and his Light of Galador will be needed for the contest of champions. And they're still mucking about with the sword satellite thing, which I'm assuming we're going to be seeing a whole lot more of next episode. Now, Cyclops assures Ilyana that they'll be back as soon as possible. And if I were a betting man, I'd say probably by the last page of next chapter. Probably. Okay, double page spread of creds, followed by our roll call. We got Cypher, Magic, Warlock, Krakoa, Charles Xavier, and Exodus. Back to comics, and we are witness to a chat between Doug and Warlock. Now, Warlock, I don't know if it's worth noting or not, but I will anyway. Uh, he talks with a very Deadpool-y yellow, you know, word balloons here. Uh, now, the talk is kind of interesting, but at the same time a little bit redundant, at least to me. First, uh, we get mentioned that Warlock being present on Krakoa will no longer be like the worst-kept secret in the X-Books. I guess Doug figured that all of his friends would just assume he sprouted a techno-organic arm or something, and that Warlock wasn't actually there. I guess there's something to be said for patronizing your pal. Um, of course, Magic already knows that Warlock is here. She did see him do the thing with those uh, those scarabs or beetles or whatever the hell they were over in Giant Size Nightcrawler. And I'd assume pretty much everyone knows, but uh, they're just being nice to, uh, to poor Doug. Now, the bit that's a bit redundant to me, and this might just be one of those Chris problems that we encounter every now and again. Um, to me, Doug Ramsey has kind of turned into, like, the mutant's answer to Aquaman. Now, hear me out here. Now, Aquaman was looked at by the layperson as kind of a jokey character, right? He's the one who can dur her talk to fish. Right? While the rest of the Justice League would just go out and fight and save the world, Aquaman's the, oh yeah, by the way, go talk to the fish, dur her. Now that became so ingrained in his presentation that I feel like for the past, I don't know, quarter century or so, it feels like every Aquaman story is about showing how he isn't a joke character. You know, he's become just so ingrained as this character that people look at as a joke that it's like this uphill climb to legitimize him. Every story is about, like, ooh, see how powerful he is? Ooh, ooh, see how, see how strong he is? See, see how he can do more than just talk to fish. Even though, you know, the writers of Aquaman will always mention that he talks to fish because LOL random. I don't know. Now, Doug, over here, he's got these, you know, not-so-useful-on-the-battlefield powers of translation. You know, if this were the real world... 
I mean, he'd be a very useful fella. But on the battlefield, you know, wielding a sword? Eh, not so much. Now, we know it, and we've heard it, and we've all joked about it. And it feels like, for a while now, if not his entire existence, any time a writer focuses on Doug, their main goal is to establish that there's more to him than being a translator. Sometimes it's through really imaginative use of his power, and sometimes it's showing that he actually has more skills than meets the eye, and we'll talk a little bit more about those later. It's not a bad thing. I mean, don't get me wrong here, it's just something that's been used to the point where it's become, at least to me, a very, very visible and very, very obvious trope. Whenever there's Doug, it's all about showing that he's more than what he is. It's the Doug Aquaman thing that I uh, that I just find to be a bit redundant. Um, anyway, Warlock turns into a sword for Doug to wield, and as our cover suggests, and this cover, I believe it's Rod Reese who did the cover, but I don't like it. I've been staring at this cover for months now, and it's just like, ugh, don't like it. But the cover does suggest that he is sparring with magic, and that's exactly what happens, and it does not go well for Doug. Now, as Ilyana pounds him into the ground, she also pounds us over the head with a bit of exposition. You know, did you know that deaths in other Otherworld are, like, permanent deaths? Just making sure you knew that, because uh, we... Yeah, we might have heard that a few times. From here, an info page about the Soul Sword. And we all know what the Soul Sword is, but let me tell you about the first time I remember hearing or seeing the Soul Soul Sword. Now, as I came into the X-Books, as many people know, was the early 90s, Ilyana was back to being a little girl, and like a year into my reading, she was the first casualty of the Legacy Virus. That's all I knew of her, so I didn't know from magic. I did know, however, that a whole lot of X-Fans seemed to be quite enamored with her. Now, my first Uncanny X-Men old back issues that I, you know, dug around the the reader bins for back in the 90s were actually some tattered versions of the Limbo storyline, like probably Uncanny 160-ish or so. The one with, like, Belasco and Sim and Magic before she got the Soul Sword. I read them, I enjoyed them, but as I didn't live them... I still didn't quite see the fuss. And as a matter of fact, here in 2021, despite having read more more or less 90-odd percent of everything with an X on it, and at the risk of having to surrender my X-Fan card, I still don't really see the fuss in Ilyana Rasputin. Um, now, to continue my little anecdote here, we jump to an issue of, of all things, X-Men Unlimited probably around 1996 or 1997. I want to say 97. The story, which I don't remember, ended with a hand grabbing the soul sword. And uh, I've talked before about my time on Usenet. Usenet, the rack sex sem, whatever the hell it was, uh, went nuts. They went nuts about it. People were going gaga with the idea that Ileana was still somehow on the table and maybe just living in limbo. And it was a whole lot of fun to see such excitement and even to read a whole bunch of like passionate armchair booking of the X-Books, like how do we make this work? At the end of the day, I think it was revealed that Amanda Sefton was the new magic or something, and I'm not sure how long that lasted, and I don't think she was used all that much, if at all, uh, in the role, but uh, that's something that'll always come to mind anytime I stop to think about the Soul Sword, so that's that. Um, back to comics. Doug is in the Quiet Council table, and uh, Krakoa is pleading with him to find a way out of this fight. 
Now, if you remember, Doug is Krakoa's translator and de facto voice. Doug gets what Krakoa is saying, but feels, I don't know, maybe honor-bound to compete. Uh, he was part of the prophecy, after all. He was chosen. You know, he, you know, a guy's got to do what a guy's got to do. Now, Charles Xavier is present to witness this exchange. Doug asks what's actually going to happen should Sinister and the Hellions plan to swipe the Iraqi swords not work. Well, Xavier ain't sure. This whole contest of swords deal is new to everybody. He just hopes that Sinister's plan actually works. I'm pretty sure it won't. Info page, the Hot Hive. Um, another kingdom of Otherworld, and this one seems like it's full of bee people? Or maybe I'm just profiling? I don't know. Back to comics, and we get back to sparring with Ilyana, and it's still not going all that well for Doug. Now, Krakoa gets involved, tangling Ilyana up in some vines, which, you know, might help Cypher here, but won't do diddly squat once he's in Otherworld. Magic and Doug sit to chat, and once again we discuss the threat and the stakes. Ilyana tells Doug that once the real fighting begins, to make sure he sticks as close to her as possible, and then she leaves. Doug isn't left by his lonesome for long, however, because he's next joined by Exodus. And Exodus has a, uh, I guess we can call it a proposition. He invites Doug to die by uh, wrapping his hand around Doug's throat and threatening to choke the life out of him. Uh, Now, you see, there is a method to this madness, right? Uh, We do know that the resurrection protocols have been suspended, okay? So if Doug were to die now... Saturnine would have to uh, prophesy up a replacement combatant for this contest of swords. She might even choose Exodus himself for the role. Now, Warlock tries to help his self-friend, but Exodus is far too powerful. Doug declines the offer, and Exodus finally lets go. Now, as he walks away, he tells Doug to consider the offer for a bit, because he'll, <laughs> I guess he'll always be willing to oblige uh, Doug the sweet release of death. Uh, next info page is the Warlock Sword, and we know we know what Warlock is, right? But let me tell you the first time I ever saw the guy. Now, as many listeners know, I came into comics via ElfQuest. Now, these were the Marvel Epic ElfQuests, which, uh, believe it or not, I've actually got a show about, which hopefully once things get settled down in my real life, we'll be able to get back to. But uh, one of the coolest parts about reading ElfQuest this way was getting to see all the great Marvel house ads. And some of them were those uh, Bill Sienkiewicz drawn New Mutants ads, which left me feeling very uneasy, um, to the point where I vowed never, ever to read those stories. And, uh, well, I mean, I have in the interim many times and probably will again, but as a, you know, scared rabbit eight-year-old, I did not want anything to do with these creepy characters here. And Warlock was among the creepier because it's like, what in the hell is he? Really, really off-putting, really just... Uncomfortable to look at uh, as a child that uh, Bill Sienkiewicz art, but uh, I've come to really appreciate and adore the stuff. So, uh, yeah, what did I know? You know, back to comics. Doug is chilling at the sextant. I-, I guess maybe he's more brooding than chilling, but he's here. That's all we need to know. He's soon joined by Mondo with a belly full of Krakoa. Now remember, Krakoa can communicate through Mondo. It's just kind of gross when he does. Now, the island once again suggests Doug, you know, duck out of this contest. You even offers to hide him out somewhere. Saturnine won't be able to find him. It won't be pleasant, Krakoa says, but it is possible. 
Now, Doug admits that he's terrified at the prospect of dying in battle, but this is something he's just got to do. We shift ahead to another sparring session with Ilyana, where it would appear that Doug is doing much better at holding his own. Of course, it's uh, revealed pretty much immediately that magic is going easy on him to help bolster his self-confidence. You know, he knows it, she confirms it. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Now we wrap up with Doug taking his spot at the X of Swords action figure display playset, with some words from Ilyana where she tells Doug that, uh, well, basically there's no way he's going to survive this. Uh, she says, if you lift your sword in Otherworld, it'll be the last thing you ever do, which is uh, uh, not not motivational speaking. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but uh, that's where we leave it. Next, uh, we're going to head up to the satellite with Cable and uh, his folks, so uh, look forward to that. But I guess we should talk about this issue of New Mutants. It was fine. It was okay. <laughs> it wasn't a bad issue. Uh not a whole lot to talk about, though. I think this issue went exactly the way it was going to go, right? There was not, there weren't very many surprises here. Uh, this was just kind of a, a means to an end. We know Doug's one of the chosen. We know Warlock's his sword. We know Doug is not suited for combat, so we gotta do something with him. And uh, that's exactly what we uh, what we did here. Um, let's take some takeaways here. Uh, Doug being honor bound, right? Um, I mentioned it during the synopsis here, you know, when when people write Doug, they try to, I don't want to say overcompensate, because, I mean, he has a really great power, it's just not useful um, in all situations. And I don't understand the fascination with making it so Doug, like he's on a, an equal playing field with the, you know, the fighting characters, where, I mean, we've seen, we've seen instances recently We've had to, I mean, we're dealing with Russia constantly in these books. And we saw Boom Boom try to try to translate Russian and, and did a decent enough job at it. But without Doug there, I mean, they were kind of just stuck. So we're not, it's like we're not making the other characters at the same level of Doug intellectually or with not fighting related powers. I, I'm, I don't know if I'm making sense here. I just feel like everybody has their niche. But we've spent so much time trying to make Doug's more all-encompassing useful than just as useful as he is, because he is very, very useful. I do appreciate that he's honor-bound to do this, right? Um, and I gotta say, I don't... I'm not a, you know, fake-ass comics historian as it pertains to Doug Ramsey so much. I've read uh, pretty much all of his appearances, but a lot of it just kind of melds together, right? I mean, he's already died, didn't he? I think. <laughs> I don't know if they retconned that out, but I, I know I saw him dead. I know I saw Warlock carrying his body around trying to reanimate him. I know we read that and we enjoyed that. But uh, I don't remember... I don't know how he came back. Was it during that Necrotia thing? I don't know. But I know we had, like, Douglock uh, over in Excalibur during the 90s. We had that really, really weird uh, Warlock ongoing... Well, it was an, it was uh, allegedly an ongoing series uh, out of the Marvel M-Tech line, that short-lived line of uh, comics with uh, X-51 and Deathlock. And then Doug was just, like, back uh, with New Mutants Volume 3. And we're going to talk a little bit more about New Mutants Volume 3 in a bit here, as I think I recall that being a really good use of Doug in that... Rather than trying to force him into combat roles, they really just got 
they just really went zany with his translation powers here. They used some very imaginative ways to make to make him more uh, useful, and it actually did lead to him being more useful in combat situations, but we're going to get to that in just a bit. Uh, Warlock. Let's talk about Warlock here. He's the worst-kept secret on the island, right? I don't know why. Like, uh, I don't know why he's a secret. Why is Doug sneaking him and smuggling him around here? Especially when, I mean, it's obvious. I mean, Doug doesn't have a techno-organic arm, but he does now. It's bizarre. Um, I can't remember which issue it was, but I could have sworn we actually saw Doug sort of, like, upload or infect Krakoa with some techno-organics. I don't think I dreamt that. I think it might have... Maybe it was the Nova Roma issue? I don't know, but uh, I suppose that might be a reason why it's a secret, you know, uh, that he's doing something... Maybe not so much nefarious, or just behind the back of the, the members of the Quiet Council. Don't know. Don't know, especially when, I mean, everybody seems to know that Warlock's there, and they're just kind of being polite to Doug. I I really don't know. Um, the upload here, uh, that might... Maybe that'll be revealed as one of the reasons why our characters are acting so weird. Like, maybe there's a hint at a post-human future or some sort of a hive mind or something. Am I thinking too much about a throwaway scene that I might have just misunderstood or misread or made up in my own mind? I don't know. Um, I also remember that weird scene of Cyclops seeing Doug and Warlock chatting, and then, like, one panel later, Cypher was sitting alone. I don't think I dreamt that, but I I really don't know. I have flipped through the... uh, the X of Swords handbook, which there will be an episode on um, eventually, as soon as my life gets settled down there, that I'm going to be putting that together. But there is mention of Warlock being a secret, and it we're promised that it'll eventually be revealed as to why. So I guess we could just uh, stick everything I just said in the in the theory pile, good or bad. It'll just sit there and wait until we find out. Um, Ilyana, let's talk about Ilyana for a minute. Um, I don't like her. <laughs> I don't like her characterization here. I mean, I get what she's going for, but I mean, she feels like, and this might be intentional, I I didn't live Ilyana while she was magic the first time. I've mentioned that. Um, But it feels like she has, like, no humanity here. She's just this, like, fighting machine, a killing machine, a, uh... It feels... I mean, this might sound like a weird thing to say, but she almost feels like... Like, we talk about the the Claremont strong female character, right? This take on magic, uh, this, like, kind of bully take on magic, it feels almost like a parody of the, the you know, the classic Claremont strong female protagonist. It's, I don't know, it's it's off-putting to me. I, I, I just don't know. Very, very standoffish, just doesn't, doesn't have, it lacks heart. And, I mean, that very well could be the, the you know, the uh, point that uh, is just soaring over my thick dome. I don't know, but uh, I don't like it. Uh, finally, um, back to that uh, New Mutants Volume 3 take on Doug. Something that I wanted to bring up here is that they got very, very creative with what Doug could translate, right? We saw him like uh, doing like computer coding, right? We saw him do that. We saw him do all sorts of different languages, and one of the languages that he was sort of getting a handle on was body language, being able to read body language, which would make him 
more useful in battle situations. And I don't know if that's been walked back. I don't know if maybe they just haven't thought to bring it back. Maybe that would just take a lot of the wind out of the uh, out of the drama of this arc. But Doug, in a combat situation, if he's able to read body language, he should be a step ahead of whoever he's taking on, or at least on a level playing field with, despite his lack of combat training and, uh, you know, just combat knowledge. He should be able to read body language and know or have a good idea of what his opponent is uh, is thinking and what they're going to do. We don't get a mention of that. Maybe it'll come up during the fight. I don't know who, who he's going to be pitted up against, but uh, maybe body language will be a factor in the upcoming duel. Uh, Warlock, as a sword... Is he limited to just being a sword? You know, uh, we've seen in the past that Warlock has turned himself into armor for Doug. Will we see... Will Will Warlock be able to do that? Is that against the rules of Saturnine's contest? Can Warlock just start changing shapes? Can Warlock turn into a gun? Can Warlock turn into a cannon? Can Warlock do whatever it is a Warlock can do during that battle? Is it just that we need Doug and Warlock as the combatant? And they can just do whatever the hell they want? I'm looking forward to seeing if that's the case, or if, or if a warlock's going to be locked into this uh, sword form for the duration. I guess, uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. And uh, I mean, we are almost at the halfway point here, so eh, I guess it won't be too long now. But uh, as far as the issue overall, uh, it was beautiful. Of course, it was Rod Reese. It was a very, very nice looking book, um, and it was probably the strongest uh, Ed Brisson issue. To this point, so not a bad issue, not a bad issue. Um, a decent enough chapter. I do like that they mentioned the Hellions doing their trek through Otherworld. Uh, really makes this, you know, makes it feel sequential. And uh, I was worried that it wasn't, especially after reading that uh, that two part Wolverine story, where that just feels like it happened on its own whenever it wanted to. So it's nice that we're getting, you know, some cohesive, uh, some connective tissue throughout our chapters and throughout the uh, line here. So. Good enough issue. Good enough issue. Uh, looking forward to Cable next time out, but uh, I think that's all I have to say about New Mutants number 13. Now, before we go, let's head into the mailbag here. We just got one letter today, and it's from Damien, and he's talking about Giant Size X-Men Storm number one. Now, he says, The thing that really confuses me about Giant Size X-Men is the fact that, as you say, they could have all been regular issues of X-Men. You talk about how they spun off as a separate story to rinse an extra $25 from the fans, but Giant Size sells far worse than X-Men. Surely Marvel would have made more money had they double-shipped X-Men with a special longer issue drawn by Russell Dodderman. It seems like Marvel's being, uh, oh boy, you would make me say this on the air, avaricious? (laughs) It seems like Marvel's being avaricious, but doing it badly. We could very easily be up to X-Men number 16 by folding Giant Size into that run. And that's a great point. That's an excellent point here. I didn't even consider that uh, Giant Size would obviously sell worse than the main you know, flagship of the, of the line here. And obviously, you know, with the, X, the inflated price and the focus on a singular character, uh, despite you know, how f- popular they might be, it's, it's a harder sell than a standard... You know, this is the next number in the flagship, you know, uh, a volume. So, yeah, that's a great point. Which makes me wonder why why in the hell they did it this way to begin with. It's so weird. 
it's so weird. And I mean, it doesn't help that it was pointless <laughs> for the most part. Uh, Damien continues, It's frustrating that Hickman keeps setting up so many things that don't come to fruition. We talk about Chris Claremont and his dangling plot lines, but he would never use an entire issue solely to set up something that he's going to ignore. This is what forces us to make up our own headcanon. He just keeps setting up more mysteries, and we're expected to be willing to read stories that are incomplete. Every issue of Giant Size X-Men set up something new. Even this issue was more about setting up the consciousness that Doug talks to at the end than it was about Storm. As I reread along with you, I started to think about who or what that could be, and thinking if uh, thinking about if it was a birth of something from the powers of X futures. That very well could be, right? I mean, we just talked a little bit about, um, you know, Doug and Warlock, and the whether or not I dreamt it or not, the upload into Krakoa of techno-organics here, and maybe that is something setting up some sort of future. We also have Doug talking to this uh, weird little critter in the, uh, in the world, and maybe that's going to set something up. It's... We're getting a lot of uh, we're getting a lot of batter. We just uh, we haven't made any pancakes yet, right? It's uh, we're getting a lot of stuff though. Uh, Damien continues. Then I got to the part of the episode where you were responding to my X Factor feedback. You were saying fairly that if the behaviors of the characters only work in X Factor by applying headcanon, then the story is failing, and it got me thinking. Why am I willing to criticize Leah Williams, Benjamin Percy, and Teeny Howard for the fact that I have to provide half the story? but I give a free pass to Hickman when he does the same thing. Is it solely because he has a reputation for long runs that follow a plan? I don't know if I should be giving less benefit of the doubt to Hickman or more to the new guys. Either way, I think I've been unfair in some of my responses. This then made me think of the review discussion you had. I follow loads of comics creators on Twitter, and I generally wonder if my responses to their social media affects how I respond to their work. For example, I follow Leah Williams on Twitter, and based on her post, I think she—I think I would like her in person. Do I let that color how I respond to her writing? Am I less critical of things in her stories than I would be of something written by Dan Slott, as an example of someone who I think comes across as insufferable on Twitter? I actually don't know, so it's hard to be genuinely objective. That's a very good question, and I mean, that's something that I've thought about for as long as I've been doing this. I mean... I've been reviewing stuff uh, improfessionally, unprofessionally, amatorily <laughs> for the past five years now. And you get a feel pretty quick for how um, the rest of the reviewing hive mind are going to uh, receive certain stories, certain books, based on who's writing it and who's, uh, who's on, who, what the creative team is. Because there are folks out there, there are professionals out there who are more active on social media and more apt to give you the pat on the head if you say something nice about their work and they're the ones who get better reviews i mean there is a direct causality between the two it is a very very strong cause and effect tom king will pat you on the head so professional reviewers are going to give tom king the 10 out of 10 a great writer like jeff lemire is, is more quiet on on social media so people are more willing to give him the 8 out of 10 or the 7 out of 10 and I think that that's just something that, uh, I mean, it doesn't speak to the uh, integrity of the reviewing process, but it does speak to the um, nature of social media, I guess, and the fact that we are so close to these creators now, and we really, really shouldn't be. And it's really not something I even like to talk about, but um, considering that uh, noted... 
Twitter coward uh, Al Ewing is about to enter our purview after uh, X of Swords. Uh, we'll probably be talking about that a little bit more in the uh, not-so-distant future. But uh, Damien continues. Moving on to the what-if discussion. I always found X-Men Forever to be a very odd series. The ultimate problem is that the good Claremont X-Men was never about him doing whatever he wanted. It was about him working with someone else who inspired him. Whether that was someone he was chafing against like John Byrne or Bob Harris, or someone he was in harmony with like Dave Cockrum, Louise Simonson, or Anne Nascenti. X-Men Forever was crippled by being a Claremont project that everyone else just went along with. Boom. Perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And uh, it reminds me of uh, one of the old uh, pro wrestling anecdotes from the late 1990s, um, where a writer from the WWE went over to WCW uh, in order to like say, reinvigorate. Right, reinvigorate the uh, the ratings and just get people excited about the product again after the pendulum had swung the other direction. And this writer, um, he worked within a uh, you know a closed system where he was and had to filter. Had, you know his work was filtered through several channels before it made it to its final you know form. But when he went to this new company, people just assumed he was a bulletproof genius, and his work went direct from his pen to the television. So a lot of people saw the uh, the uneven <laughs> uneven quality that he was uh, actually responsible for, and how you do need boundaries, right? You, I, I mean, I can go into a whole other tangent now that also concerns John Byrne when uh, they... When Marvel and DC, they all like stepped away from the Comics Code Authority, and John Byrne was not so much outspoken, but he kind of played devil's advocate because he's John Byrne, and that's kind of what John Byrne does. And he was talking about how, uh, you know, this creative freedom by not having to work within the constraints of the Comics Code Authority might be, you know, a cursed chalice in some ways, where. You look over the years, the the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the 80s, everything that was in the Comics Code Authority are the classic stories. They're the stories that we still talk about now. They were all done within the, the you know, the uh, dictatorial uh, constraints of the Comics Code Authority. And he was talking about how, you know, you remove those things and you, you remove a level of creativity. And it's easy to just poo-poo John Byrne as being a contrarian, but if you stop and think about it, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, you have to be creative in order to kind of kind of toe the line and push the envelope at the same time. And I feel like with Claremont on X-Men Forever, and I think I mentioned this when we brought it up last time, it was basically a case of we've got Claremont under contract to do two books a month, and uh, where can we put him where he ain't going to break anything? So they put him in his own corner. They said, do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> Nobody's going to bother you. And what we got was some very, very uninspired stuff where if the main continuity zigged, he zagged. If for no other reason than to be different. So uh, not a good book, not a good look. Uh, Damien continues. Personally, I can't see a way of returning the X-Men to the past that doesn't ruin everything. They either had to lose their memories or go into an alternate timeline. As a reboot, it would throw out too much important stuff and would only make X-Men continuity more complex. 
Now, what Damien's referring to is the um, question that I posed during X-Lapse the Nation, which is our look, our Sunday special, where we're looking at the X-Termination miniseries from 2018, where the time-displaced original five are sent back to where they came from. At least I think so. We're not through with it yet, so I don't know exactly where they came from. They muddled with this, or they mucked with this, I should say, throughout the six or seven years that the original five time-displaced characters were in the present. Uh, They ended one of the volumes of All New X-Men with them going back to the past and seeing themselves there already, which made everyone think that they were from a different timeline. So they could find out a whole bunch of stuff here, go back to where they actually came from, and not affect anything. I think that changed a few times. I think that uh, I think they ran kind of hot and cold with that. And if what I think is going to happen actually happens, um, these are the original five from the six one six continuity. But they uh, they almost have to be mind wiped uh, of their time in the present before they go back. So the question that I had posed during those episodes is: What could happen? Should they go back to the past if they are from the 616 uh, timeline with the knowledge that uh, of things like Dark Phoenix, of things like Cable being born, of things like Madeline Pryor? What would happen to the present day if our characters went back with the foreknowledge of that? It's, you know, the whole Back to the Future 2 thing where it's like, you know what's going to happen, so you can either turn into it or you can avoid it. And my question was... What could happen? I mean, it's not something we'll ever have to deal with, but uh, I, I was just, you know, floating floating a question out there to see what kind of answers we got. And But I do totally agree that if they did do this as a reboot, no matter how much sense it would have made in canon, it would have really muddled things up. It would have been, a, it would have been like uh, Spider-Man One More Day on steroids, where, I mean, that messed up a lot of stuff. That made a lot of stuff not make sense anymore. That made a lot of historians just bash their heads into their desks. But uh, I think if we did it with the X-Men, it would be even worse. Even worse than that. Uh, Damien continues. Sometimes I do wish for a reboot to simplify or fix certain elements, but the danger is that you take away good stuff with the bad. If you'd asked me pre-Hoxpox, I would have wanted to remove Cable and Quanon, reinstate the original plans for Sinister and Apocalypse, excise Origin from continuity, as well as making Sabretooth Wolverine's father and Mystique and Destiny Nightcrawler's parents. In doing this, I would have removed two of the best current X-Books and made the Resurrection Protocols and X of Tens impossible. And that's the problem with reboots. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's kind of a... I mean, this goes back to a conversation we had a while ago with the uh, the contentious skin in the game comment, where it's like, if we do decide to do this, then all of these decisions are going to be made by whoever's at the at the you know whoever's in the captain's chair at that moment. You know, it, it, we're, we are going to be beholden to their take on X Men continuity from from then to eternity, right? And that's a dangerous thing. And like you said, we risk losing the good with the bad, and good and bad are, are subjective. So it's like, who knows what could happen had that change, or any change. I mean, we, for all we know, we're button up against that change as we speak with the, uh, you know, Mora's 10th life here. 
we don't know what might happen if if that is the ending we're headed to. You know, if that's the the slot that the the little plinko chip is gonna head toward at the end of the uh, the Dawn of X, Reign of X, Hickman run. I mean, it could be uh, it could be harrowing, and uh, it might uh, maybe it'll turn us all off, and then in ten years we'll come back for uh, X lapsed round two. <laughs> Because we will have all stopped reading the books after that point But uh, that's something we'll worry about then (laughs) I think that'll uh, wrap up the mailbag here If anybody out there would like to be part of the mailbag I invite you to write in Uh, You can find me very easily on Twitter at AceComics Or you can shoot me an old-fashioned email at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com you can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfinitearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisoninfinitearths.com. You can join in the conversation on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to a whole bunch of comic book noise at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for today. I think we are just shy of one-third of the way through X of Tens now, so... uh We can all pat ourselves on the back for uh, running the first leg of this triathlon. (laughs) I think we uh, we get on a bike for the next uh, the next third. Either that or we swim. I don't know the order. Maybe there is no order. We'll just do what we're doing and uh, and hope for the best. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone for sharing your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to a uh, special late-night edition of X-Lapse. This is episode 118, and uh, I'm just going to say it, I'm very, very tired. It's been a very, very long week. But uh, you know what they say, neither uh, rain nor sleet nor uh, lack of sleep will stop us from you know, doing the thing, doing the thing that we do here. So let's do it. We're still in Exitens, and we are talking about Cable. Volume 4, number 5, which had a December 2020 cover date. The story is called X of Swords, Chapter 8. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. Letters, VCs Joe Sabino. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White-Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. 
went on sale October 14th of 2020. Now we open with Cable and his folks arriving at the peak. That's the S.W.O.R.D. S-W-O-R-D satellite we're going to have to pretend to give half a damn about during this story, and probably for many stories to follow. Now, as we saw in Exosword's creation, Cable used the light of Galador as a pointy set of jumper cables to bring the place back online. Upon arrival, they were sure there'd be some form of humanity here, but, uh, at least to this point, ain't no such thing. Go to a double-page spread of creds followed by our roll call. We're going to be focusing on Cable, Cyclops, Jean Grey, and Magic. Back to comics. Cable and company are walking down a corridor, and Jean is able to pick up some faint vibes, and decides that maybe it's best for them to split up and, you know, divide and conquer, try to find out any, if they can find any survivors or, or whatever, right? Now, this orb that they're on, being a perfect sphere, makes it so they can go opposite ways and rejoin at the other end. It's a ring deck, right? So, Gene heads one way, Cable and Scott the other. Next up, info page about Blightspoke, another kingdom of Otherworld, and, uh, quote, this place is poison. Okay, then. Back to comics. We, uh, we follow Cable and Cyclops first here. Now, during their trek, Magic calls in again to remind them that, uh, hey, guys, you know, the clock is ticking here. We got this thing we got to do pretty soon, so get back as quick as you can. And Scott assures her that they will. They'll be back just as soon as mutantly possible. That's worth noting, there are some humanoid-shaped burns in the wall, which makes Scott suggest that sword went down fighting. Too bad they're not going to stay down. Uh, Now, the fellas then happen across a door that was very crudely welded shut. Cyclops goes ahead and blasts their way in, and they find themselves stood before... uh, something. Don't worry, we'll find out what it is uh, a little bit later on. First, let's hop over to Jean. She enters a dwelling where that vibe was coming from. Now there, she finds the lone survivor of the, of the sword satellite. He sort of kind of tells her about everything that went down here, um, and how it was a mistake for them to repower the satellite in the first place. Yeah, I'm telling you, I mean, now we're stuck with a sword series. Now his tale of woe goes about as you might expect. You know, uh, there were a lot of people who died, and the ones who did die were the lucky ones. You know, stuff like that. He then turns around to let Jean re- into his mind so she can get, you know, the bigger picture. We don't actually see what it was that he experienced or what he saw, but uh, Jean is deeply affected. It's worth noting that this, eye- this fellow's eyes are, like, all messed up. Really, really gross-looking stuff here. Um, pretty wild. Uh, this survivor then engages the airlock and is sucked out into the vacuum of space. So, uh, I guess since he'd unburdened himself of the experience, there was uh, just nothing left for him. Gene rushes to be with Scott and Cable, telling them not to open any doors. We get to then, we then get to see what the Summers men are looking at, and it's a uh, great big glowing box or a glowing set of ethereal doors. Whatever the hell it is, it's glowing. Okay, now from this glowing mass emerge the Vescora aliens, um, a sentient virus. So, uh, yay, more generic Hickman aliens. Uh, we, we definitely needed that in Cable's book. Now our heroes destroy them, but it was only the first wave. These things just keep coming and coming and coming. Gene tells Nate to noink his sword out of the core, because they got to cut power to the satellite. And, uh, well, that's exactly what he does. He takes a little while to do it, but it's what he does. Next up, an info page detailing the Peak's black box recordings. Uh, 
which, you know, detail the Viscora incursion. We jump back to Krakoa, and uh, Cable takes his place on the X of Swords action figure display playset. So uh, we're halfway there. We got five of our sword warriors here. Next up, an info page about the Light of Galador, which is Cable's sword. And if you've been reading Cable, you already know all this. We wrap up the issue with Cyclops and Magic having a clandestine psychic chat. Now, it would seem as though Scott might have an ace up his sleeve as it pertains to this contest of champions. Well, at least he might think he has an ace up his sleeve. Uh, from what I'm getting here, it feels like he, uh, he wants to find a way to uh, maybe cheat and uh, somehow have all of the X-Men involved in this skirmish. I guess we'll see if that goes anywhere. It is worth noting that, that, that Scott is especially proud of this idea, which... Hey, I mean, it's as good as any, right? That's where we leave it. Next up, we're looking at Excalibur number 13, but how about we talk about, uh, how about we talk about this issue? Well, um, not a whole lot to say about this issue. Uh, there are times when a crossover helps to bolster a series. You know, we saw that in X-Factor. I think that, uh, being part of the X of Swords event helped X-Factor quite a bit. Then there are times where uh, being part of a crossover hampers an ongoing series, and uh, I think that's kind of the case here, uh, because this was the weakest issue of Cable yet. Really, I mean, it's just a filler chapter of X of Swords, right? Um, Cable already had his sword, and we watched him procure it over the last several issues of this volume. This was basically planting some seeds for that upcoming sword series, which... I couldn't care less about. Um, I didn't care about the first series of S.H.I.E.L.D., and I, I didn't care when the vaunted Joss Whedon introduced the concept. It's I don't care about any of the acronym uh, organizations in Marvel. I don't care about Hammer, don't care about S.H.I.E.L.D., really don't care about S.W.O.R.D. either. But we have a line of books we gotta bloat, so here we are. We gotta, we gotta crank as many of these damn things out as we humanly can. And hey, you know, I'm... Totally open to the possibility that I am completely wrong and I will absolutely fall in love with the sword concept after reading uh, Al Ewing's take on it. Um, so let's see. Why in story context are we even here on board the satellite? I mean, we know that we have a series we need to bloat the line with. But in the story, why are they here? Why are why are the summer zizzes here? Why did Saturnine place this image into Rachel and Nathan's heads during creation to begin with? I mean, Cable even asked that question during this issue. I'm assuming there's going to be an explanation. But I tell you, if it has to do with yet another generic alien invasion, I'd just as soon hope we don't get a, a, an explanation. You know, just let it drop. Let it drop. Make it be like, oh, we took that wrong left turn at Albuquerque and we wound up on the S.H.I.E.L.D. satellite. Bada bit, or sword satellite, bada-bing, bada-boom. One thing, my main takeaway, really my only takeaway from this issue, which, I mean, I hate saying this about an issue of Cable since I've been such a strong supporter of this title to this point. I mean, I don't blame the creative team for this. It's a beautiful issue. Phil Noto, you know, is Phil Noto. And uh, Jerry Duggan made the best out of uh, what, you know, the, the, the paces he had to be put through in order to get this story where it needed to go. I mean, we've been reading about people getting swords, right? That's been the story for every issue so far. Um, 
it's people familiarizing themselves with their swords or, or, or finding their swords. And here, I mean, Cable already had his sword, so we need to just send him away to make him come back so he can stand on the playset. One thing I appreciated here, and it might be a case of me thinking too hard. That's always a possibility. I really liked Scott having a plan at the end here. You know, um, Scott's plan, if what I'm reading is exact, is actually what I'm reading, he wants to be in communication with magic so he can know what's happening in this, in this skirmish, in this fight, hoping that the connectivity will somehow allow the other X-Men to engage in this battle, to help out. That's what I'm, that, that was my takeaway. I could be wrong. If that is the case... I'm really enjoying that we're seeing our heroes try to figure out ways around actually having to engage in a fair fight. Because to me, it speaks to a few different things here. First, it reminds us that the stakes here are indeed high, right? We know that Otherworld Resurrection glitch is in in place. We know that if they die in Otherworld, they're not coming back the same way that they left. So that does really reinforce the fact that we finally have some stakes here. The fact that the X-Men are trying to go around doing this fairly. Cyclops trying to get other people involved. The Hellions trying to steal the swords. I like that. I like that a lot. Second, it might speak to the mutants' place in the world right now, or at least how they view themselves in the world right now. I mean, Wolverine has said it many, many times. The Krakoans have gotten comfortable and soft, right? They've let their guards down. Maybe... They don't think they can win a fair fight. Maybe they've gotten too comfortable, too relaxed, too lax in their training here. They don't have stakes. Now when they're finally faced with stakes after having some time where they were just like, oh yeah, we got to throw another Quentin Quire on the fire, do it. You know, it didn't matter. Now we actually have stakes here and maybe, maybe they're second guessing themselves. I like that. Another thing, the mutants sort of kind of feel like they're above the law, right? Remember, they no longer answer to or abide by man's law, right? They're above the rules. So why would Saturnine's rules be any different to them, right? I like this. I like this. Unless, again, I'm reading way too much into this. It makes me feel like we're setting our heroes up for a pretty heavy reality check. Where they're going to find out that there's always, there's always going to be something superior out there. There's always going to be something that puts you in check. I really, really like that because we are seeing a whole different side of the X-Men here. And uh, it might not paint them in the best light or shine the best light on them, but uh, we do have patterns of behavior now in this new Dawn of X world where, yeah, they're, they're going to go outside the rules and they're going to make their own rules because they don't abide by anyone else's rules. I, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. But uh, overall, as much as it pains me to say it, um, this was... Yeah, like I said, the, probably the weakest issue of Cable yet. And that's only because it was kind of hornswoggled into doing what it had to do in order to put this, keep this story going the direction it needs to go instead of letting Cable do what Cable does. And uh, what he's done over the past four issues before this was uh, have really fun adventures. And uh, this was uh, a little bit less so. But that's all I got to say about this one. Like I said, there's not a whole lot to say. It was a pretty much a, a blink-and-you'll-miss-it sort of issue here. So uh, let's hop into the mailbag before we get out of here. We got a double dose of Damien and a little bit of Evan to cover today. We're going to start with Damien talking about X-Men number 12. 
Now he says, I was a little disappointed with this issue of X-Men. I think the real problem is that the story gives me no reason to care about the Summoner or his story. This material would have worked better peppered through various issues over the last few months, but it all just appears now. I can understand why people were nervous about X of Tens when this was the lead-in. It works much better if you just start with X of Tens creation like I did. And yeah, the uh, that was that was a very difficult story. Uh, this one for folks who who may just be joining us now. X Men Volume Five Number Twelve was the expositional dump. It was uh, the creepy summoner, basically giving Apocalypse the rundown on. Amanthi or Aranthi and uh, Araco or Rocky, whatever the hell these islands are. Basically just giving him the history of everything that happened after the islands were cleaved, right? We found out about Apocalypse's wife Genesis. We found out about the crucifixions. We found out about uh, that one mutant who has the power never to lose, who turned on them. It was a huge info dump. And it felt very, very sloppy, very, very haphazard, very, very crammed, very last minute. Because it was last minute. This was the, you know, Exoswords prelude issue. It felt very, very like, oops, we forgot to make you care about this stuff, so here's a bunch of stuff. And uh, Damien says exactly what I was saying during that episode. Had we not wasted, you know, near a half dozen issues of that volume of X-Men... With the funny haha, with Brew eating an egg, and uh, and dealing with the Empire cash-ins, maybe you pepper this throughout. Maybe it makes a little bit more sense. Maybe you give it a little bit of room to breathe, and uh, maybe it'll have the impact that you ex- that you would want for it to have. Because no, <laughs> this did not have the impact that I think anybody wanted it to have here, the creators included. I think they were probably just making the best of a of a rough situation. Now, Damien also wrote in to talk about Juggernaut number one. Now, he says, I was listening to this episode while my husband was out picking up our veg, and he came in during the feedback. He heard you say that you'd never seen Bill and Ted and was shocked and disgusted. This meant I also had to admit that I'd never seen any of the Bill and Ted films. My husband is now shocked and disgusted with me, too. So thanks for that, Chris. I tell you, at least I'm in good company and not having seen that. No, Damien continues. As for Juggernaut number one, I was pleasantly surprised by how good it was. Your anecdote about Fabian Niciesa was amusing. I have an amazing ability to accidentally insult comics professionals, so I was glad to hear that I'm not alone. I would definitely be up for a continuation of this series after X of Tens. And yeah, we will be picking up with Juggernaut again after uh, the, the crossover is done with. I've been picking up the remaining five issues. Uh, I picked up two and three, so I think we... We're halfway there, so we'll, I don't know if six is out yet, but uh, by the time we're done with Exitens, I'm assuming it will be. So we'll get it in there, and uh, I don't know if we'll do them all in one big lump, or if we'll just, you know, maybe you know, go every other day or one a week, or who knows. But we will get to it because I was uh, I was very pleased with it as well. It didn't it, it what did, how did I put it? Uh, it wasn't trying to be anything. It wasn't. It was just a good story. And uh, that's kind of what we get from uh, Fabian not so nice <laughs> Damien continues. Good luck with your move. I can't believe you're going to keep releasing episodes. I only do one podcast a month, and I've fallen well behind just because my sinuses are playing up. You really are inspirational. Well, thank you. Thank you. And the move has been going... Oh, boy. I, and nobody would believe me if I told you how this move is going, because it is going... Eh. 
picture like the worst case scenario and uh, double it because this has been unending. Um, we've been in transition for about a month now. Uh, I, I mean, we're in a decent position where we don't have to be out of anywhere, but uh, I tell you, I can't wait to just have one house uh, where we're, I can just put my head on one pillow and sleep. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully sleep again sometime soon. Uh, Damien wraps up with, anyway, until Juggernaut turns the Gemma Sidorak into a nice pair of earrings, make mine X-lapsed. Well, we don't know what happened to the Gemma Sidorak, so you never know what it might wind up being. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on those two. One complex issue and one pretty straightforward issue. So thank you so, so much. Next up, Evan, talking about X-Force number 13. He says, I finished X-Force number 13, which I almost keep calling Wolverine number 6. This definitely didn't need to be a two-parter. To me, it didn't need to be a one-parter. I would have preferred a single page where Wolverine ran into his future opponent in the checkout line of Muramasa's Sword Emporium over two issues in hell. Your skin's adamantium? How the hell's that possible? I don't know, maybe ask Cyber. <laughs> and are Wolverine and Magic just going to stand there till everyone else shows up? I hope stuff is happening simultaneously. Maybe Krakoa can manifest a latrine nearby. Looking forward to your assessment of the issue. I kind of miss the vampires. Yeah, you ain't kidding, huh? Now, what Evan is talking about there is the two-parter from, uh, what was it, X of Swords Parts 3 and 4, which uh, had Wolverine go to hell to get the Muramasa. And then we found out there were two Muramasas, and then his... His weirdo, charming weirdo opponent comes and he gets one of the Muramasas and, uh, oh boy, it was, uh, uh, the Ben Percy corner of the X of Swords run has been, was a, uh, was a pretty sizable speed bump. Everything was going pretty good and then it's just like, da-dunk, we stop. Wolverine has to go to hell and spend way too many pages there. And, uh, yeah, I think I would have been right there with you. Just go to the Sword Emporium and, uh, and bump into his guy and, oh, we're buying the same sword. Hey, maybe I'll see you somewhere down the line. And, uh, then we enter the second half of this, uh, event miniseries and, or this event crossover and there they are. It's like, hey, I recognize you. Oh, yeah, I saw you online at the sword shop. I think that would have been just fine. Just fine. But, uh, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts here and I'm so happy that you're catching up with, uh, the current storyline here. I know I had quite the head start on you when you uh, when you started this, so it's really really cool that you're right there with us in the X of Tens and the throes of X of Tens here. So thank you so so much for uh, for keeping up with the uh, program. But that's going to do it for the mailbag today. If anybody out there would like to be a part of the mailbag, please feel free to reach out. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or shoot me an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to a whole bunch of noise at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, my friends, that'll do it. And uh, hopefully I can get a little bit of sleep between now and the next time I talk to you, which will be, as always, really, really soon. But uh, first, I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And uh, again, until next time, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 119 of x Lapsed, and uh, we are rapidly approaching the midway point of our X of Tens crossover event, and today's Excalibur Day. So, uh, how long before I say it feels like I missed an issue? Uh, maybe not so much this time. Maybe not so much this time, since we are continuing... I guess, in theory, we're continuing straight from... Uh, Whatever issue we just finished with Cable, I think. Uh, so, does that mean we're in for some smooth sailing here? Well, let's find out. This is Excalibur, Volume 4, Number 13, which had a December 2020 cover date. The story is X of Swords, Chapter 09. Written by Teeny Howard, with art by R.B. Silva. Colors no- Nolan Wooded. Letters VCs Ariana Marr. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale October 21st of 2020. Now we immediately open with our roll call, and uh, we are going to be focusing on Betsy Britton, Betsy's beautiful brother Brian, that weirdo Jamie Braddock, and uh, Saturnine. Double page spread of creds, then we open at the Starlight Citadel, where Saturnine and Betsy Britton await the arrival of the other Braddocks, beautiful Brian and that weirdo Jamie. Now... The brothers, they arrive on Griffinback, which is pretty neat. Um, Gotta start by mentioning just how beautiful this issue looks, like right out of the gate here. Uh, It's really, really wonderful stuff. And I mean, our usual artist on Excalibur, Marcus Toe, he ain't no slouch by any stretch, but this Silva stuff is, I mean, it's on another level here. Uh, Speaking of neat, uh, it looks like Jamie is wearing Mr. Sinister's cape, which is a nice touch of continuity and... uh, Almost makes me think that, uh, hey, you know, I, th- maybe there are editors involved here. I don't know. Now, Brian, he's here to hand Betsy the Sword of Might. Now, the whole first arc of this volume of Excalibur had to do with Brian choosing that over the Amulet of Right. Now, those, of course, are the trinkets that a Merlin or a Roma would ask a captain to choose upon getting the role and entering into the Captain Britain Corps. Now, as recently, Brian was under the... Under the uh, spell of Morgan Le Fay, he chose the sword, which only left the amulet, and that's what Betsy took. You know, Betsy didn't get a choice, and we're going to actually talk a little bit about that as we go along here, but she's got the amulet around her neck. 
Captain Britain, or Brian, I guess, he's got the sword. It is in his scabbard, though, because he doesn't want to draw it, because, uh, well, we'll get there. Uh, it's worth noting that the first arc of this volume of Excalibur ended with Brian asking Betsy to bury the blade, I think, at the lighthouse. So quite how he's got it now to hand over, I'm not too sure, and it's, uh, it's not going to be explained. Now, Betsy doesn't want the blade. And she tells Brian to uh, go ahead and stick it in the sigil. You know, like the other champions of the sword do to end their chapters. Brian tells Betsy that the sword was named in Polaris's prophecy, and so were they. Lorna said something about twins, or, or two children in the same mother's womb, or something like that. Betsy stomps away, Brian follows, but this discussion must continue. Betsy reminds Brian that she only took the Captain Britain role as a favor to him which I'm not sure I totally remember, but I'll take her word for it. Maybe this happened in one of the half-dozen issues of Excalibur I swear we never actually got. Saturnine interrupts to declare that it's time for tea, and that uh, weirdo Jamie Braddock talks a little bit about sniffing pillows. Hey, whatever floats your boat. Info page. The Sword of Might, which uh, is apparently from Galador. I thought Cable's Light of Galador was from Galador, hence the name Light of Galador. Are the Space Knights part of the Captain Britain Corps in the other world now, too? Or is probably just a typo. So I guess take back whatever I said about editors a few minutes ago. They're really not paying attention. Now, Saturnine brings the Braddocks to the Captain Britain Corps Memorial Garden, made to honor those fallen, especially after the incursion that caused much of the multiverse to go away. Are we, are we referencing Secret Wars on my show? Are we doing that, really? Eh. Anyway, Brian breaks off with a very cliche, What is this place? Which makes me ask, can we please stop using that line in comics? Or can we just stop using that line in all of media? What is this place? Eh. Too much. Saturnine laments the fact that there is no more core. Betsy reminds her of that weird Excalibur-flavored core from Jamie's Weird World a few issues ago and Opal Luna calls them heretical, and says they've been dealt with. After all, to truly be a member of the Corps, you need to choose a sword or the amulet. Betsy reminds Saturnine that she herself never made that choice, which Saturnine kind of uses to prove her point. Uh, Saturnine, it's worth noting, really looks like and acts like Emma Frost here, and uh, she's about to contradict herself here with this amulet sword thing, but uh, whatever. Betsy then reminds Saturnine that they got this big old contest of champions coming up, and they still they still need to track down the Starlight Sword. They haven't even tried looking for that one yet. Then we follow Betsy and Brian outside, where they uh, where it looks like they're about to duel. Betsy's basically trying to taunt Brian into unsheathing the Sword of Might. Now, the last time he drew the thing, he transformed into a twisted version of Captain Britain, so his reluctance here is moderately understandable. Betsy, undeterred, keeps swiping and swiping with her psychic blade. Brian is steadfast in his refusal to unsheath. Instead, he, he starts taunting back at her for being a tomboy, for refusing to take the Sword of Might herself. And I tell you, it'd be far more engaging if I could summon even an ounce of enthusiasm for this otherworldly stuff. Now, we jump ahead to nighttime, and we shift scenes over to that weirdo Jamie Braddock's sleeping quarters. And he's awakened by the heretical Captain Britain Corps. You know, Rogue, Gambit, Richter, and Jubilee, all in, you know, clad in Union Jacks. Now, they sentence him to death. 
which is uh, kind of adorable, considering, you know, who they're threatening. Info page, everything you didn't know you wanted to know about the Captain Britain Corps. Again, I can't summon the energy to read a Captain Britain Wikipedia article. I'm sure I probably found much of this quite fascinating when, I, when the, it was the Allens, you know, crafting the story, Moore and Davis. But I just can't with this info dump. Uh-huh. Now back to comics, and we're back to the Braddocks here. Now Betsy and Brian hear Jamie crying for help, and so they rush to his quarters. Brian once again asks that Betsy take the Sword of Might. But she claims as not, you know, not to need it as she summons up her Psy Sword. Now in Jamie's room, despite crying for help, he's pretty much got everything under control here. The rogue captains are all kind of just strung up in reality warp tendrils or something. Now Jamie decides to send a message by killing Captain Jubilee, which enrages the rest of the heretics, as uh, you might imagine. The Braddock trio goes to flee from this suddenly featureless dormitory. I mean... The backgrounds just stop being a thing. Now, Captain Gambit, he hurls a charged card in Brian's direction, right? Now, Brian blocks it with the Sword of Might still in its scabbard, only this charged card winds up burning the scabbard away, which which means Brian, whether he wanted to or not, now wields the Sword of Might. And Brian transforms into, like, a whole new form of Captain Britain here. Captain Avalon, actually. Uh, That weirdo Jamie Braddock's own personal captain. Now, Brian's totally cool with this, despite the fact that, like, three panels ago, Jamie killed Jubilee. Eh, a little weird. Um, Now, Brian's in a new costume here, and he must be that bucket-headed character from the Ten of Swords card in X of Swords creation, which is the one that I was sort of kind of hoping was going to be revealed as Major X. Oh, well. Uh, There's a, a missed opportunity if ever there was one. Saturnine shows up, and as usual, she's displeased. She nyoinks the amulet from around Betsy's neck, and it shatters. Betsy is arrested by the priestesses for reasons. Now, Saturnine comments that the amulet is no longer needed, as Roma and Merlin aren't part of the Captain Britain recruitment team anymore, so the choice between the bauble and the blade is immaterial, despite the fact that just a few pages ago, Saturnine said that that's what makes a captain. I don't know. Uh, she then turns to Captain Avalon and, uh, well, she tries to seduce him, as, you know, we knew she would do because she's, well, she's got it bad. Later, we rejoin Betsy and she's in a dungeon, or a tower. Um, it gets very confusing here, at least for me. Uh, she reaches out and, I think, gets in psychic connection with the heretical Captain Britain Corps. Then, that weirdo Jamie Braddock interjects and tells Betsy to jump out a nearby window. So I'm guessing that she's actually locked up in a tower like Rapunzel or something, and uh, while R.B. Silva draws her with quite an impressive head of hair, she is no Rapunzel. So Betsy does the thing. She jumps out the window and... Well, she lands on Jamie's griffin, and that's not a euphemism. We jump over to Saturnine's quarters, and it's time for some foreplay, in the form of Opal Luna pulling the Starlight Sword out of, uh, well, the Citadel itself. The blade is forged of the same material as the Citadel, which our next info page is quick to repeat. So uh, I guess we needed it. I don't know. So Brian and Opal Luna start making out. And Saturnine is so out to lunch, or so turned on, that she doesn't realize that she just left the Starlight Sword on the floor. Yeah, uh, Betsy and Jamie show up and, you know, swipe the sword. So Betsy is now the champion of the Starlight Sword. Brian reveals to Saturnine that this was all a ruse the entire time, and the Braddocks leave. 
We wrap up with the twins taking their places at the X of Swords action figure display and playset. And now we've got seven out of ten champions all ready to go. That's where we leave it. Next episode, we approach the end of the first half of X of Tens with the last of the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 13s. It's X-Men number 13, and from the cover, I'm guessing that uh, Apocalypse is going to get his sword here. After that, we hit Stasis, but that's a discussion for another day. Let's talk about this issue, which wasn't bad at all. Wasn't bad at all, but I gotta say, I am beyond tired of this other world stuff. I mean, I, I get it. I'm kind of barking up the wrong tree here, considering what the next dozen issues are going to be about. But, guys, I, I, I can't remember ever reading a comic book before where the setting was quite this played out. It's just too damn much. I, I mean, it's been a year and a half of other world stories uh, right to this point. It's just way too much. And I hope that once we're at the other end of Exoswords that... God, hopefully we're not in another world anymore. Hopefully we put this concept to bed for a bit. I mean, even even an Excalibur. Let's just stay out of other world for a little bit. It's it's played out, and I feel like it is. It's actually hurting the story here because the story that they're telling in Exoswords is. I mean, it's not it's not you know bulletproof genius level like uh, like some might have you believe, but. It's not bad. It's pretty good stuff. It's just the fact that it's all this other world stuff that I don't care about. And again, these are these are Chris problems probably, but we really need a change of setting. We really, really need a change of setting. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Braddock twins here. Um, this whole thing was a ruse, right? This whole thing was a setup. This whole thing was to get Saturnine to... Let her guard down long enough so they can get both the swords here. So they were in on it together the entire time. And here's the thing. I think that was supposed to be obvious to us as we were reading this. Which, in any other era, I I think we might have a... There might be a leg to stand on there. It's just that in the the recent times, um, characterization is all over the place. Editorially, I mean, a character is what the story needs them to be. We don't worry about established characters anymore, it seems. Uh, So, Betsy acting petulant and Brian acting like a brat, that might have just been the way that they are portrayed here. I mean, everything is just so slipshod that, even though this is obviously supposed to be a ruse because they told us this was all a game to get these swords... You know, even going back and flipping through it a second time, I don't see it. It just feels like the characters are being written out of character like they have been about half the time. So uh, maybe we need to, you know, work with established characterization. If we want to slip one past the goalie uh, and make us question, like, wow, why are they acting like that? Because, frankly, we ask why characters are acting a certain way every single issue. And we just assume that it's part of a bigger plan. So I think the entire angle of this issue failed. It really didn't work because of how out of character characters like Betsy, Brian, and even that weirdo Jamie Braddock have been. It's hard for us to look at this and take on face value. It's like, oh, wait, they're acting weird. I wonder if there's a reason why they're acting weird. No, we're just looking at it like, okay, well, I guess this is their character today because... 
uh, so much for stability, so much for uh, things being consistent, right? Um, I don't know. Um, Saturnine, let's talk Saturnine. Uh, she claims that you need to pick the sword or the amulet to be considered a Captain Britain. And then we end the issue with her saying that that's not a, we don't need that anymore. Even though she used that as a way to taunt Betsy, or to question Betsy's legitimacy as a Captain Britain, due to the fact that she never had to make the choice, she's like, well, yeah, that you're not a real captain then. And three pages later, she's like, well, you don't need to do that anymore. That's kind of weird. Um... I still haven't the foggiest idea what they're doing with these heretical Captain Britain Corps, the uh, you know the the Gambit, the Rogue, Richter, and Jubilee. What's the point of them? And if you were uh, if you were coming into Exosword's cult, I, I mean I couldn't even imagine somebody coming into this cult because it's just it's you know uh, wheels within wheels within wheels of just weirdness, and I couldn't imagine somebody coming in and being like, oh yeah, I get this, I know what this is all about. I mean, we could take things at face value and just be like, yeah, these are characters that Jamie whipped up, but what's the point? I don't understand the point. Are they good or are they bad? Are they real or are they fake? I mean, Jamie killed one, but then when Sila, or when Betsy is in the in the uh, tower, she's kind of making a connection with them, and they're, I, it feels like they're saying they're going to save her. Very, very bizarre. Um, I, I just, I, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, do I want the answer, do I, or do I just want them to go away? And I think in this case, this is another situation where I just want them to go away. I'm fine not getting an answer. Just I never want to see these characters again. What else? What else? What else? Uh, the art, phenomenal, phenomenal. R.B. Silva just absolutely kills it here. It's a it's a gorgeous book, um, and this is usually a very very pretty book. But like I said during the synopsis, this is like a whole nother level here. This is some phenomenal stuff here. I only wish I enjoyed the story a little bit more, and I didn't hate the story, but uh, I think I'm just burned out on uh, on the setting. I'm burned out on the setting. I don't care about the politics of the Starlight Citadel. I don't understand why Saturnine has this sword. She's got the Starlight Blade. She put this contest together. Is she trying to set the uh, you know the Krakoans up, or you know the heroes, I guess, up? Because Brian's not a Krakoan, but. She's trying to set the heroes up for a forfeit? I mean, I don't know. What's the point of even putting together the contest, then, if she can control whether or not it even happens in the first place? I don't know. It feels very weird that they had to go this route to get the sword. But I guess they did. (laughs) They needed to kill an issue because we need 22 chapters of this. So that's that. At least we got two swords found this time. Uh, We've got... But I think we've got three swords to go. We got Apocalypse. We got uh, I think Gorgon gets a sword, and then somebody else. I don't remember who. Magneto, maybe. Whatever it is, we got a we got a few more sigils to stand on before we're before we're ready to fight. But uh, that's all I got to say about this issue of Excalibur. Let's hop into the mailbag here. We only got a couple to go through, and uh, first we're going to talk to Damien, who's got stuff to say about the Free Comic Book Day issue and X of Swords creation. He says, I'm going to deal with the free comic book day issue and creation as one beast. I'm not sure I entirely agree with you about the choice of pages for the FCBD issue. I can see some benefit to releasing something that's bizarre and intriguing and not fully explained. It's becoming more and more normal to see trailers that are confusing rather than clear. In many ways, it's the Marvel movies that have trained people to expect puzzle mysteries 
with their post-credit scenes, so this could be viewed as appropriate for fans of the movies. Of course, I really don't like the movies because I'm always sat there wondering why they changed things and therefore taking myself out of the story. I often am my own worst enemy. I agree. I agree. I am the same way. I don't see the movies. That's one of my gimmicks. I don't see the Marvel movies. I don't see any comic book movies because... Well, there's a few reasons for that. Uh, First, just like you said here, I would be the guy who would... uh, Ruin it for other people Because they'd be like, oh, they're so excited that this is the way the story goes And I'd be like, well, that's not the way it happened <laughs> And I would totally ruin it for them And uh, not not intentionally It just, uh, you know, I would just I'm kind of protective of our continuity And of our hobby And of uh, all the time and money and energy That we put into our hobby uh, To where when people can sit down for I don't know, two hours, and then they're suddenly experts on a subject that contradicts what we know and have known for decades. Yeah, I don't like it. (laughs) I don't like it much. And that takes me to my other reason why I'm not keen on these movies here, because as comic fans, and this is, I I apologize if this gets into soapboxiness or just me being a curmudgeonly dick, but we as comic fans accept other takes on our on our beloved franchises and properties, right? That's We've just come up that way. We understand that the comics are the real thing. And then, you know, when 1989, when there's a Batman movie, we accept it. You know, when there's a Batman animated series or an X-Men animated series, we accept it. We know it's not the real thing, but we accept it as having a right to exist and having a right to have a fandom. That's only a one-way street. Uh, for comic fans, and, and I mean, this is not intended to be a blanket, bulletproof blanket statement because, of course, there are exceptions to every rule. But as comic fans, we're used to going to the movies to watch a comic book related movie or watching a television show or a cartoon. And we just accept those as other takes on what we love. Like I said, it's a one way street because there are people who go into the movies who will never, ever read a comic book. And will therefore dismiss or discount anything that happened in the comic books. They don't have to accept the comics as another piece of the puzzle. Whereas as comic fans, first, we're expected to. We're expected to accept things like whatever the hell a WandaVision is. We're supposed to accept the, you know, the Snyder Cut of Justice League. We're supposed to accept these things. But someone coming the other direction doesn't need to accept comics as being anything. And that gets under my skin quite a bit here. Um, And that brings me to uh, what you said here. Uh, If this is being written for people who like the movies, I just don't see that working. I don't see this working for people who like comic books, much less people who don't care about comic books. I, I I do agree with you. I think that's why they did this. I think this is following the Marvel movie model. But they're not transferable. They're not relatable here. I, I mean, as a as working under the framework of the Marvel movies, I guess you could say it was successful because, you know, that's kind of what happens in the movies. But as something that would actually entice someone who wouldn't normally buy a comic book or wouldn't normally buy an X-Men comic book to come in and buy an X-Men comic book, I just don't see it working. I don't see it working at all. Uh, Damien continues... As for the story, I love the tarot element. Having predictions of the event in the first issue with analysis by the Hellion Tarot meant that I knew what a lot of, I knew what the cards could mean, even though I know next to nothing about tarot cards. 
I remember at the time searching out different interpretations of these predictions on different blogs and websites. I find it fascinating to see what other fans are thinking and to read all those theories. It made reading Exit 10's a shared experience. Sadly, this means that on a reread, I can't remember whether my thoughts came from me, other fans, or just from having read the entire crossover. Now, there's definitely something to be said for the shared experience here, and it's this is the second thing that I'm kind of kicking myself with since starting the show, because... You know, I missed out on the original Hoxpox, you know, discussions and the theories and the, you know, just people people punching their heads and trying to figure out what's going to happen here. What's this mean? I missed all that. I got to see all that way after the fact because I, I kept myself from it even as I was reading the stuff. So I, don't, I had to wait until I was done reading it to even think about, you know, getting some hot takes from other people just because I didn't want to spoil myself. And here we are with, uh, with X of Swords here, and it's the same thing. I, I could imagine that this was more exciting at the time. Uh, perhaps I'm doing it a pretty grand disservice looking at it after the fact, since, I mean, there isn't much excitement for it. I, I mean, trust me on that. <laughs> trust me on that. I, I've seen my numbers. There isn't much excitement for X of Swords here, but uh, I think had, uh, had I been able to strike when the iron was hot, it would have been... Uh, I think it would have been a whole different experience for, for all of us here, but alas, we, we can't do that. Damien continues, There are so many little touches in this issue that I loved. I feel like Hickman and Howard were putting all their time and effort into this, which might explain why recent issues of X-Men and Excalibur have been lacking. The scene with the Quiet Council discussing the external gate is a favorite. I love that Kitty is wearing gloves to hide her tattoos, and the fact that Krakoa can overrule the Council. Krakoa having an agenda is something I hadn't really considered, but it's such an obvious idea. I definitely appreciated the fact that Krakoa could overrule the council here. Um, it makes it feel like like Apocalypse knew exactly what he was doing, and, and he did. I mean, that was the whole point. He knew he didn't have to get the majority 7 out of 12 votes. He just had to make sure Krakoa was cool with what he was doing, and Krakoa saw the external gate as a gift, and so it stays. Damien continues, I also love that the team that goes into Krakoa is mainly comprised of people who hate Apocalypse. Many of them have very good reasons, and they know, then they have to save his life. How ironic. The horsemen attacking Apocalypse was not really a surprise, but I thought it was so well staged. Beautiful art and color, and emotionally true characterization. Perfect. I agree. I agree. I mean... We figured that there was going to be, you know, the worm was going to turn, right? The horsemen were probably not going to just accept Apocalypse and uh, into the fold with open arms here. I think we all saw the swerve coming here, but as you say, the way they did it, it was perfect. It was really well done. It, the, it, you felt it, you know, even though we knew it was coming. And so often when we know something's coming, it, it kind of ruins the, uh, you know, the ta-da. But here it worked. It worked really, really well. Um, and the fact that they did it, like, semi-cinematically, where, you know, we had Phoenix and Nate, or Prestige, and Nate uh, in Banshee's mind around the same time here, and we're flashing back and forth to them seeing the betrayal that happened to Banshee and Eunice with the betrayal that was happening at, as, you know, as this was going on with Apocalypse and the Horsemen. Very, very well done. Very well done. Uh, Damien continues... The intervention of Saturnine and the interaction she has with the Krakoans is really interesting. We're reminded of how powerful she is, but are set up to see her as a foe to both sides. I love the idea of Monet considering taking Saturnine's job one day. I can see her being bored one day and deciding it's time to take over the universe. Just because she thinks she'd be good at it. 
It's also wonderful to see Polaris and Havoc presented as Krakoan leaders. They've both refused leadership roles, and yet they seem destined to lead. Great point that I totally missed out on there was the fact that, uh, yeah, Havoc is kind of taking a back seat in Hellions, and uh, Polaris flat up refused to be uh, to be the leader of X Factor uh, when even when the Quiet Council assumed she would be, and she handed the reins over to Northstar, and uh, here they are. You know, they are in leadership roles in this uh, in this apocalyptic outing here. Damien continues. Obviously, at the time I read this issue, the death of Rockslide was irrelevant. I didn't see it as significant. Rereading it, I find myself more shocked. Knowing the revelation that death in Otherworld is real changes this story. Totally. Totally does. Um, Because I saw it as just more of the same. And definitely a, you know, zig instead of zag moment here, because... This seemed just like, okay, well, this is just the status quo now. <laughs> they're going to die. They're going to come back. They're going to die. They're going to come back. The revelation that we get in X Factor uh, number four changes that. And I would imagine uh, rereading this with that knowledge definitely changes it as well. Damien continues, I like the way the S.W.O.R.D. S-W-O-R-D plotline ran in and out of the issue. I have no particular feelings about S.W.O.R.D. as a concept, but it's cleverly set up here. I like the fact that the relationship between Scott, Gene, Nathan, and Rachel feels much more organic than it did in X-Men number one. They feel like a family. And that's true. That is true. Um, Scott has, he still has a little bit of that hammy sitcom dad in him, but not. it's not as uh, overt as it was in the earlier Dawn of X issues here, where it was just kind of, like, way too chuckle-headed, and, uh, like, almost, like, it almost evoked a sinister and uneasy feeling. And maybe it was supposed to, but uh, it didn't really work for me. But here, it worked a bit better. I still couldn't care less about S.W.O.R.D., though. Damien continues, Overall, I was impressed with this comic. I picked it up without having decided whether I was going to follow X Attends, but with this issue, I decided to follow it. I very nearly dropped it after parts three and four, but I ended up loving it. Yeah, three and four were, uh, well, yeah, they were something else, weren't they? <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about them again in a few episodes. Uh, Damien continues, I genuinely think that Hickman and Howard work phenomenally well together. I think they have opposite strengths, so they bolster each other. The art is amazing. Pepe Larraz and Marty Gracia really excelled in this issue. They were amazing in House of X, but this is even better than that. They really are the heroes of X of Tens. In fact, I would give them an X out of X for the art. Uh, The story isn't quite as good, but it makes me want to read on. Of course, we know that the Hox Pox Docs era is better at a setup than delivery, so there is some trepidation. Anyway, until Saturnine changes her name to Saturn IX, make mine X lapsed. And yes, uh, this uh, was a gorgeous issue. Um... I mean, the art here is... They're, they're killing it with the art here. It's, uh... It really... I mean, I, I've been repeating myself every time out here. It's... The art is really something to behold in these books here. And, I mean, we've, I think we've got Mahmoud Azrar coming on to uh, Volume 5. I mean, we're in for some really, really pretty books here. And you're 100% dead on here. We're getting a lot of, uh... We've gotten a lot of setup in the Hawks Pox Doc stuff, which is very intriguing. A lot of interesting ideas, even the high-concept ones that I usually turn my nose up at. But uh, it's all about the delivery. And uh, the delivery, the the landings don't often stick. And uh, yeah, there is some trepidation about uh, the way this is going to go into its second half. I I do wonder, 
because I've stayed, you know, purposely I've stayed away from uh, people talking about this series because I don't want anything spoiled and I don't want anything to kind of temper my delivery here. Uh, like, as I talk to you now, I have not opened, you know, uh, X-Men number 13, the next chapter, because I don't want to know anything. I, I mean, I, even though that puts me at risk of being completely wrong about things or being completely right about things, you know, I, I just don't want, I don't want to fake it. And so I, I am a little trepidatious because there are a lot of issues of this left, and I'm not convinced that even when this is done, we will probably still be dealing with other world crap. But uh, hopefully, uh, we'll come out of this, and I'll have, I'll have positive thoughts uh, on this. So far, I mean, we are what nine chapters in out of uh, twenty-two, and I'd say that I'm definitely veering more positive than negative. We started in neutral, and we've we've. The needle's gone both directions here, but I think, uh, cumulatively speaking, the nine chapters we read, I I have a positive uh, reflection on them. So that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. And I I appreciate you uh, sharing your thoughts on the first part of X of Swords, and I'm very excited that uh, I'm finally up to your feedback for the X of Swords issues. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, digging into those as we continue along. So thank you so much. Uh, next, we got Evan talking about another X of Swords issue, New Mutants number 13. He says, For all of us who mocked Cypher in the past, admit it, you did, New Mutants number 13 leaves no doubt that he belongs among the other heroes of the X-Men. Of course, he probably proved his mettle in the original series, but that remains on my one-of-these-days reading lists. I really enjoyed the portrayals of all the characters in this issue. I did wonder at one point whether they were ignoring the somewhat ridiculous body language makes Cypher a fighter bit from Necrotia, or Necrotia X or X Necrotia, back in the day. But they even kept it without undermining the story they were telling. If we were doing X of Swords power rankings, this one would be near the top for me. So until Boom Boom changes her codename to Mohawk and scares Kitty Pride, make mine X lapsed. And yeah, we talked about that during the issue here. It feels like, um, if not ignoring, they're definitely underplaying the Doug Ramsey has uh, the ability to read body language uh, power. And I don't know... I, I mean, I have a few ideas as to why they might be doing that. First, they might not be familiar with it, <laughs> you know. Uh, second, they might figure that... Uh, I mean, the New Mutants volume that that came out of that was New Mutants Volume 3, and uh, and I feel like that one really wasn't setting any worlds on fire. Um, certainly from a, a sales standpoint, I think New Mutants was the only book of the X-Men and Avengers family not to get wrangled into uh, AVX crossovers, which, I mean, Avengers Academy got those, Secret Avengers got those. It really speaks to, you know, the pecking order here. I don't think anybody cared about New Mutants. So for all I know, uh, Marvel probably figures that only the most uh, fanatical of fans even know that that's a thing. And, uh, well, they've told us time and time again that uh, they they really don't care what we think. So maybe they just figure that it wasn't important enough to bring up. Or maybe it's what they've got in mind as like the the magic bullet for Doug to win his fight with whoever he's fighting in the uh, contest of champions here. Maybe it'll be like the, the big revelation that, uh, oh wait, Doug can read body language And here we go I really don't know Because it, it did seem like there was a mention of it But it was definitely underplayed uh, But yeah, maybe it's like 
Maybe it's like Chekhov's uh, body language analysis, where you know you mention it and it's going to be used later on in the story. So, I guess we'll find out. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on New Mutants number thirteen, and I'm happy, so happy that you're really, you know, you're right up to date with the show. So I'm looking forward to hearing your uh, thoughts in real time, uh, well, so to speak, relatively speaking, I should say. Uh, we're going to wrap up with uh, a short bit from uh, our friend Mark Radelich here uh, regarding my shocking Bill and Ted revelation during the Juggernaut uh, discussion. He says, Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. We're going to wind up doing a podcast where I make you watch movies. So, uh, hey, you know, stranger things have happened. <laughs> stranger things have happened. Uh, we'll have to see where my head's at after uh, after these plates stop spinning over my head. We'll, <laughs> we'll see how that goes and maybe... Maybe I'll finally wind up watching Bill and Ted. Maybe we'll talk about it on the air. But uh, thank you <laughs> for listening to the Juggernaut episode. Now, if anyone out there would like to talk about uh, the Juggernaut episode, the New Mutants episode, any episode or any little thing, you could get a hold of me quite easily. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. For just the X stuff, it's xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can chat with us about whatever you want on Facebook. Our, our numbers have grown. Over this past week, I think we had four or five new members, which is awesome. Really, really cool. Thank you guys so much for signing on to our little Facebook group. It's 90s X-Men on Facebook, if anybody out there is interested in joining in on the conversation there. And you can listen to a whole bunch of comic book-related podcasts and noise and all sorts of nonsense at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that will do it for today. I want to thank you all so much for deciding to let me take part in your day. Maybe I kept you company while you were folding laundry. Maybe I kept you company while you were on your way to or from work. Whatever the case, it really, really means a lot to me. Thank you so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 120 of X-Labs, where we are just on the... We're teetering on the very edge of the first half of our X of Tens coverage today. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at an issue of X-Men. X-Men Volume 5, Number 13, which had a December 2020 cover date. Stories called X of Swords, Chapter 10, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Mahmoud Azrar. Colors, Sonny Go, Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles, Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, B. So White Sabalski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale October 21st of 2020. It's weird, we're, uh, we're actually getting to the last couple of uh, 2020 cover-dated books here. So uh, we'll be in the 2021s, at least in cover dates, before we know it. All right, let's open this one up. We start with our roll call here, and uh, it's one of those roll calls. I mean, I like the fact that this is a roll call. Uh, I tried reading a recent issue of Avengers, and they didn't have a roll call, and I was just like, who are these people? You know, I've read the Avengers for like 20 years, and I'm looking at this new issue that tied in with the Phoenix coming back or whatever it was, and... Boy, it was a uh, it was tough. It was tough to the point where I'm not going to go back and continue reading that because it was just so labyrinthine. But we kind of swing the pendulum all the way to the other edge here, and we do a roll call to feature characters who might be shown on panel once. I mean, I don't. There are characters in here that I don't even recall seeing on the page. So uh, let's do it. Uh, Banshee, Apocalypse, Doctor Cecilia Reyes. Healer, Beast, Polaris, Charles Xavier, Hope, Magneto, and Gorgon. Then we get our double-page spread of creds as per usual. Now, we're not quite ready for comics content yet. We've got an info page. It's about the Grass Cutter and God Killer Swords. And it's a pretty short page, considering it's covering two of our prophesied swords. And it's worth noting that these two swords will not be seen in this issue. Okay. Finally... You know, all these pages in, we get the comic book content here. So, that opens at the Healing Gardens, where Banshee is shown recovering from the attack that was revealed during X of Swords' creation. He turns his head in the direction of his fellow patient, who is screaming in agony. This patient, of course, is Apocalypse. Now, it would appear as though that nothing the Morlock healer nor Cecilia Reyes can do is actually helping old A. And he's just thrashing like crazy. Uh, Magneto asks Polaris to use her powers to pin Pocky down, and so she does. Though why Magneto himself couldn't do it? Search me, I don't know. Maybe it was a power play. I don't know. Xavier asks Hope to attempt to augment the healer's powers, you know, to maybe make him a little bit more powerful to help with Apocalypse's recovery. And with Apocalypse's blessing, or I guess his demand, she does. Now, while he writhes around on the healer's table... He unfortunately wanders directly into flashback land. Uh, This is your Okara trigger warning, if in case you need one. Now, Apocalypse's story, from the long ago, begins by mentioning that when war came, a pair of icons, with a K, I-K-O-N-S, of Okara uh, were both A, the twin elementals of life, whatever that means, and B, the first to fall. Now, there were tens of thousands of warriors who broke through into, I'm assuming, Okara. Maybe ancient Egypt, considering where this issue winds up. I'm not entirely clear on that. These are, of course, the ones from Amanth, right? We read about those not too long ago. Anyway, they were fought back time and again by the 100, and we learned a bit about them during either 
Exosword's creation or X-Men number 12. It's all kind of muddy. We're getting a lot of exposition. Now, they're the ones who were led by the White Sword. Now, he was that, you know, big, hulking, titan-looking fellow who the creepy summoner told us would resurrect his warriors over and over again. Now, these hundred would head into the Rift to do battle, and Apocalypse was not among them. Next, he speaks of Genesis, and she is described as being stronger than anyone. His story jumps ahead to what appears to be an attempt at holding a peace summit between his crew and the Amanthes, or Amenthes, however you say that. Apocalypse's crew consists of the original Four Horsemen, his children, of course, uh, Genesis, his wife, and a High Summoner, but not the same one that we know. Obviously, this is a long time ago. Now, this place that they're all set up here kind of looks like the Quiet Council's quarters, and there are two trees with faces on them here in the background. One has red eyes, the other with more yellowish-white eyes. Perhaps they represent the two halves of Okara, you know, Krakoa and Arako. Maybe they're the fallen icons. Maybe they're both. Maybe they're neither. Who knows? Now, the Amanthes, they present a box. Now, this box demands itself be opened. And it transforms into the very Hickmany antlered helmet of Annihilation. It attaches itself to one of the Amenthes to do a little bit of pontification. Then, two generic-looking... Hickman aliens, uh, Hork and Dai Damun, uh, try and test the mutants, only to be swiftly taken out by Genesis. It sounds like the mutants might have had this battle in hand, at least for now. That is, until Iska the Unbeaten turned on them. Now, we learned about her, sorta, in X-Men number 12. You know, she's that Brotherhood of Dada-seeming character with the mutant ability to never lose. But... There's a new wrinkle added here to her story. In fact, she's Genesis's... Genesis's... Is, is, how do you say that? Genesis's... Genesis's... Is, she's Apocalypse's wife's sister. This is what I'm trying to say here. And so I guess she's Apocalypse's sister-in-law. So the fact that she's now on the side of the Amenthi, or she would eventually be on the side of the Amenthi, and cannot lose, is perhaps a bit problematic for our heroes. And I mean, do we do we refer to Apocalypse as a hero? I guess it's all context-sensitive. I don't know. So, from here, the the story jumps a little bit further ahead to Genesis and the Horsemen heading through the rift to fight back the Amenthi. Apocalypse, again, does not join them, as, in the words of his wife, he isn't strong enough. Oof. And she instead tells him to remain on Earth and make it so mankind might one day be prepared should the Amenthi ever break through the rift again. Kind of gives Apocalypse's Darwinian tact some context here. You know, the whole only the strong survive and all. And I mean, this is probably contradicting decades of established continuity, but that's kind of what we do nowadays, isn't it? From here, we get an info page about Annihilation. Whoever wears the helmet rules a menth. The only problem is the helmet pretty much consumes whoever's wearing it. Back to comics, and we're back to the present. Apocalypse survives the augmented healing and is back on his feet. He excuses himself to go retrieve his sword for the upcoming contest. From here, hey, you tired of info pages yet? Because we got another. It's about the Scarab Sword. This is a sword that is crafted in four parts to celebrate the births of each of Apocalypse's original horsemen, his children. This blade altogether was forged by Iska the Unbeatable or the Unbeaten or whatever the hell we're calling her, Apocalypse's sister-in-law. Next, we know we're in Egypt at the foot of a pyramid. 
Apocalypse and Gorgon arrive. I don't know why Gorgon's there. Maybe Apocalypse can't fly this jet. I don't know. Now, the former tells the latter to wait for him outside. Apocalypse is going to go in by himself. He comes across the tombs of his thought-to-be long-dead children, and he smashes them to reveal the four pieces of the scarab sword. He puts them together to create his prophesied blade, and he and Gorgon head back home, and that's it. That's it. That's the end of this issue. Next, hey, we're officially, I think officially, halfway through this thing, we're going to be looking at X of Swords Stasis. But let's talk about uh, let's talk about this issue, shall we? Okay, um, this one did take a couple of reads, uh, but unlike X Men number twelve, it actually improved upon reread. Uh, X Men twelve only got more and more muddy the longer I looked at it. I wanted to throw it out out the window. Now, don't get me wrong; this issue was still fillery as hell. It felt very, very fillery, but I certainly enjoyed it more than the previous issue of X Men. Uh, which is to say I mostly understood it, whereas number 12 was just a gigantic mess jammed into a bag five times too small. So what do we get here? What do we get here? Well, we sort of get a retelling of what we read in number 12, but without the ambiguities of the creepy and likely factually unreliable summoner telling it. Quite why we needed both? I don't know. They had issues to fill, I guess. I don't know. Um... <laughs> You know, when, when Hickman took over these books, and when I started this project, I, uh, I got a lot of flack early on for daring to question the process. You know, uh, Hickman is known for his long, labyrinthine stories that are planned out to, to, to play out over years, right? And uh, I dared to question it. And yes, I am an overthinker, and I'm oddly protective of my continuity, so much of it is justified, right? So, so much of the flack is justified. But I feel as though one of my concerns is starting to uh, peek its head out here. Um, one thing I've mentioned a bunch, even today, was uh, the generic Hickman aliens, right? The stupid, boring, antler-headed, you know, geeks from his Avengers run. Uh, the, these are ciphers. Very little characterization and a mildly cool look. Introduced into the lore for reasons that will only be important for, like, one story. And what we're doing here with the X-Men, it's a way that fundamentally changes everything, right? These characters that we're getting, this Akarin, Arakin, Krakoan lore, uh, the change of what it means to be a mutant, it fundamentally changes everything. And I still can't shake the feeling that it, that these characters that we're meeting right now will only be important for the story in which they do change everything, right? We've got the Amenthes, we've got Annihilation, the original Horsemen, the Summoners, Genesis, Iska. These are characters who I fear will only be important for this one story. And again, this is a story that fundamentally changes everything about what the word mutant means to the Marvel Universe, right? I think we've all heard of concepts like addition by subtraction. This is kind of the inverse of that. This feels like subtraction by addition. We're adding stuff that will only be important now. But it'll also kind of deepen the niche of the X-Men, making it near impossible for the next creative team to write their way out of it without massive contradictions or a full-scale reboot. Which was my other concern with Hickman when I heard he was taking over the X-Men. Because it seems like the only way to follow him on a book is to reboot. Or to take advantage of a Marvel reboot. And I mean, it's not as though the sort of re 
<laughs> Rebooticles isn't dangling over our heads, right? It, this is Marvel Comics. So I suppose it is lucky for creators that Marvel normally can't go more than a few months without throwing in, you know, everything you thought you knew was wrong sort of wrench into their lore. But still, this is kind of troubling. And it's not like, uh, you know, Hickman and company are at a lack of dangling plot threads that could be addressed, right? I mean, we've had so many new things introduced since uh, Hoxpox. And, and here we are building lore for concepts that will only be important right now. It's like, you, there's so much backstory to draw from, but instead we're making new backstory that we're going to address immediately, and we're going to just... It's like it's like a boxed lunch, right? We're taking it, and it's just like we insert it, and it's ready to go. I, I don't know, and I'm having a real hard time investing. I'm having a hard time caring. Uh, it's like... I mean, we talk we talk a lot about stakes on this show, and now there are actual stakes to this fight, but now it feels like, well, there are stakes because we're telling you there's stakes, rather than it being an organic feeling of fear or trepidation or worry for these characters in the future. It's just like, oh, we're told that there are stakes now, so I guess we should be prepared to face, you know, the, the consequences of, of anything that happens from this point on. And it just feels so half-hearted. These new villains we have, the... Uh, the Amenthes and the, the Horsemen, I mean, they're just more generic, semi-cool-looking characters here. They could be aliens, they could be plant people, they could be a bag of laundry. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because they're only important for right this very minute. And it's, uh, I don't know, maybe this uh, this first half of uh, Exoswords, maybe it's drug on a little bit too long for me. It just feels, it's almost feeling like a chore. And, uh... I don't like that feeling, but I guess uh, I'll put a pin in it for now here, rather than uh, repeat myself over and over and over again. We will uh, just hope for a more exciting second half, uh, post-stasis, I suppose. But uh, those are my thoughts on X-Men number 13. Feels like filler. Feels like we're really dragging this out to uh, fill as many pages and to get to... I don't know, maybe we needed to get just just the right amount of pages to get an extra-priced hardcover collection. Or maybe it's supposed to be two volumes or something, and we're really just stretching this sucker thin. But, uh, yeah, those are my thoughts on it. Uh, before we go to the mailbag here, this was the final uh, Dawn of X Wave 1 number 13. So, let's take a look at our Dawn of X Wave 1 number 13 power rankings here. Uh, there are only five books, and uh, they were all... X of Swords related, for better or for worse. I would say the best book of the bunch was Marauders, which uh, I didn't love. I didn't love it. Um, this was a Storm in Wakanda. I thought it was a little. I thought it was a little long. Plus, I'm not quite as enamored with Wakanda as a lot of people are or seem to be. Uh, the second best book was New Mutants. Doug Ramsey. Uh, learning how to use his sword and fighting magic. And really, I mean, I didn't care for that one much either. That one felt very fillery. It felt like we were... It felt very repetitive. It's it's the same Doug Ramsey story we always get, you know? So, I mean, this is... Basically, Marauders is number one, and then everything else is kind of tied for number two here. So it's uh, these... I guess these rankings are semi-arbitrary. Um, so Marauders, number one. New Mutants, number two. Number three is Excalibur, and I didn't care for that one either. Uh, that one was, uh, 
That one felt like it was missing pages, as Excalibur usually does. The fourth best book was this one. And, uh, yeah, I didn't like this one much either. And the fifth book of the of the uh, Dawn of X, Wave 1, number 13, was X-Force. The second part of the Wolverine Goes to Hell story, which was, eh, not great at all. So I, I don't know if I need to change the name of this show to, you know, 30 minutes of Chris complaining about the X-Men. Uh, maybe that'd be more appropriate. But uh, not a strong outing for our uh, our legacy books here with their 13th issues. Marauders, New Mutants, Excalibur, X-Men, then X-Force. Um, hope to hear your guys' rankings, and uh, if you guys agree, disagree, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, speaking of hearing your thoughts, let's dip into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien talking about X-Factor number four. He says, this issue was so good, I loved it. It was such a good idea for the Resurrection Protocols to be removed to add extra stakes to the crossover. Yes, 100%. 100% X-Factor number 4 was a wonderful issue. And, uh, I, you know, the Dawn of X Wave 2 books are really, like, doing the heavy lifting for this uh, Exoswords event between, uh, between X-Factor and uh, Hellions uh, and, to a lesser extent, Cable. Those have been the stronger issues uh, so far. And Damien continues... I was particularly happy with Lorna's characterization, and that leads directly into my X-Men vote. Marvel have been releasing the votes so far, and Polaris is in the lead, with Banshee coming second. They've announced that whoever wins will only appear in X-Men, so ultimately I have to decide whether to vote for Polaris to move to X-Men, where she could be written as she was written in X-Men number 1 and X of Swords creation, or I can vote for the character in second place in the hope that she continues to be written as well as in X-Factor number 4. I voted for Banshee. So did I. <laughs> I voted for Banshee too, uh, mostly because uh, you know I don't think in the entire time I've been reading, like an active reader of X Men comics, I don't think Banshee was ever like an official member of the team, uh, which is weird, because he kind of left. He left I think before I was even born. <laughs> you know, he was there. He was the old man during Giant Size, right? So he wasn't there very long, and. Uh, I think it would be neat to see him on the team. It's not like he's doing anything right now besides laying in the healing gardens. And Polaris, I mean, I've given Leia Williams a bit of guff over dialogue and characterization in these uh, in the first three issues of X Factor. I thought it was kind of rough, as uh, as I've mentioned time and again. But here, in X Factor number four, uh, really, really good Lorna. Really good Lorna, and it would be a shame to lose Lorna to X from X Factor to X Men, where... She'd have to be written by Hickman. <laughs> and I mean, that's a... Oof. You know, I, I hate being the contrarian guy here, but oof. Uh, another thing about Leo Williams. Um, I'm doing... <laughs> it's embarrassing. I've been collecting as many uh, Jeff the Shark, Jeff the Land Shark appearances as possible here. I don't know if I'll ever do like a Jeff Lapsed show. As, you know, it's like a little funny haha aside to this program, but... Uh, I've been collecting them all. Just uh, Jeff the Landshark, uh, I've I've just found uh, quite an affinity for the character and I uh, want to get all of his appearances here, which required that I bought an issue of, uh, or actually uh, several issues of Gwenpool Strikes Back, which is a book that I would have bet money would never, ever, ever enter my door. <laughs> you know, I would never have an issue of Gwenpool in my long box. But, uh... I sat down with it this morning, and Jeff the Landshark is only a little cameo in there, but uh, 
I didn't know Gwen Poole's gimmick. I thought she was, because for the longest time there, it felt like we were getting new alternate versions of Gwen Stacy over and over and over again. So I thought this was just another take on Gwen Stacy, like sort of a, a, you know, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. What if Gwen Stacy was Deadpool? She's not. She's not Gwen Stacy. Her name is actually Gwen Poole, P-O-O-L-E. And she's from our world, you know, the real, you know, I guess DC would call it Earth Prime or Earth... Was it Earth Prime? Whatever it was. Wherever Superboy Prime was from, I'm guessing it would be Earth Prime. But uh, her gimmick was that she, you know, went into the Marvel Universe from our world. And she has no powers, but she's read all the comics, so she knows secret identities. She knows all sorts of stuff. And it makes me feel kind of dirty to say this, but I I loved it. I thought it was so funny. Um, and this was Leia Williams, who I was just, like, really kind of cringing over her first few issues of X-Factor. And what's more, it was David Baldion on art, and it was fantastic art. It really, really fit the tone of the book, and I, I adored it there. Um, there was a scene in that first issue of Gwenpool Strikes Back where she tries to unmask Spider-Man. And he's like, whoa, whoa, you can't do that. And she's like, well, every you know everybody's read Civil War. They know what you look like under there. And it was like, okay, that was, that was kind of funny, and I wasn't expecting it. And the whole gimmick just... Won me over, so I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be buying friggin' Gwenpool comics now. Look at me, uh, the the me from three years ago would would want to kick me in the uh, nether regions for that, but uh, and especially for admitting it uh, on uh, recorded audio. But uh, Leia Williams, uh, the the thumbs in the middle is is moving to a thumbs up. So, uh, and I agree, I voted for Banshee as mentioned here because I would like Lorna to remain where she's at. Damien continues, Ultimately, I could justify that by arguing that interesting stories could come from Mora's ex being an X-Man, but I did it in an attempt to stop Hickman from writing Polaris. I'll probably be disappointed. Yeah, yeah, we probably both will be disappointed. Damien continues, In reality, the character on the list that I'm the biggest fan of is Boom Boom, but I really don't want to see more of her current characterization. Can you imagine how bad that would be? The writer of Petra and Sway getting a hold of Boom Boom? No, thank you. I agree again. Because Petra and Sway were, uh... Yeah, it wasn't good in that issue. <laughs> that issue of uh, the Empire cash-in was not great. And, I mean, Boom Boom, as it is right now, is a real hard character to to, to not cringe through when you see her. And uh, under, under Hickman's pencil, I don't know that I'd want to see that either. Damien wraps up with anyway, until Krakoa wins Britain in Bloom, make mine X last. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there and for sharing your vote. For sh- I, f- I completely forgot that the vote was a thing. I, I voted the day, the first day, and I totally forgot about it after that. But uh, I guess we'll see. Maybe the results, uh, I think the results are probably done by now. I should probably should have done my due diligence and checked. But uh, maybe we'll, uh, we'll talk about that another day. Uh, next. We've got a letter from Nicholas also talking about X-Factor number 4. He says, I was at a weak point the day that X-Factor number 4 came out. I bought the issue for its Alex Ross timeless variant and out of curiosity for what was going to happen in X of Swords. I have to say that Carlos Gomez's art was fairly decent. Definitely the modern Marvel House style, but it told the story well. The story itself was engaging and almost pulled me in to find out more. I still found I was missing some of the deeper context of the character histories and relationships, but it was helpful to hear you provide some of that context for Polaris and Magneto in your current read-through of it. In the end, I decided to wait for fan reaction to the story before investing in the whole event. 
It was mixed enough that I decided to wait until it hit Marvel Unlimited. I see that they've caught up with some of the events issues, so I'll probably listen to your summaries and explanations before running through the event digitally. I hope you're enjoying it so far. I'm still about five episodes back and catching up. Anyways, I actually survived my first foray into X-Madness. You finally caught up to my one issue, and maybe now I can get caught in the X-Lab slipstream and carry forward. Well, that's awesome that you enjoyed uh, X-Factor number four. It was a heck of an issue. It was a heck of an issue, and I... I don't know how I would have uh, taken it coming in cold like you did, but uh, it's great to hear that uh, that you were at least enticed by it uh, enough to consider jumping in. And uh, I haven't looked at any of the fan reaction outside of you know this mailbag segment because I don't want to spoil anything. So it's interesting to hear that it's uh, that it's kind of mixed here. I I you know me. I always think that my opinions are automatically wrong. So. When I have negative feelings about it, I just assume that everybody else is like, this is the best thing ever, <laughs> you know? Uh, especially when it is, uh, you know, by a creator with, with a little bit of a cult of personality around him, with, as Hickman kind of is. But I gotta say, that's a, it's a, a little troubling, but a little refreshing that the uh, reaction has been, has been a bit mixed here. And, I mean, my own reaction's been kind of mixed. It's a, it's a drawn-out story. It's a very drawn-out story, a lot of filler. It definitely did not need 22 parts. I mean, 22 parts, that's that's a long-ass crossover, isn't it? I'm trying to think if we've had crossovers that size before. I know we probably haven't in the X-Men books. I, yeah, 12 is usually as big as those as big as those get. But uh 22 is is a lot of a lot of pages to fill and damned if they're not filling them. Nick continues, P.S. You can count my vote as a yes for more Juggernaut going forward. Also, I've really enjoyed the recent philosophical discussions on the life and value of Madeline Pryor. It's amazing how the random creative decisions of creators 30 to 40 years ago can still bear fruit today. The idea of someone saying, I was a real person as they die, is terrifying. Well, it's great. Another another yes vote for Juggernaut. I think it's unanimous. I, nobody has said not to do more Juggernaut, so... Uh, I think it's a, a nice, refreshing change from what we get from the X-Books here. It's just a straightforward, fun story with a great creative team in uh, Fabian Niciesa and uh, Ron Gawney. So it's really good stuff. I'm glad everybody's on board with it, and uh, we will definitely get to that once uh, Exitens is out of the way. And I'm, I'm so happy to hear your thoughts on, uh, on Madeline here, because those were, uh, those were some heavy issues, and I, I loved talking about them here, because... So much of uh, what she experienced was sort of kind of relatable, right? I mean, it's just everybody wants to know that they were there, know that they existed, know that they mattered here. And uh, to have it on the page like that and then have the absolute heartbreak of what comes next with the Quiet Council's decision, it's just some amazing stuff here. And, uh, I mean, hats off to Zeb Wells. I can't say it enough. Just killing it on Hellions. Just it is the must read book of this line and uh, I can't wait to I can't wait for more. You know, it's really, really good stuff here. So thank you so much, Nick. And uh you definitely let us know your thoughts on uh Ex of Swords as you continue through Marvel Unlimited. Uh, I'm so happy that they're including chapters up on the uh on the Unlimited site now so people can actually, you know, dip their toes into this gigantic event, you know, without investing a ton of money in something they may not care about or just may be lost in. So definitely, please let us know your thoughts as you continue. And thanks again for writing in. 
If anybody out there would like to write in and join the conversation, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or send me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can join in the conversation on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, 90s X-Men, no hyphen. And if you want to hear more noise, you could do so at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that's going to do it for today, and that's going to sort of kind of do it for the first half of X of Tens here. With Stasis, we're, I think, officially in the home stretch of this massive, massive story. So I want to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me today. And as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 121 of x Last, where we have finally hit the midway point of X of Swords here. Today we hit stasis, which is defined as a period or state of inactivity. Which, uh, yeah, that kind of uh, sums up X of Ten so far, doesn't it? <laughs> now, let's not waste any time. Let's get into it, because we got a, a pretty long issue to discuss, and uh, I've got a lot of very repetitive complaints and observations to fit in. So let's do it here. This is X of Swords Stasis number one. At a December 2020 cover date, the story is X of Swords Chapter 11. Written by Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard, with art by Pepe Larraz and Mahmoud Azrar. Colors, Marty Gracia. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa White Sabolski. Cover price, $5. And this one went on sale October 28th of 2020. So this might be our final 2020 cover-dated book here. I'm not sure when... Next episode's issue came out, but if it came out in November, we're going to be in cover date year 2021. So how about that? So let's crack this thing open here, and we start with our, uh, you know, our chapter break quote page from Saturnine, and uh, here we find out she's uh, she's like a puppet master, you see. Hmm. Double page spread of creds followed by our roll call. 
You got Captain Avalon, Magic, Gorgon, Apocalypse, Wolverine, Betsy Britton, Cypher, Storm, Kid Cable, and Saturnine. And uh, did I miss the issue where Gorgon procured the Grass Cutter and God Killer Swords? I mean, that's two of our ten prophesied blades. Yeah, that's 20% of them. Shouldn't that have been something we ought to have seen? Uh, did he always have those swords? I... I don't know. Also, I mean, doesn't this put the good guys at a bit of a disadvantage? If one of their champions is carrying two of the ten swords, then, I mean, when we stack, you know, everybody up against one another here, we're going to be a combatant short, aren't we? I I don't know. Wasn't Magneto on the ten of swords tarot card back in creation? Does any of this matter? I don't know. We open comics content with Saturnine's emissary delivering an invitation to Mad Jim Jaspers at the Crooked Market, then to the Otherworld Kingdom of Sevelith, then in Fury, which uh, I'm happy to see is comprised of those horrible and terrifying Furies from the Moore and Davis days, then to the upside-down floating Kingdom of Roma, where we get to see Roma herself, then the Holy Republic of Fae, where we see Merlin, and this all leads to a meeting of the Otherworld Parliament, which is being chaired by, who else? Saturnine. Now, the issue on the table at this, you know, parliamentary meeting is whether or not there should be, I don't know, uh, like open borders between the, di- the disparate kingdoms of Otherworld. Um, we hear that Roma and Merlin's votes canceled each other out when I could have sworn they were usually depicted as being more on the same page, you know, most of the time. I don't know, maybe there's a new development. Now, amid a whole lot of, uh, to be completely honest, pretty boring to me discussion, uh, when the votes are finally tallied, the nays have it, so no open borders. The session quickly becomes out of order, and Saturnine is left banging the hell out of her crystal gavel, which looks like something someone could buy at uh, Spencer's Gifts at the mall. We then see that two of Apocalypse's original horsemen, Pestilence and Famine, are here, they were taking the seat of Dryador. Now, we saw them take out the cursed king of Dryador like six years ago when we read X of Swords Creation. We learn that the horsemen have annexed Dryador on behalf of Arako, which itself belongs to Amenth. I mean, can, can we just do like Earth 2, Earth 3? This, these weird words are just a little much, especially when they all kind of look and sound alike. Eh. Anyway... Saturnine dials the conversation back to the Contest of Champions, which she refers to as being the champions of Arako versus the champions of Avalon. The what now? I, I, I don't think this is how it was originally presented and sold. Um, I guess we're meant to believe that our heroes are fighting on behalf of that weirdo Jamie Braddock's kingdom? Okay, then. I mean, Saturnine's got no reason to lie to us. Uh, it's worth noting that Jamie is present, and he's still wearing Mr. Sinister's cape, and it's... Uh, That's still pretty funny. Jamie informs Saturnine that his champions are on their way. And with that, we shift scenes over to the X of Swords action figure display and playset. Apocalypse has them take their places on the sigil, or I guess sigils in uh, Gorgon's uh, case because he's got the two swords. They all jam their swords into the ground, and in a very neat page of art, our champions see perhaps their opponents in their reflection... I mean, they don't see them, but we do. It's a pretty nice visual here. And we're going to try to parse them out here. Uh, We got Wolverine, who looks to be paired with the Firestorm-looking horseman. 
Cypher is paired with the White Sword. Magic is paired with maybe Apocalypse's sister-in-law, Iska. Betsy Britton is paired with Solemn, who I would have sworn would be facing Wolverine since they were both in hell together. Uh, Brian, he has that Anubis-looking horseman. I'm pretty sure that one's Death. Apocalypse is reflected by the giant kaiju monster that we'll be meeting in just a little bit. Gorgon, since he's holding two swords, is reflected by Annihilation and Redroot, who we'll meet in a few pages. Kid Cable is paired with the Creepy Summoner, and Storm is paired with someone we're about to meet, maybe for the first time. Maybe not for the first time. I don't know. But uh, I don't know if these will be the uh, matches. I have seen some of the upcoming covers, which lead me to believe that these are probably not the fights we're going to be seeing. But, hey, it's, uh, it's as good a guess as any. From here, we jump to a blank page, which introduces us to the story of the Swordbearers of Araco. So uh, it's time to uh, do more uh, listing and whatnot. We got an info page all about the prophecies of the Arakans or Iraqis, hinting at people and swords that we don't know nor care about. Uh, I feel like we're reading like a Dungeons and Dragons rule book here, um, which I'd also not much care about. Let's jump back into comics here, and we are at the last watchtower of Dryador. Here, the horseman Pestilence shares the prophecy, kind of like Polaris did on Krakoa back in, uh, I believe it was X Factor number four. Now, together with the creepy summoner and the firestorm-looking horseman, Pestilence crafts the Araco version of the action figure display and playset. Now, it's time to start recruiting a bunch of uh, ciphers who will likely only be important for this very story. First, we head over to the woods where the summoner attempts to recruit Redroot. Now, Redroot is sat before a very Krakoa in the Quiet Council looking tree, and it looks as though she acts as a translator, kind of like Doug does for the good guys. Doesn't take much convincing, and with Arako's blessing, the big tree that is, Redroot is in. Next, Firestorm and Pestilence recruit the giant lizard man Pog Ur Pog, who, if you recall, wields the blade known as. Pog or Pog. Now his sword has like a crick in it, kind of like Apocalypse's scarab blade. Um, he doesn't take much convincing either. He's in. The summoner then recruits Bay the Blood Moon, who is in the middle of slaying a Lovecraftian horror. Perhaps the same one that the summoner and Banshee wrote out of Araco on back in creation. Uh, I don't know. It probably doesn't matter. Uh, now Bay, 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 B. The name is B-E-I. I can't pronounce even one-syllable words. Uh, whatever their name is, they're cool with the concept here, and they're going to fight. Death and Famine then approach the White Sword about signing on, and it's a little bit contentious. Uh, he more or less makes them beg for his participation. Firestorm and Pestilence then chat up Iska the Unbeaten, who's all about it. Without a word, she just raises a glass to the pending battle. Finally, our Anubis-looking friend finds his sword, the Black Bone of Amdwat, and our uh, ten bad guy champions take their place on the action figure display. From here, we get, uh, well, a double-page spread of swords. It feels like we're preparing to have ourselves a grand old round of D&D here. Um, this is just an info page to learn about swords that we'll likely never, ever have to think about again after the story wraps up. Let's go through them anyway, though. War will wield the sword Vermilion. War's mutant power is described as fire. 
which, yeah, stands to reason because their head is kind of engulfed in flame, looks a lot like Firestorm. The creepy summoner wields Colony. His mutant power is invulnerability. He's also a high summoner, which, I mean, is kind of part of his name. Solemn wields Muramasa, which we saw in that uh, Wolverine two-parter. His mutant power is... Adamantium skin. Huh? Does that mean that Wolverine's mutant power is adamantium-laced bones? I don't think so. Weird. Okay. The White Sword of the Ivory Spire wields purity. His mutant power is healing... Which I guess stands to reason, though I thought it would be called something like Resurrection, uh, because he was, you know, he'd always bring those hundred warriors back every day, but I'm not going to split hairs here. Redroot the Forest wields Alluvium. Her mutant power is Batomancy, which I think uh, means talking to plants, because she can talk to, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's control of plants. I, I really don't know. Death wields the Black Bone of Amdwad, and his mutant power is the Eyes of Death. Which sounds like something that you might watch on Sven Gulli. Iska the Unbeaten wields Mercy. Uh, her Brotherhood of Dada power is that she can never lose. Bay the Blood Moon wields Seducer. And their mutant power is the Doom Note. Uh, is that, can she summon Shinigamis and, and write names in a notebook? I, I don't know. Pog er Pog wields. Yeah, Pog er Pog. Uh, he ain't a mutant. Just a beast, so no powers here. Finally, Annihilation wields the Midnight Blade. Everything else about them is redacted, but uh, don't you worry one bit, we will find out everything we need to know by the end of this very issue. And yeah, it's exactly what you think it's going to be. It's not really going to be a surprise. Back to comics, and our heroes arrive at the Starlight Citadel. They talk a bit about the game Saturn is playing with their lives, and the world, of course. Before they can get too deep into the discussion, however, the lady herself appears. She relieves them all to their chambers and invites them to a pre-battle feast afterwards. And we follow each of our champions into their rooms, where each will find a tarot card. So let's hop back into list mode and talk about them. Betsy, she arrives in her room to find the Nine of Swords. Now, this, the image on this card shows her being stabbed by Nine Swords. Doug gets the Two of Cups, and the image shows him and a long-haired person. Maybe Gorgon, each holding a cup, facing one another? I don't know. Speaking of Gorgon, he doesn't even bother looking at his card. He just tosses it aside like so much nonsense. Brian gets the Knight of Pentacles card, and it shows him riding a griffin, much like he did in Excalibur number 13. Magic's card is the Page of Wands, and it shows her basically doing what she does, stabbing the soul sword into the ground and stirring up magical energies. It's what we see Magic do in just about every issue Magic's in. Kid Cable gets The Fool, which he doesn't appear to appreciate. Uh, the card shows him sort of doing like that, that top-of-the-world pose from Titanic, which is another movie I've never seen, but I do know that scene. Uh, Wolverine gets Strength. His card has him in a high summoner headlock. The creepy summoner is locked on a chokehold. Storm gets death, and she's shown riding a dark horse, leading what appears to be a red-eyed zombie army into battle. Apocalypse has? Well, we don't know just yet, because after looking at his card, he just crushes it in his hand. Don't you worry, though. We will find out soon. We shift scenes to join Saturnine, who's on the roof of the place, where she casts some sort of spell. 
Her fish-faced consort informs her that her next guest is here and waiting, and she is rather impatient. Huh, I wonder who this might be. As Opaluna is escorted, she passes by Apocalypse, who is none too pleased with the game at hand. They have a fairly contentious conversation. Morgan Le Fay comes up. Apocalypse's seemingly sudden interest in mysticism comes up as well. Saturnine then repairs Apocalypse's tarot card so we can finally see what it was. And it was the lover's card, and it features Apocalypse and Genesis, his wife, in an embrace. Which takes us to our conclusion where Apocalypse is stood before Annihilation, who unmasks to reveal themselves as... Duh. Genesis. Of course it's Genesis. That's not the end of the issue, though. We do get an info page uh, all about those tarot cards, courtesy of the former Hellion Tarot. Regarding Betsy's Nine of Swords, uh, this is about paranoia and is described as being one of the very few bad cards in the deck. Doug's Two of Cups signifies harmony and is considered the true lover's card, so it probably wasn't Gorgon on it. Gorgon's card is described as being hidden. She can't see what Gorgon's card was because no matter how many times she flips it, all she sees is the back. Brian's Knight of Pentacles speaks to prosperity. Magic's Page of Wands uh, refers to someone who is clever, arrogant, but good to have around. Kid Cable's Fool is not exactly an insult. It just means that the bearer has much to learn and much that they will learn. Wolverine's Strength regards the strength of will, heart, and focus and speaks to Wolverine's endurance. Storm's death is not exactly as foreboding as you'd think. Uh, this one's about metamorphosis. And Apocalypse's Love is Caught is described as being a great test. And that is that. Next episode, we head back to the flagship already. It's X-Men number 14, followed by two issues of Marauders in a row. That's a little weird, but uh, how's about we talk about everything we learned here? Uh, we're halfway here. We're halfway through, right? We are halfway through this event, uh, and this is still such a weird and uneven story. Um, you know, before we get too deep here, uh, I've been known to complain a bunch about the info pages, right? I mean, you know it, I know it. I've commented that many of them are unnecessary, and that the information on them would be better delivered in the form of, you know, sequential art, like a comic book. Well... After reading this issue, I think I'd like to rescind that observation. Because this entire issue, this entire oversized issue, feels like an info page spread across an entire book. It's just lists upon lists. Uh, we meet some representatives of the fair and foul kingdoms of Otherworld. We meet the champions of Araco. We see the swords of Araco. We see the tarot cards of the heroes. The synopsis here felt more like a recitation of lists, uh, which is somehow even drier than my usual shtick, believe it or not. Now, something else I should address here is uh, the intrinsic Chris problems of X of Tens here. I have a very low tolerance for fantasy, for swords and sorcery, any of that sort of nonsense. And, and I don't mean for nonsense to be any sort of a slight. It's just that these are concepts, genres, settings that I can't bring myself to care about. Um, sometimes, even when partaking in a genre that I don't care for, say, you know, some sort of a you know sci-fi sci like a like a Star Wars or a Star Trek, or sword and sorcery fantasy, 
I can usually find myself like a lightning rod, right? Something that I can kind of grab onto and invest in. A lot of times, however, I can't. This, despite featuring the X-Men, a family of characters that I've loved for over three decades, I'm finding very little to hold on to. Um, I feel like we're getting buried in extraneous gobbledygook just to bloat out this story. Uh, I mean, let's let's like let's go into a list mode here. This whole this whole episode's been lists. We have all these swords. Like fifteen of them are new, right? At least fifteen of these swords are new. They all require info pages and bits of lore, and and I have trouble buying that any of this will be important ever again after this story. We get ten new villains because all of our actual ex-villains are now good guys. And actually, it's more like twelve new villains because two of the new, old, original horsemen aren't even taking part in the contest of champions. And again, I really, really hate to harp here, but I doubt we're going to see many, if any, of these characters again after this. Though I, I, I'd guess that Pog or Pog might pop up down the line as a funny haha because he's a giant lizard alligator dinosaur beast and he talks funny, and I think the internet probably digs that. I still don't care about Otherworld. Uh, the kingdoms here are more miss than hit. Uh, the only ones I'm somewhat interested in seeing are what uh, Jim Jaspers has to do and the Furies. And that's only because I love those old Alan Captain Britain stories so much. I couldn't imagine what a new reader would think about any of this. A brand new reader coming in wouldn't know Jim Jaspers from A Hole in the Wall and wouldn't have the foggiest idea what a fury is. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Now, this other world setup and, like, this um, just dump of all these kingdoms here, it reminds me of how Hickman set up Secret Wars, right? We had all these battle worlds. And not all of which were particularly interesting. Uh, actually, most of them were not. Uh, and, and any that were, were mostly surface-level interesting at best. Like, I mean, I remember seeing, like, E is for Extinction. I was like, whoa, cool, there's an E is for Extinction-themed bit. But then what? Right? I mean, it's, it's not real. <laughs> it's, just, it's just set dressing. It all feels quite hollow. It did then... And it does now. I'm having a real hard time with this one, if it's not a, a completely apparent here. I'm hopeful that the second half of this will pick up, but uh, this felt way, way drawn out. Um, we didn't need 11 issues to get to where we are right now. We, cert- uh, we I don't think we needed half of that to get where we are right now. So this feels just so bloated. So much like we're we're just treading water here. Uh, we're buying time, and uh, oh boy, at least it looked really good. That'll give it. <laughs> it was a beautiful book here with Loraz and Azrar. Beautiful, beautiful work here. It's just a shame that uh, that the story is just kind of. Eh. But as ever, we will uh, remain. As optimistic as possible that this will improve. I've heard from people whose opinions I respect that this is a good story. So hopefully, hopefully we got all the busy work and all the filler out of the way in the first half here. And uh, the second half is loaded with with interesting things. Because this was uh, not much. <laughs> not so much. But uh, that's all I got to say about it. Because uh, at this point I'm just going to be repeating myself anyway. Uh, agree? Disagree? Please. Please feel free to let me know. I'd love to talk to you about it. 
Speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a uh, moderately stacked deck here. Uh, we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about uh, a two-parter. He's talking about X-Force number 13 and Wolverine number 6, which I think were parts 3 and 4 of X of Tens. Damien opens with, well, that two-parter was a steaming turd of a story. <laughs> I remember reading this and thinking I'd been mugged. I can't afford to spend 10 pounds on something I hate. Genuinely, I was going to give up reading the X-Books and definitely not buy any more of X of Tens. Fortunately, these two issues were released on the same day as Marauders, which I had already bought, so I got sucked back in by the best storm story of the Pox Pox Docs era. Thankfully, the later issues of Wolverine and X-Force are co-written by Jerry Duggan, which lifts them up. I admire your tenacity for sticking with this and finding something nice to say. Anyway, until I care at all about the hand, make mine X lapsed. Well, tell us how you really feel about that two-part story there, Damien. No, no, I I completely agree. Uh, definitely felt like, uh, especially coming after, uh, you know, a fairly strong, uh, decently strong open, and then a very strong X-Factor number four. It was just like, it was like we were driving down the highway, and uh, and there was a speed bump on the highway, right? <laughs> and then we, we almost bust our front axle going over the first one, and then there's a second speed bump just a few feet ahead of that one. And it's, uh, it was X-Force and Wolverine sending uh, our titular hero to hell to get a sword. It was uh, not a good story at all. To the point where I glossed over so much while reading it that I didn't even realize that Mariko is back among the living. I, I know I saw her name in there, and I just assumed it was a flashback, but I think it was in the present. I didn't know Mariko was back, and... I was so out to lunch reading that story that I didn't even care. <laughs> I didn't even care to make the comment, but uh, I definitely appreciate uh, you sticking with this <laughs> and finding something to say about uh, these uh, somewhat forgettable issues. You felt like you were mugged. Yes, I, I can totally, totally appreciate that sentiment, but thank you so much. Next, Jesse is talking about a topic I didn't think we'd ever be touching on, on again, uh, Empire. Also, Deadpool. He says, I was catching up on some reading with Mr. Wade Wilson because of Deadpool's Dawn of X tie-in, and in Deadpool number 5, which is legacy number 320 because there were like 30 <laughs> Deadpool number 5s, there's an ad for Empire that shows Xavier, Cyclops, and Storm with a Kree and Skrull warrior and Cyclops holding a Krakoan flower, holding it out as if it was a gift. This makes me wonder if the pandemic changed Marvel's plans for the X-Men's involvement in the event series. I know Thor was supposed to have a bigger presence and a miniseries to tie in, but it was all thrown aside. I wonder if the plant-like nature of Krakoa and the plant-like species attacking the Earth had bigger plans in the long run. This ad otherwise would have had nothing to do with any of the mutant involvement in the event. What are your thoughts? That is so funny that I got this message when I did because the day before I got this email, I bought... Deadpool number five. I've been trying to track down the uh, the Kelly Thompson run, and uh, to this point, I only need issues one and four. And I tell you what, this is embarrassing as a fake-ass comics historian. I bought Deadpool number four um, just uh, just yesterday. I got home and I realized that I bought the wrong Deadpool number four. 
I bought Deadpool Volume 7, number 4, and not Deadpool Volume 8, number 4. And I felt like such an idiot because it's like, I I should know better. <laughs> I should definitely know better. But I just saw number 4. It's like, oh, oh, cool. I get to check this one off my list and uh, got home. And it's like, huh, Scotty Young wrote this? I didn't know he had anything to do with Deadpool anymore. And it's like, no, no, this one's from 2018. So I felt like a giant idiot. And, uh... Realized that I left a variant cover of the actual number four I wanted at the same comic shop So I picked up the cover I thought was the real cover And uh, it was just a mess Just a mess, an embarrassing mess at that But I had also bought Deadpool number five, I think the day or two before that And I was flipping through it and I found this very same ad And it is very, very weird it, it's just as uh, Jesse explained it here the, the focus is on Cyclops Like kind of presenting a flower And uh, really It made me wonder It's like oh is there is there a bigger X-Men presence here Because I figured you guys would have told me if there was uh, Those of you who have read The you know entire event uh, Deal And uh, no it sounds like not Sounds like that did not happen So I, you gotta assume uh, With as Awful as uh, the X-Men Empire tie-ins were That they probably had something I don't know if I want to say something better planned But something else planned Um, And I mean it's just It almost writes itself right Uh, These are plant creatures The X-Men are all about the plants right now It's a story that basically writes itself So it's it would I'd be very very surprised If there wasn't something else In the in the works before uh, Before the world you know grinded to a halt Jesse continues Deadpool is so far okay, and I would say that issue 6, where Wade is trying to get on Krakoa, is the highlight so far. I'm usually a huge fan of Chris Bocciolo, but he's starting to get extremely difficult to make out what is going on in his panels. Generation X number 1 will stay my most favorite comic of all time, though. And you know, it's funny, uh, Chris Chris how do we say his name? I I thought I put up a a pronunciation guide on on Twitter a couple days ago. Bocciolo? I don't know. Uh, he is uh, definitely in like my top three artists of uh, comic artists of all time, and uh, I have to agree. I have to agree. I was so excited to see his name on a Deadpool comic, especially after reading number six and just loving it. I was like, oh, you know, the, what can make this better? Well, you put my favorite artist on there, and I. It, it is. It is a bit hard to follow. And uh, he does not draw quite as cute a Jeff the Landshark <laughs> as uh, whoever it was that wrote issue six, and uh, and whoever's writing the I think it's a uh, Sandoval is writing it now. Gerard, Gerardo Sandoval is like the main Deadpool artist, and he draws a really good uh, Jeff the Landshark as well, including the most recent issue that has him uh, taken over by a symbiote as, as part of the King and Black uh, crossover, which. Jeff the Landshark Venomized is, uh, that's that's an issue worth buying. I would definitely tell you to uh, run out and grab that one. It was Deadpool number 10, I believe. Uh, Jesse wraps up with, Well, until Deadpool becomes King of Krakoa, make my next laps. And uh, stranger things have happened, haven't they? <laughs> it would not surprise me one bit. But thank you so much for jogging my memory on that Empire ad, and also, I'm just so happy that you're uh, you're checking out Deadpool after we uh, we dipped our toe in it here on the show. Uh, next up, Evan. He's going to be talking about X, X not X Factor, Excalibur number thirteen. He says, "I definitely felt like I missed an issue here, and some of it could be because of Brian and Betsy's fake fighting, 
but it did get me thinking about some of the Krakoans' effort to tilt the contest outside the scope of the rules. Normally, I might frown on the good guys cheating, but they're playing a game whose rules were established by Saturnine, who is playing her own games. Betsy pointed out that Saturnine was confident that Brian would fall in line when she wrote the prophecy. We usually think of prophecies as ancient rules forged of destiny or something, but this one was written up by Cosmic Homewrecker trying to get her favorite Captain Britain back to the Citadel in order to Netflix and chill. Who cares about her rules, especially when the fate of the mutant nation and the world is at stake? Very, very good point. Very good point here. Um, I, I definitely agree with you, though. This one felt... It felt like we missed something here, and uh, a lot of that has to do with the uneven characterization of these characters in any given issue. So we have Brian and Betsy fighting, their fake fighting, their fake argument here to, to kind of set Saturnine at ease. And it didn't read as uh, particularly strange or obviously, f- you know, fake, obviously, f- you know, a fiction, because these characters... I mean, characterization is what the writer needs it to be. That's been the case for a little while now. That's not a Dawn of X problem. That's a Marvel problem. That's that's just a comics problem. That's that's not just even a Marvel problem. That's just a comics industry problem. These characters become what the writers need them to be in order to tell the story and screw anyone who came before them and anyone who comes after. Because whoever comes after is going to do the same thing anyway. They're going to make these characters fit the story that they want to tell, regardless of what happened before and what's going to happen after. And the cycle just repeats. So we have Betsy and Brian acting out of character here, but there's a pattern of behavior in these books where it's just like, okay, well, that's just how they act. So I just definitely felt like I missed something. Even on reread, I tried reading it again with an eye toward knowing the outcome here, and still, it just felt like a... Just felt like another issue. Didn't feel like anybody was faking anything. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Excalibur number 13 here. A very, very weird one. A very weird one indeed. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a letter from Jason, who's given us a little bit of a Exoswords uh, catch-up with a focus on his favorite issue of the run so far, New Mutants number 13. He says, I'm just popping in now that we're insert fraction here of the way through the X of Tens to share a few thoughts in general and to gently but firmly chastise you for underappreciating what I think is the finest issue of the entire event. First, the big picture and how I don't understand it. I'm more than a little shaky on the exact relationship between Krakoa, Arako, Akara, Amenth, Dryador, and Otherworld. Yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> no, it seemed... I was saying this earlier during the synopsis here. We have these these disparate bits of island, and when we got the info dump in X-Men number 12, and we learned that there was something called a menth, I had no friggin'... I still don't know what a menth is. It's just like another land through a rift, but it's the same rift that Araka was sent through and sealed in in the chasm after Apocalypse and the Four Horsemen sent him there, but then the Four Horsemen were there, but not there. It's very, very bizarre here. Um, if I were to try and parse this out, I'd say that, you know, Otherworld, we have uh, the Citadel, then we have, like, Dryador as one of the side kingdoms here. Somehow, going through Dryador gets you to Arako, and Arako, I'm sorry, yeah, Arako, no, 
is, yeah, Arako, which is somehow also connected to a menth. I don't know if it's physically connected to a menth or if that's just where, like, a rift point is. But we do know from Hellions that um, Sinister's crew is working their way through Dryador to get to Arako to steal those weapons. I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. Uh, Jason continues. Maybe I don't have a head for maps, but this is just too many places. Amen. It seems that after the ancient islands break up, then some bad stuff happened to the mutants of Arako. And now, what's left of them are all P.O.'d at Great Grandpappy Apocalypse. But I don't know what it is they want. What are they trying to accomplish? Why do they need to go through Saturnine? Is it just a geography thing? Like how you can't drive from the Northeast United States to Florida without paying extortionate tolls to get through Delaware? There are at least one too many sudden but inevitable betrayals in Arako's backstory, and I'm unable to keep it all straight. You're right. You're absolutely right here. I thought, like I said just a few moments ago, um, in X-Men number 12, when a menth was added to this puzzle, it's just like, why? I'd have been fine if, you know, Arako was just, uh, the void was there, and that's where these creatures came from. I mean, I don't know. There are, there's too much going on. There's too much going on, and not not any of it really is, is all that interesting. And it certainly won't be interesting once we're out of this story. It's, I don't know. Jason continues. Next, I'm not sure how I feel about how stakes have been reintroduced. If, as we've discussed, one of the primary foundational characteristics of the Hickman era is that death isn't a thing anymore, it feels unsatisfying when the only way they can think to make an event matter is to say, gosh, actually death is a thing again now, at least until the issues stop having the X of Ten's trade dress on them. I understand why this choice was made, I just wish they'd come up with a cleverer gimmick. I'd reserve the right to revise my opinion on this if new versions of Died in Otherworld characters like Rockslide 2.0 turn out to be wicked cool. <laughs> and yeah, once again, I mean, I do appreciate the fact that we do have stakes here. Uh, because it's, it is one way to make it sound like this event matters. Because they're not doing much else to make it sound like the event matters, right? And, and actually, your next point is going to talk a little bit more about that. So I won't say anything about that just yet. But I was happy with that because I want these things to matter. I really, really want these things to matter. But I can't deny that you're 100% right. Um, we have the Dawn of X books. I mean, we're in episode 121. I think we started X at 10s at 111. So that was 110 minus 12, 98, about 100 issues of this run, right? Where death didn't matter. We were told and beaten over the head with the fact that death no longer matters. And here we are butting up against a story that we need to make people think is somehow more important than the hundred issues we read between Hoxpox and this. So we go back to the well of making it so death matters again. You're 100% right. It does feel like a kind of a cheap way to implement stakes here. And it is less clever than I think we would expect from, uh, from these creators. I think that uh, the way they did it, I feel, is clever because it kind of subverts our expectations. But if we if we strip it down to its you know to its bare parts here, it is just like okay, well now death matters, 
<laughs> so deal with it, and it won't again after, uh, like you said, after the trade dress is gone, it'll we'll go back to the way things were. Uh, Jason continues. Also, it feels unnecessary to make the stakes worldwide. It would be more than enough to say that the Krakoans are fighting for their own existence. After all, these are characters that we care about. To throw in that, oh, by the way, if the Krakoans lose, then the Araconians will overrun the entire Earth. It's just overkill. Someone needs to tell Marvel that it's okay not to put the fate of the planet at stake half a dozen times every month. Readers can still care about smaller things. Written well, an event focused on saving the life of a single person could be more suspenseful than any number of alien invasion fleets. Yes, you're absolutely right here. And uh, to their... uh, I don't want to say to their credit, but I do feel like the stakes of the world have been downplayed a little bit. I, I mean, they're there. They're 100% there. We know that if the X-Men lose, um, the the Araconians, Iraqis, they're going to destroy the Earth. Uh, Saturnine was like, yeah, <laughs> they can do what they want. But I do feel like they've downplayed it a little bit. Uh, I think... Maybe that was a concession because Marvel wanted the event to be bigger. Because as you said here, Marvel didn't seem to get the memo that uh, not every event needs to shatter the world and crack the internet and make it so everything we thought we knew was wrong and uh, all that we know is no longer there. I don't think Marvel got that memo. So maybe this was supposed to be a little smaller in scope and scale. Again, I'm projecting and guessing wildly, but... uh, I'd like to think so, especially with how, as I mentioned, it, it, it is kind of downplayed that the world will end here. It, it gets a mention every now and again, but it's more about fighting for themselves, I feel. Though, maybe I'm missing all some, some subtext. That, 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 uh, <laughs> that happens to me from time to time. Sometimes more often than not, especially when I'm kind of glossed over. Uh, Jason continues. On that note, on to my favorite issue. New Mutants, lucky number 13. My perspective on this story reflects my relative newness to the X-Universe. My first meeting with Doug was when Professor X brought him to Krakoa to be his mutant-to-island translator, and I only met Magic when she became one of the great captains of Krakoa. So while more experienced readers may may see some of the issue as out of character or old hat, well, like NBC used to advertise reruns in the summer times, I didn't see it, so it's new to me. You compared the treatment of Doug to the many, many times DC tries to convince us that Aquaman isn't lame, and how, if they have to keep telling us, it just makes it that much harder to believe them. I don't see that as what's going on here. We're very specifically not being told that Doug is now a mighty warrior. He's not being set up to single-handedly slaughter all the X-Men's enemies. He's a kid entirely out of his element, like a tech support guy who suddenly finds himself drafted into the Special Forces. He's cannon fodder. We see him struggle with the weight of this responsibility, but finally decide to do what he's called to do because he's the one who was called, and it's his responsibility. I think that's pretty noble, and it makes me think more of a character whom I'd mostly previously seen as as mostly just a plot device. There is a lot of truth to what you say, my friend. There is a lot of truth to it, and uh, this may be one of those times where all of my continuity baggage really uh, hinders my ability to appreciate a... I don't want to say a simple story, but a story, a nice story. I, I, we get this a lot out of Doug here. If you go back and you read the old New Mutant stuff, um, we see Doug in these sort of situations where he is out of his element, 
and is called to action, and we always find out that he's that he's underestimated, and, and it just seems to be a a trope with Doug Ramsey here. I could totally appreciate seeing this with you know fresher eyes and less continuity baggage, and getting something more out of it for sure, because he's never treated, never quite treated like he's on par with any you know. He's not on par with Magic. He's not on par with any any of his peers, really. He is, like you said, he is the tech support guy. <laughs> he is the guy who can translate. But we do get this more than meets the eye sort of uh, take on him. It, it seems it's like kind of like his only story, you know. Because uh, honestly, he's he's got to be one of the harder characters to write because you either have to be extremely clever, extremely loose with the concept of language. Or you go with this. You make it so it's like, okay, well, don't underestimate this guy. He's the, he's the funny haha guy, but he's, there's more to him than that. And uh, that's that's why I compare him to Aquaman, because it's just, that's all we get. And, and the way you put it is perfect here. The more they try to convince us, the harder it's going to be to do so. It's kind of like when you when you have to work for somebody who won't stop... Reminding you that they're there, that they're your boss. You know, it's like if you have to tell people you're the boss all the time. Well, maybe you're not. Um, uh, Jason continues. Likewise, I don't see magic as cold or unfeeling. I see her doing her best to prepare a friend for an impossible task. This is her responsibility, and she's going to do the best she can. And she's not going to lie either to Doug or to herself about the likely outcome of all this. That's pretty noble too, and tragic. And these new insights into the characters of Doug and Ileana are why I love this issue. Too many of the other pieces of this event have felt like chess pieces being shoved around a board or like excerpts of a knockoff AD&D handbook. But this issue was about real three-dimensional characters doing their best in an impossible situation. And that I think we can all relate to. Once again, uh, there's a lot of truth to what you say. And once again, this is another situation where my continuity baggage gets in my way of enjoying a story. Because Magic, I mean, Magic has been shown as a warmer character uh, time and again here. Um, More uh, sympathetic. Not just this sort of drill sergeant. And I I do realize she's in a new role now as as a captain of Krakoa, and that might be informing some of her behavior. But uh, it still just doesn't feel doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't feel like uh, the Ilyana that I've known uh, for a very long time here. It looks like Ilyana, and and it it fights like Ilyana, but it just doesn't it just doesn't strike me the same way here. But I totally again I do appreciate uh, your being able to see this with fresher eyes than I, and uh, definitely getting something more out of it. Also, I'm very, very happy to see your uh, Dungeons & Dragons uh, a reference here because uh, I didn't know if I was being out of line by comparing a lot of this stuff to like a D&D uh, rule book here because so much of it just feels like like we're going to be getting out like little miniatures and dice and, and playing these, uh, these X of Swords fights here. And I think, didn't, I think we rolled dice once before, didn't we? In an issue of New Mutants, I think we, we did play <laughs> a New Mutants role-playing game, so... Ah, you never know. You never know. Uh, Jason continues. One more bit from this issue. There's a panel that directly on the nose foreshadows one of the major outcomings of all of X of Tens, and I only noticed this on this read-through because I'm aware of what's going to happen. 
Any hints at all would be spoiling things for first-time readers, but I've taken a screenshot, so I'll forward it to you after the thing that's going to happen happens. So you have that to look forward to. I do look forward to that. I always love callbacks and call-aheads, and uh, I, I look forward to seeing that for sure. Jason continues, Finally, I have a brief Hellions theory. Do you remember how, back in Hellions number one, we saw the gathering of the Fellowship? And in several cases, the circumstances of the eventual New Hellion situation seem more than a bit sketchy. For instance, Havoc oddly blacking out and losing control during a fight, Wildchild being described as going feral right after moving to Krakoa, and Grey Crow being set upon by Morlocks only to have the Council falsely accuse him of, accuse him of being the aggressor. I, ex- I suspect that someone pulled shenanigans here in order to manipulate the Council into forming the Hellions team to begin with. I don't know for sure who perpetrated these shenanigans, but my guess is cleverly hidden in the following anagram. Sister Minister. Huh. I'm going to have to get out a pen and paper to try to uh, break that code. Huh. That is a great theory. I actually really, really like that theory because it certainly stands to reason here. Um, Sinister, he is sort of a... Uh, Sort of a puppet master, he always has been, and we really haven't seen him doing much of that, at least in the forefront. We do know that he has a, you know, a black market clone lab under under the bar, but uh, I could certainly see him manipulating situations and characters to where he can kind of put his thumb on them and use them to do his bidding here. I mean, the first time out, they went to the, uh, the, found- the House for Foundlings, right? Which is... An old sinister stomping ground. So I definitely think you are probably onto something there. And Zeb Wells is one of the handful of writers uh, that are on these books that uh, I have all the faith in the world in. So I'd love to see this come to fruition and see how it all plays out. Uh, Jason wraps up with, So until it stops being funny that Marvel Comics once published a book called Giant Size Man-Thing, make my neck lapsed. And uh, I, I, I actually own a few copies of Giant Size Man Thing that I'll never read. I simply own it because the cover says Giant Size Man Thing. And uh, but thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on uh, on X of Ten so far. Your favorite issue of X of Tens and uh, giving us that theory. It's great. It's always great to hear from you, Jason. I really, really appreciate getting the point of view from someone with far less baggage than a lot of us on this uh, X Labs journey here. So thank you so much, and I look forward to more. Uh, now, that'll do it for our mailbag. Uh, if anybody would like to join in the conversation, please, please feel free to do so. You could find me a couple different ways. On uh, Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics, and you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You could uh, find, uh, uh, boy, what is it, blog posts and show notes. That's the words I say. Blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, xlabs.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join in the conversation on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to a whole bunch of audio at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for our oversized issue, our oversized midpoint issue of uh, Exitens here. Uh, Fingers crossed that uh, business picks up as we continue through the second half. Uh, I would like to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me today and joining me on this... uh, this twisted and pointy journey through Otherworld. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya. <laughs>